I got a signal. Is that going to break the instance for me on YouTube if you do that? Okay. It says excellent collect, uh, connection, but I don't see anything yet. Um, it usually does take a minute, I think. I'm okay. pretty sure the audio is being fed to the instance, by the way. I'm, I'm hearing us twice. Yeah. Hello, everybody. <laughs> All right, we have go live. Hey, ready. everybody, we're about to go live. Here we go. <laughs> sure, if you want to. Yeah. Hey, everybody, welcome. It's AI Day 2. I am so excited. Farzad's with us today. Thank you so much for being with us, Farzad. We are doing something we've never done before. Uh, we've got Farzad Mazbahi's joining us here, and this is going to be so much fun hanging out with you tonight. This is going to be a long night, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've already yeah. pushed it back. <laughs> they've already pushed it back. <laughs> well, right. No, no, I mean, like, you know, stuff has been changing throughout the day. Oh, and everything, yeah. so, so they haven't pushed it back again, yeah. just yeah. the one time so far. Just just the one time yeah Should we no, have it's... a little bet on whether they're gonna push it back again look we're Ooh. gonna be here no matter what <laughs> so just stick around we'll keep it entertaining instead of waiting for dumb live streams to start we're gonna be ready to go you know what i mean yeah we have so much to talk about there also may or may not be drinking involved tonight um Maybe. there might also be a visit from tesla bot him herself uh it's gonna be very exciting so wow. yeah, thank you, Farzad, for being here. We're on your channel, so you can watch us on either channel. You can either head to Now You Know or Farzad Mazbahi's channel. Yeah, uh, we're both we're live both places. Like if we break down on one, you can go to the other. Yeah, and the the digital magic is all being done by Corporate Streams. Um, our buddy Noah over at Corporate Streams has uh, put all this techno wizardry together. So yeah, we have a whole team of yeah. amazing people in the background making this happen. And I'm looking at like a screen with like a million different boxes on it yep. but you're seeing <laughs> you're seeing just a couple and also you're seeing tesla bot holding us up here yeah so <laughs> it's great thank you guys wow. so much for uh for uh having me uh be part of this really cool uh simulcast like we're, we're live on both channels and if you really want to be a super pro you should have both streams up on your screen <laughs> yes and sync up the audio for both right so pause and just get it exact and then that yeah. way you'll get twice the awesome but yeah. seriously thank you guys very much i'm super excited um yeah i can't wait i can't wait to see what tesla has uh, to show us i can't wait to uh share this moment you know it, it's funny because i was i was speaking to my community earlier today and it really feels like today might be a moment like back in um you know like when the electricity was invented or the telephone was invented it might be something 20 years from now 30 years from now we look back to this day we'll be like holy crap this was the start of something transformational for society so and i'm trying to temper my expectations as much as i humanly can but i'm failing really badly so of course i'm here to show that excitement, uh, to share that excitement with everybody. So yeah, very, very excited to be part of this um, experience with both of you. And uh, yeah, I'm honored. I'm honored to. to it really may be to the, 
Uh, me too. And it may be the last time that humans are allowed to think for ourselves. I mean, this <laughs> could be the beginning of the singularity for all we know. Sure. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Jesse, you is... don't seem like you believe me on this. I just like, it's not today. Oh, okay. I just want to, it's not, it's not it is, he's not going to march it, out his army of it robots. It is possible. Here, this is one possible <laughs> scenario. I, I'm not saying it's likely, but it's possible right. that the, the this um, is, curtain the, goes up. It's the beginning of and the And then end. there's like cameras in New York City and he's like, guess what? And then all these Tesla bots march out into different cities. It's possible. I don't think so. Okay. Um, There's a greater than 0% <laughs> chance, I would say. Exactly. Greater yeah, than 0% chance. Yeah, which is something you can't say about most companies. Right. I mean, sure. Elon, it could, could happen. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, awesome. we're, we're prepared. Awesome. I just had some coffee at uh, 8 o'clock at night. So that, that's a really, I know. I have not done this off in schedule. a long time. I will not be sleeping tonight. It's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's going to be tough to sleep anyway, caffeine or no caffeine. You know, yeah. I feel like we're probably going to see things that are going to really keep us up for a while. I think um, uh, I'm sure that the viewers are probably gathered by this. But since we're live already and, and everybody can join in, in the discussion with us, um, we'll be here before the show. We'll be here during the show and we'll be uh, during the event and we'll be here after the show as well discussing what we found. So God knows how long this could go. I mean, uh, you guys are Eastern time zone, so uh, you might be up uh, well after midnight. And uh, yeah, <laughs> if, if we're if we're up after midnight Central or Pacific, then we know we had a, a crazy game changing event <laughs> sort of deal. And I'm, I'm almost hoping for that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like, okay, how how little sleep am I going to get going into tomorrow? And if I, if I can get it to like, say, three to four hours, then I know today was an insanely uh, crazy day. So I can't yeah. wait. I can't well, wait. We're already so getting some interesting uh, thoughts coming in here. Yeah. Uh, thank you to uh, break, uh, Breakneck Trent. He says, uh, Tesla, brought, Tesla bot prosthetics controlled via Neuralink. You thought my idea was crazy. This is, uh, that's, that's out there. I, I mean, it makes sense. If you have a working robot arm, why not, you know, control it. And then now you have a robot hand. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. That's yeah. a great one. Uh, Leah Grant. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about, we know some things that we think we know at least about Tesla bot, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to um, just start with kind of what we think we know. We know that it's supposed to be five foot eight in height or 173 centimeters tall. Mm -hmm. So that's good. We got some basis of reality here. Mm -hmm. We know that it's going to weigh about 175 pounds or 57 kilograms. So that's good. Um, and a carrying capacity of 45 pounds or 20 kilograms. I had remembered it wrong. I thought it could carry more. So 45 pounds, I mean, that's a lot, but you know, humans can carry more than that. So this, it's not going to be immediately doing the kinds of jobs I thought it would be doing, but it can carry like a nail gun. It can carry a baby. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, Farzad, we, there's a lot of conjecture we're going to be doing here in the first part of the show. And sure. um, and I'll keep some notes here so that once we find out what it really can do, we'll see who is closest to the truth here. But cool. I want to first ask you about what you think Tesla could charge as a fee or as a price for Tesla bot. What, do you have any ideas what you think it's, you know, they're going to be able to do right out of the gate? Yeah, that's a that's. That's the that's the question, right? So I think I think for me the way I think about it is the way Tesla has approached these problems before with every other product is uh, sort of reason from uh, first principles. I'm already throwing a freaking buzzword out there, but uh, reasoner for first principles. What is the least amount of work and materials required to reach your goal, essentially, right? So you think about a bot. Um, 
compare a bot to say the model three as an example the model three is out of fremont i've seen a bunch of uh fellow youtubers part of our community done some incredible work around this uh that cost is around thirty five thousand dollars in just material costs and say labor to put together the car like okay so if it costs that much to put together a car is the bot going to be harder or easier to put together the materials for the bot are going to be way less uh, it's going to require way less batteries uh, the type of materials they use for, say, the hands or the feet or whatever, uh, I don't know how exotic they're going to be, but uh, they're probably not going to be anything super, super crazy. And if Tesla uh, really achieves what, they're, what they tend to achieve, which is excellent manufacturing capacity and, and really good at sourcing materials at the best price, then uh, I think it stands to reason that the material cost for the bot probably, again, super guess, completely out of my ass. Nobody, you know, hold me accountable to this. But somewhere between fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars to make the bot is probably a reasonable expectation, and so the question becomes: What kind of margins would Tesla look to make on top of that? Right. What makes the bot interesting is that it's a solution that could be leased out, kind of similar to what FSD could be. And I'm sure we'll talk about this too. But uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can sell the product. But if if they were going to sell it, I say a regular like a car where you can go and buy a bot and worry about the licensing of the software later. Um, I don't know. So if they say it's $25,000 and they make, but I don't know, 30 to 40% margin, which is how much you're making on the cars today. That's uh, how much? So that 10, 20, 30, 75, it's like 35,000 bucks, something like that for the car could, mm -hmm. or for the bot could very well be uh, how much it would. So say between 35 to 50,000, which would be insane. Cause you think about this bot, if, if you could really could buy a bot for 35 to 50 grand, and it could do work like, you know, uh, I don't know, build things or replace some sort of uh, or displace or or enhance some sort of human labor, then um, that's uh, an order of magnitude, another buzzword, uh, cheaper <laughs> than a human over 10 years, right? So you think about the average pay in the United States is 35 to 50,000 bucks a year or something. If you buy one time cost of 50 grand for a bot, and then it just, you, all you have to do is charge it and it can work for say 10 years without having to be the replaced. You already get a 10X benefit on that plus any other benefits that you get from speed and stuff like that. So um, that would be my guess, super drawn out, but I, that's how I think about it. What, what do you guys think? What, so was the, just to repeat your final number there. So what, what do you think is the 35 price? 35 to 50. Charge? So I'm going to say 40. 50. And, and you're yeah. thinking a one-time, uh, you know, you, you can buy it. Uh, I think so. I think okay. so. I think it's going to be a one time. Otherwise, I think Tesla might get into a situation where they if they're only licensing these out, one could make the argument that over the long term, they could be monopolizing labor in a sense where they, they just are the ones that provide labor. And I'm not so sure that um, I don't know how that plays in, in Tesla's longer term mission of ensuring that the outcome of humanity is good. So I don't know. Mm. I, I still got to think through that. But 40,000 per bot would be my guess. Well, I mean, you're, I mean, I understand that you have to pick a number like in terms of margins. So I think that it, it does make sense, but I can go buy a car from a lot of different companies. I can't really go buy a humanoid robot. Um, and I mean, so I think that they have, um, you know, a lot more demand, whether people agree with me or not, um, in terms of where else you're going to go to buy a humanoid robot. Like, what are you gonna go to Boston Dynamics and say like, hey, can I have one of your robots? And they say, no, it's a prototype and we need to shoot another dance video in a, in a couple of weeks. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're doing all that work. Um, I just, I so feel what's your number? like, I don't, I mean, they can charge an arm and a leg. 
<laughs> for it um, because uh, who else is going? I mean, if if it is going to be a, they will sell it to you um, as opposed to the licensing thing, and and we should get into the uh, the moral quandaries as as you were just give about me before. a price, <laughs> freaking quarter million dollars. Okay, you're going to. Okay. I mean, at, at the at the base level, because I mean, I'm, we should talk about some of the benefits. Well, of I'm going to go. Robot. I'm going to go higher than you guys. Okay, I think it's Whoa. worth a million. Okay, we did an episode last week. If you guys haven't seen it, go see it. We did the math there, but basically, we took your numbers that you're saying, Farzad. Basically, you know, an average uh, um, auto worker in California, I think, is like thirty four, thirty five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought maybe a life of seven or eight years for the robot, just being kind of conservative. But then, and so you're like, well, seven times 35,000, that's not a million. But that auto worker doesn't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. So I get to multiply that by that. Plus, I get to put in all the cost savings of hiring and training. So I'm going to go closer to a million and just, Whoa. just, I'll come down a little. I'll go 800,000. I'll go 800,000. Um, um, okay. And with those kind of margins, we did it in the episode. I can't remember any of the numbers I oh my had there, but yeah. it was the margins were insane. The profit yeah. was insane. But this would fit into what Elon said, right? He did say like this part of the business is going to be huge compared to uh, our auto business. Right. And I mean, yeah. the price can come down in the future. Sure. Um, and I mean, maybe what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, we're going to have our, um, you know, kind of like what they did with, um, you know, with the Model 3. They're, they're going to say, hey, we're going to have our standard bot. Uh, but then... Um, you know, there. Well, you can't buy it yet. You can only get the premium bot, and the mm. premium bot is, you know, <laughs> three quarters of a million dollars. Mm. Uh, but someday we're gonna we're gonna be able to sell it for much cheaper. But then by that point, you're gonna be, you know, having to license software from them or something. I have no idea what they're gonna do. Yeah. Tonight, do you? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I think if they do, I would be shocked. Because that that means that it's it's much closer to being sold to the public than I expected. I would have expected them to utilize this thing internally, say at the factories where the bot is helping build cars, or they're using it to prototype the neural nets and kind of getting it ready for it to be sold to other other parties or individual people. Um, so if they do release a price of some sort or some sort of uh, indication towards when they're going to be starting to say in the next 12 months, we expect to have a price ready to be shown to the public so that you can start placing an order for these things. I'm going to be completely floored because that means they're way farther ahead than even I give them credit for. Forget anybody else out there that's looking at the company. Right. So I, I do think though that so the way you guys are approaching the the price, I think makes a lot of sense from just purely supply and demand. If if they're, you're going to be able to, quote unquote, hire a, a bot that's going to be able to do the work of, say, anybody that's doing some sort of physical labor, especially with like, the hands now, you can see, and I'm sure you will learn a lot, a lot about that today, the dexterity and just uh, how, how precise it's going to be is going to be a huge thing for it to do many, many different jobs. But I wonder if before we get, I wonder if 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 we're actually going to get reach a point much earlier than we think where the cost to work is going to go down dramatically because we have the technology to to make it way cheaper than it is today then that could open up a question of okay now we're talking about super serious displacement of work because if you could find a bot and buy it for say 40 grand instead of hiring somebody over the course of 
10 years or eight years for $200,000, $300,000. And by the way, you don't have to pay for medical. And by the way, if it breaks, you just get a new one. And by the way, it works 24 hours. And by the way, it's probably twice faster than the average human, right? You get all these crazy factors. It breaks the equation. It completely breaks the equation. And so from your standpoint, I think it, it, it probably makes more sense to try and figure out how to soften that blow in any, in some way and make, yeah. Well, that leads to my next question, which you kind of dismissed at the beginning. I had said like uh, a, a SaaS model, or in this case, a TAS mm -hmm. model, Tesla mm -hmm. bot as a service. <laughs> um, but I mean, let's just talk about, uh, you know, Tesla could do it as a service model. So they could say, okay, you know, it's $800,000, but that's so much money. So let's just do it on yeah. a monthly subscription basis. Um, and your argument was, Because over the long term, they would monopolize labor. Because then, then if what's you want, wrong with that? I know. Well, <laughs> well, long, but that's really me. long. Term. <laughs> I mean, like we're talking. I mean, there's you know eight yeah. billion people. I'm not going to say that everyone is you know putting in a full nine to five every day. But I mean, just to make a billion robots, and yes, they can build themselves. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's going to take a while to start to seriously displace labor. I mean, I would argue that you know anything from uh, you know, a robot in a factory to just, you know, being able to have a printer at a at an office is going to displace some amount of labor. And I feel like we as a society have been able to weather that so far, um, mm -hmm. you know, from uh, excavators instead of dudes with shovels and picks um, and and, you know, dump trucks instead of probably multiple dudes with, a, you know, a, a cart with a horse. And stuff. You want to hear my ultra prediction? I'm going ultra yeah. here. Oh my God. Yeah. I think Elon's going to announce that you can do kind of like FSD. You can buy a Tesla bot at some price that we think is kind of ridiculous now. Mm. But in the future, he's going to argue, hey, if you were to have bought it now at that price, you would have been really glad you did. Or you can subscribe yeah. at this price. Um, I just think that when he comes out with it, we're going to have the same problem wrapping our heads around it as we are with FSD because we're going to be like, it really doesn't do all the things you say it's going to do yet. Right. And, and I mean, that's going to that be really sense. interesting. That's really interesting, too, because you're going to have this robot. And yes, maybe it's going to be able to uh, paint a house or, you know, uh, lay bricks or something like that. And you're going to go, well, that's really useful. Mm -hmm. um, but can it do X, Y or Z? And for some reason, that's going to be just slightly harder. And right. they won't have set that up yet. Right. Um, where I don't know. I'm trying to think like, oh, well, pressure well, washing is harder because we have to account for the pushback. Well, let's I, talk about I'm that for a second. So Farzad, what do you think would be the low bar here, you know, of what it could do tonight? Like if, if the engineers were coming up with a list of things, what's on the bottom of that list? They're like, yeah, we can definitely do that. What do you think just easy peasy for Tesla bot to do tonight? Uh, handle some sort of uh, boxes or material movement from one place of the factory to the other. To me, that's like the low, lowest hanging fruit. So it's not so much being super delicate or very precise about your hands and say, like, say, say working a screwdriver or working some sort of power tool in any setting and it knows how to use that would be like crazy high bar for me. Like that mm -hmm. would be nuts because that means like the hands just know what to do, which would completely blow my mind. Uh, for me, it's like, so from the setting that I worked at at the, at, at the company, it was, it, I was in distribution. So it was, you know, move, movement of product from one place to another. So as simple as taking a parcel or boxes that were, that are staged to go to a part of the line or go out to one of the dock doors, it knows how to pick up the box. It can read the label on it and it knows where it's supposed to go. And it goes to that place and sets it down and stages in a stage for the person to use. For me, I think that's, 
for me, that's a low bar. I think if the I feel like they should be able to show something or give an indication that something like that could be possible. Because at that point, all your all your and I say all as if this is easy to do, but one 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 of the things you're solving there is just navigation of the bot, and that to me seems simpler than um you know than than handling very unique objects because you just be working with square things, right? Just pick up box, move arms close to the thing, pick it up move it to the other place, use your legs and get there and boom, put it down. That would be my low bar for, for what to expect. What about you guys? Yeah, Jesse, what do you think? What's the low bar tonight? I, I do. I think box I like is that excellent. One. I like that one. It, I mean, warehouse work is, um, it's huge become yeah, sure. and, and was always, um, pretty big. Uh, it's a, it's a, and, and pretty easy to make robots for. And I mean, we've seen, obviously there are robots that, uh, work in, in warehouses you know and we've they're they're designed a little bit differently than than uh, a humanoid right they're the uh, like the kiva amazon robots mm -hmm. that you know autonomously do whatever however you do um you know running an amazon warehouse and getting me something the next day when i or put you know put in that uh, order on amazon um but then that humanoid like you're saying can do a lot more edge case tasks where normally right now we have humans uh, dealing with it um so, I mean, like, and I mean, it, obviously Amazon warehouse is slightly different than what you're talking about where it's just boxes, but mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice because the robot is never leaving the premises. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're going to be staying in the factory. Mm -hmm. Um, now you don't need bathrooms mm -hmm. and you can stop having those mean articles written about. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like that's well, great. Yeah, what are you talking you about? No longer you can also paying in bottles, you know, like you can also get rid of parking lots. You can get rid of um, yep. the cafeteria, like yep. a whole you bunch can, of things go the break away. room. Yeah. Yeah. And the factory becomes way more dense too, right? Any, yep. any space that you're on where you have to, uh, accommodate OSHA requirements, right? Safety becomes almost mm. like secondary because so like the density you get from a space where you have no humans working, the reason why we have space is so that humans don't die, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the reason why we have vertical limits is so that people don't die. So we don't have a uh, something that's unstable that could potentially be, you know, hit by an earthquake and then you got pallets falling on people's heads and it's a catastrophe, right? Mm. It becomes... So you think of a space right now, say like Fremont factory as an example, or any fact, even the gigafactories, it's probably maybe from a unit, like a volume perspective, maybe five to 10% occupied from physical things. If it's, uh, if it's completely automated, even with the bots, you can probably get that thing to 40, 50%. So the, the amount of stuff that you can push out of that building that can get done two, three, four, five X's just by the function of removing humans from that, from that spot. So it's not even just, it, it's, it's way more profound. Another buzzword. It's more, more, way more profound than it seems because it just changes every single equation that could ever be applied to making stuff. And yeah. it's completely wild. You know, it's completely and utterly wild. I feel like Farzad's misleading me on these buzzwords, by the way, because later we are going to have a drinking game later involving <laughs> buzzwords. And I feel like he's feeding me ones that aren't going to be. These are not yeah. Elon buzzwords. I don't think me. he's. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm on to you. All right. But I want to talk about OSHA for a second. Well, hang on. That was well, something that I hadn't considered. Because, okay. I mean, what oh, you're yeah. saying is absolutely right. And I uh, for time, I worked in a small factory and so much of what you did in that factory was determined by OSHA in terms mm. of, you know, having to tape out lines on the floor. Yeah. And this is where the, the, um, you know, 
the forklifts are going to be going through and you can't be there and you have to pay attention and all this stuff. If oh, you so you're a, saying that basically a Tesla bot could get hurt, you know, quote yeah, unquote, and it's not a big deal. So no more we can, OSHA. We can go back to the um, <laughs> like, they'll never know, make when mistakes, we had children right? working in the mills. And <laughs> those are the good like, old days. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. You know, <laughs> lock those doors. Tiny Tim had his, you know, arm crushed in the machine and it was like, all right, well. You're not working here anymore. Uh, it's the same thing with, I mean, I have no idea if that's like going to help productivity if if you're not intentionally, but if you're neg more negligent with these robots. Um, obviously, I feel like that speeds things up with humans until, yeah. of course, somebody inevitably yeah. gets hurt and then there's lawsuits and then there's, but with uh, with a Tesla bot, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Good right. point. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. They would never make the mistakes, right? That's the thing is that forget even safety. That the reason why OSHA exists is because humans make mistakes. And, and like it, exactly like a ninety-nine plus percent of work workplace injuries or deaths are are because the workplace is not conducive to a human making a mistake. And so if you remove the human aspect of mistakes, safety is not even an issue. And that's, you know, like Ashok and those guys from Tesla are talking about a car that never will never crash. That's really what it means is we're removing the, the variable that's going to cause the error. So like safety doesn't even become a part of the equation. It just gets eliminated entirely because there'll be no mistakes made, you know, outside of outside of, say, an earthquake or some sort of natural disaster that would just completely destroy the structure. Uh, mistakes won't be made. Unless the, everything's programmed incorrectly, which at that point, safety is not the issue. It's a complete uh, mismanagement of, you know, how you've allocated that cost to solve that specific problem. Colton has a good chat here. He says the bots could mine coal, work the meatpacking plant or build Sorry. underwater or uh, oil pipelines. Um, and that's a really good point. Um, that's right. Those are all the jobs that no one really wants to do. If well, they can let's help talk it. about dangerous jobs. I mean, there are a lot of you know uh, we we've been talking more tedious and somewhat dangerous jobs um where you are moving physical things around and stuff can get dropped and stuff like that but there are jobs that are just inherently very dangerous yes like bear wranglers <laughs> well i mean uh lumberjacks lumberjacks uh yeah. you know the fisherman fisherman is really i mean you kind of think fishermen and robots don't go well together but i mean they don't get cold mm -hmm. i mean they might maybe the batteries get cold but i mean if they're on a boat you'd have a tether mm -hmm. And that would also be feeding them power. So mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, it, would it take some extra engineering work to make a fisherman robot um, and and get the access? Will they right? swear like fishermen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> hope so. <laughs> I hope they put some effort into that. But I mean, are, uh, is that a, are we thinking that that's going to uh, eventually happen? That's, I'm curious. Yeah, yes. I, I do think so. Yeah. What do you think, Zach? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's, not the low-hanging fruit, because it's obviously hard to make an underwater pipeline repairing robot, but it's the low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, selling it, right? Because those, not only do those employees get paid a lot, but right, there's so many rules and regulations, there's only so many hours they can work. So yeah, if you could have them painting bridges or uh, wrangling bears or any of those really tough jobs, that would be fantastic. But I do think that those are got to be down the road. I, that leads me to my next question, which is, okay, Farzad, Jesse, you're on the engineering team. Elon has tasked you with doing this tonight. Your low bar was moving boxes. I completely agree with that. Mm. Next up on your list, if you say had three list, you know, three tiers, what's the middle tier where you're like, we could probably do this if we had enough time. So specifically 
this is for the show. This is for the show. If if this is going to be in any way exciting right. and so, they're going to have robots So Elon around, walked in, he heard okay. your box idea, and he's like, yeah. well, that's great, guys. Thanks. But uh, I need it to be a little more exciting than that. I have a pretty simple one. Okay. Um, it does, It's not going to take a lot of coding, but okay. it, we are going to have to throw away a prototype. Okay. And that is a robot that sacrifices itself Ooh. for a human dummy. So in a car, it's a car crash dummy? Either a car crash dummy or just like... Like just a sack of potatoes kind of dummy. And, it, you know, there's like a big swinging arm or something dangerous, you Whoa. know, a big train that's coming. Uh. And the robot can go like, no. And then it gets smashed. And we're like, oh, it's, so it just stands. Die. So it stands at a train crossing. And its only job is to make sure that it pushes someone I, off I the mean, tracks. It's just, you know, I love so, it. I'm trying to think of, of the right it. thing. But if they if you had Damn. some kind of scenario yeah. where you could show. These things are expendable. Stop feeling sorry for wow. it. Stop feeling like it's a human. It's humanoid, but it's not a human. So it's okay if it gets crushed and destroyed. It's just money. It's not yeah. trauma. It's not people. I like that. It's Whoa. a robot. So it's sacrifice bot. I mean, it would be really cool if it jumps in front of a bullet. Ooh. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool? That would be. <laughs> Timing-wise, it's a little tricky, but how neat would that be? Mm -hmm. They have a, you know, they Man. don't have the robot hold... They don't have another robot with a gun. That would freak people out. But they <laughs> yes, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and I hope it does. It, I hope it's not jumping in front of Elon. Well, yeah. that would be that would be insane. That would be insane <laughs> if you wanted publicity. Because yeah. if that goes say, wrong, <laughs> yeah, I would say that that what's really interesting about what you just brought. Well, first, that's the medium case. So I can't even wait to hear what your like high bar case is going to be. <laughs> oh shit! Excuse me. Holy crap! Um, <laughs> I don't want to be the first to curse, but I already did. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> apologies, everybody, and your kids. The medium case of of the, so what's interesting is that the bot would then have to decide that the action it's doing it's not going to be it's going to be uh, better for the human than it than the thing that's happening. So if it's like pushing the human out from the train tracks, it has to calculate then says that if I push this human forward, it, the, the probability of injury or of death is x is x, and then if train hits human, it's I don't know a hundred percent. So mm -hmm. then it would also need to know within the context of what's happening to the human that the action it's going to do, it's going to be less harmful to the human that whatever's happening. So right. like it, it, the amount of calculations that are happening in that bot right there, it's like completely insane. So it's always aware of what's happening, right? And, um, and I mean, Elon's a nerd and he's definitely read like iRobot and, uh, oh, yeah. and Asimov's uh, Three uh, Laws of Robotics. Mm -hmm. um, and like... I know that all of Asimov's uh, short stories about robots have to do with like the three laws not like working properly. But I just feel like it's the kind of thing that Elon would show off where like they where he's like, and the three laws of robotics works. That yeah. would be weird. I don't think that they're there yet. I don't think that computers really work in the way that Asimov like wrote. You can't just like tell a, a, a you know robot to like not hurt people like that's. That's a neural net wise. That's like a really hard thing to just like have as a blanket statement. Why? Uh, at the moment, it's hard. In the future, it could work. Okay. But I'm saying right to, tonight, I don't think that he's going to like hand the the robot a gun and be like, you know, shoot me. And then it'd be like, I was going to shoot you. But the first law of robotics means I cannot. You don't think from day one you need to bake that in? It's not. There's nothing to bake in because that's not how computers work. You can't do it that way. Huh. It doesn't know what a human is. You have to, you're going to yeah. have to teach it. And I don't think that it knows right now.
Oh, you don't think I it almost... knows by now? Hmm. Uh oh. I always want to say like the the interaction of bot and human in any way, shape, or form to try and make the human safer than than they would be seems like an incredibly dicey scenario. And I don't know how long Tesla would would take until they're comfortable doing that. Because you again, like you have to ensure that anything the bot does, if it's acting within that context, it has to be a hundred percent of the time a better outcome than whatever was going to happen. And so what what are right. what are the implications? It could be as simple as like walking down the road, right? And then and say there is like a like a like a banana peel. I don't know. It's freaking Mario Kart now. We're driving mm -hmm. around and there's a banana peel on the road, and the bot's like, "Holy shit! I need to push you to the side of the road or so, the side of the uh, side of the sidewalk because I don't want you to step on this banana peel." Right. But if they if it pushes them along and then a human acts erratically, I don't know. They elbow them in the face or something. Then that's a huge lawsuit. Oh my god, you broke my tooth. The freaking bot yeah. made me break my teeth. It gets super super hairy. Right. Um, but but well, this is a human thinking about it, right? So maybe I'm right. not thinking about it like a computer would. Well, and here's an interesting question. Uh, Bork Floyd brought up, um, he says, uh, do you think that robots should be programmable by owners? So that would mean that if mm. I bought this robot override and then I said, oh, great, because we we uh, work at a meatpacking plant. So, OK, robot, here is your very, very sharp knife. Um, here is a lot of meat around you. I want you to be cutting up the meat. Obviously, it's not how you program it, but it's, you know, and then if, uh, you know, coworker human Steve walks over. And obviously it's not scanning it and being like, that is meat. But if it gets confused, um, does he does the robot grab coworker Steve and start to That's why I say that you have to bake it in day one to not hurt humans. Right. But that's not you can't do that. That's you can't just say you have to first identify what a human right, is. Right. Well, that's to, doing that right now. They've been they've been training right, it for a month. I don't or think though. that they're there today. Tonight. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know. Be. I would say I would say if if object looks like human, do not interact with it under any circumstance. Mm -hmm. is what I would That's write into start. the code. Mm. That is yeah. so there'll be no dancing. There'll okay. be no. I mean, you can dance like ten foot away or something. You know, yeah. like you can create like create some distance between yourself and the human. Yeah. Um, forest, forest firefighting. Forest I see firefighting. a comment. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good one. good one. It is good. Well, I was thinking about this too. Um, so you have the robot right in to do firefighting or whatever. First of all any sort of firefighting you can lose robots right like you're usually when you're, when you're sending a firefighter to do something extra dangerous it's mm -hmm. usually to save another human right um and then you're always in at this crossroads as, as a as a fire department or as a fire chief do i send in uh, a guy right. to go try and rescue or do i lose both guys if i do that uh, yeah am i creating more casualties right. by sending but if it's a robot and they can be um have you seen those firefighting grenades they're like heat activated little uh, bombs that they don't like explode with a lot of force, but they uh, are have a bunch of like fire retardant on them. Mm -hmm. So you could have a um, not a suicide bomber, but a, uh, <laughs> you know, you could strap a bunch of these. Uh, Do you yeah. want the live stream to go dead? <laughs> you can have a basically a bunch of these uh, good grenades, you know, fire fighting, fire suppression, of, fire, it's fire suppression. suppression things yes. and it could just run into the building right and i mean yeah yeah it sacrifices it's, and yeah it's thirty thousand dollars but i mean it's so, expensive to send firefighters to do almost anything yeah. and if that you know if that robot can then run into the room and well, grab I the think, baby and i run think out. you have your second level then tonight if there was a fake fire or a real Ooh, fire yeah, yeah. and it runs in and sacrifices yeah. itself and puts out the fire right that would be great 
that'd be Farzad, Farzad what's it, your second level? I don't know if we've gotten yeah, there yeah. yet with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really, by the way, that firefighter thing is such a good idea. Such a good idea because you t totally could do that. The amount of cost you would offset by doing that is insane. And billions of dollars of damage could be potentially like all the fire, you know, all the fires that happen in California and Texas and all these other places. Like these eventually reach homes and businesses. And think about the air quality and the health impacts of that. If you're able in any way to slow down or eliminate that threat, that saves so much money to society, right? So that's like a huge, huge, huge win. Um, for me, the mid-level, the mid-level would be if the bot is able, we were talking about this in the community forum uh, earlier today. The If the bot is able to say like a cleaning a toilet type thing, but it's not just cleaning a toilet or using its hands in any pre precise way with a uh, like a, like a pre-programmed motion like every other bot is, is that you would give it multiple types of things. Like I'll use, I'll use a power tool as an example. You give it four or five different types of power tools. It knows how to handle the power tool and it knows how to line it up with a screw in four or five different formats and it knows how to change the heads and it can do that. And it knows how to do that because it's learned how to do that through an algorithm of some sort. That, that for me is mid-tier and it will be kind of nuts if they're able to do that. Um, wow. Because you think about the, I really think there is a lot, the, the, the picture of the hands from today uh, mm. that we saw yesterday, I think the fact that they've invested so much money and time, this is what Tesla does, right? They identify a problem regardless of how hard or difficult or how much money it's going to take or how much effort it's going to take or the expertise required. They're like, hey, this is a problem that needs to be solved. So we're going to solve it. What's the one we got to solve right now? Hands, because hands are, you know, these are beautiful things that have created literally everything we've ever had as human beings. So we need to fix this and or we need to solve for this. So if you're able to solve for that, then you can literally do anything. And if they're able to do something like that, which really nothing else can really do, right? Like picking up a power tool and using it, cleaning a toilet. Um, I don't know, like hammering a nail. Just think of anything that would require to use a precision with your hands. Um, if they're able to showcase something like that, it would be mine. And that would be my mid tier. That would be my mid tier level. I um, love that. But I don't yeah. even, I don't even know if we're going to get there though. Cause that's, that's, but like, why wouldn't we get there if they're hyping up these hands so much, right? Like that's what those hands will be able to do. You're, you know? Yeah. I think you hit it there and it would also allow vacuuming. Yeah. If you can, if you exactly. can use your hands, you can vacuum. Well, I, and it is so interesting that they've invested clearly in hands as opposed to oh, replaceable appendages. Cause I mean, part of me is like i'm just thinking nail gun hands right. you know where it's like it's working on a construction site and one of one hand is a hand and the other hand might be a hand but it might also have you know a you know where it folds its hand down it just shoots out nails or something i i love being able to search for kids hiding under beds in a fire that's a great idea oh yeah yeah that's a great one that's a yeah. really really good one it, the, the one thing we also talked about too is like imagine Imagine if the bot, like, I'm curious to see how they have the wrist. If the wrist can turn 360 degrees, you know, like mm, this way on the, mm. on the whatever, you make every, every drill obsolete because all you need is a screwdriver or whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. And you put it into the thing and your wrist starts sort of like rotating, yeah. right? But then think about the upstream supply chain implications for that. That entire supply chain gets obsolete. You don't need drills anymore over time. Mm. So wh what does that mean upstream as well? And how many different applications can this sort of, uh, change in how we approach work have on how we think about business period like it's not just like oh it can turn its wrist 360 degrees it's oh my god every single drill is obsolete every single blah is obsolete you know yeah i think farzad you've hit it right there if if they get the hands operating tonight there's really 
so many things. We could have a restaurant worker, like so that's wait staff, that's cooking meals, like that's all yeah. possible. We have home work, like vacuuming, cleaning, uh, cleaning windows, all sorts of things like that. We even have childcare. I mean, possibly. This would be my third tier, actually, so I'll get to that later. But um, I was thinking, if you can do hands, I think you're right about the hammering nails and stuff. I think that you could then do a lot of construction jobs. So that would mean roofer, for example, which is a really, I think it's the the most um, injury-prone job. And so if you could have, say, just roofers, mm-hmm. that would be huge. Right. And that, I mean, I know that involves climbing a ladder, but like if they can climb a ladder and use right. a nail gun, that would be amazing. Right. Yeah. No, it's, no I mean, that's so like, what if tonight notes. there's a bunch of two by fours and a two <laughs> and a Tesla bot comes out with a nail gun and starts to build a wall behind if Elon. there was a like, small group of them. Oh, my God. And by and the so end by of the, the thing, the there's the a night. little house framed. <laughs> that I would mean, be come on. That That'd would be, be completely nuts. It completely nuts. So Even nuts. if it's pre-programmed to do that. Right. Because I think there's two levels there. So mm. if they're pre-programmed to do that, it, it in itself would be amazing because you're showing that the bot has its dexterity and the capability of handling something that is basically impossible to be handled by anything else because it doesn't have that dexterity with his hands. If it was able to do that because it saw someone build a house and it said, okay, that's the motion to build the house, then it's like completely bananas. Like yeah. take it, take me to the freaking moon. Like that's, now, be, and honestly, we're, that's, yeah. we're getting, we're getting yeah. close here and oh, 18, 18 minutes, minutes away. Now, so uh, nice. everyone hit the like button. If you would just take a couple seconds, hit that like button. Um, I'm and, so glad we're getting so many great chats. And before here. we get to our third level, which is going to be off the charts. Yeah. Here, I just want to give a plug for our sponsor tonight, sparrowworldwide.org. They're giving away a Tesla model S plaid. Uh, they've only sold 25% of their raffle tickets. And this is a really good cause. They help people in uh, Afghan people get out of the country that need to get out of the country. So because they were allies. To- they were allies of ours. We yeah. need to help them. For 150 bucks. you can help a family and possibly win a Model S Plaid. They've only sold 25% of their tickets. So head on over. We have the link down in our show notes below to sparrowworldwide.org. And uh, you'll be able to have a chance to win a Tesla Model S. They're only selling 5,000 tickets. And they've only sold. 25% of them right now. So you do the math. The odds of winning are really good. Um, and I just also want to give a shout out to Corporate Streams. Noah and his crew are the ones running this tonight. They're doing a fantastic job. I I could not put up all the stuff on the screens and switch screens. <laughs> yeah. And if I asked Jesse to do it, he would have left by now. So yeah. thank you so much to Noah and the crew for doing all this tonight. And if you guys ever need this kind of work done, I mean, he does this for top-notch companies. I don't know why he's doing it for us, but he does it for top-notch companies all over the world. Um, and so if you need this kind of work done, reach out to Corporate Streams because they can do it for you. Heck yeah. And make sure you go, for those on my channel, make sure you go to Now You Know if you're not subscribed to them yet. Make sure you go there. Check out every single thing that they just talked about on their description. And yeah, thank you guys very much for uh, for plugging that stuff. Awesome. Yeah, and we love your channel. So same thing, guys. If you're a Now You Know fan and you haven't seen Farzad yet, go over to his channel, Farzad Mazbahi. He has fantastic content fantastic community that's why we're we love talking to him because mm-hmm. it just feels like we've met our like long lost brother <laughs> yeah, or something. talking yeah. that's exactly how i feel honestly <laughs> like when the, the both times that i talked to you guys my biggest takeaway especially the first time we chatted on on your channel when we did the the talking tesla i was like man it's so easy to talk to these guys like i feel like <laughs> i know these guys so well already and we're just like over some stupid camera in front of me and i'm like why why these guys sound so like welcoming and nice like i feel yeah. like i could talk to these guys about anything you know so yeah, yeah it's, it's been truly a pleasure truly a pleasure man seriously you won't think that later tonight but after we've been talking <laughs> to each other for five hours <laughs> <Yeah. see. laughs>
Uh, what if you can install Tesla solar tiles or panels? That's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah have them up in the roof. Construction, definitely. Great one. And uh, Steven says, high end, uh, build a wall from a random stack of wood, tools, and sundry supplies. I mean, yes. If there was no programming, like they had to just figure it out. Yeah, that'd be nuts. And if Elon at the at, at that moment was like, no, you know, put the window over there. <laughs> <laughs> Two inches to the left. Uh, I mean, I think... I think it's a little pie in the sky at the moment, but I mean, well, let's talk pie in the sky. So you're the engineers again. You've been given this task. You just pitched Elon your second tier idea, which I think sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. But he's like, you know what, guys, you still got five hours left. Uh, let's see. What, <laughs> let's see what you let's can make. We'll let's delay go. it. I'll, you know what? I'll delay it a little bit. Right. And I'll, what can you program up for? Yeah, me? Uh, I've got That's some steel balls delayed. here. That's why it's at 615 now. It's because <laughs> of that. Because what's exactly. about to happen. Yeah. So what can you guys do in this remaining few hours I've given you? What what can we do that's just so over the top that everyone will be talking about it tomorrow? Go. Uh, what's go on first? your list? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that we're... I'll, I'll go first. How's this? Give yeah, you guys yeah, yeah, an yeah. extra okay, second. Yeah. Yeah. I've, already, I've been dreaming about this nonstop. I already okay. know okay. mine. I already know mine. But you go. Okay, good. You're ready to go. Position. Okay, so yeah. curtain comes up behind Elon. It's a Tesla bot rock band. There are five members in this band. There's a drummer, guitar player, bass player, keyboardist, and lead singer. Well, I don't know if there's a lead singer because I can't sing yet probably. But uh, maybe he's playing uh, you know, saxophone. And you're probably wondering how he's playing saxophone because you're like, he has no mouth. Well, they put a, like an air compressor in him. That's how they do it. Anyway, that's my dream. It's a Tesla bot rock band. That would make news worldwide tomorrow. <laughs> Perfect marketing. Jesse, you want to go or you want me to go? What do you, you think? Go. I go. Yeah. So for me, honestly, the and I and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but if the bot can watch a human do a task, and then it, they walk us through the process of how it learns. So for example, if the the power tool example, right? Let's let's say I was talking about before, if it's pre-programmed to do that, that would be mid tier. If uh, somebody, if they call somebody from the from the current, like, hey, can you uh, can you come up and teach this bot how to uh, use a power tool? Just listen to the commands, and the bot's like. Um, please pick up the power tool. And then it watches you to that. It's like, okay, could you please do it again from a different angle? And you just do it like two or three times. Okay, could you uh, could you operate the power tool, whatever that means? So, you know, like put it into the screw and then screw it in. Okay, please, could you do that again 10 times? Okay, cool. And now the bot's like, could I try it now? Sure. You put the thing back down, the bot goes through the motion, and then it will say, how did I do? And then the human will kind of like take it back and show them how to do it better. If they can show some sort of thing where you can teach the bot to do anything, that mm. would completely blow my mind. Like that, that would be the game changer. Because long term, you think about if the bot's truly going to be the, at the say at the first level, the replacer of boring, repetitive, or, or dangerous jobs, you need to have a way to do those jobs. What's the best way to teach a bot how to do that? Have humans teach it how to do it. Do you have the hardware necessary to do that? Yeah, just cameras. You can sort of identify each individual finger. The megapixel should be uh, good enough. And you know, the bot can just get closer to your hands and see how you're doing it. Mm -hmm. It becomes purely a software problem. What is Tesla becoming a, a crazy expert at right now? Software through Dojo and AGI. So like, and I don't know, again, this is like my pie in the sky, crazy sort of thing for today. If they're able to show that today, it's over. It's over. It's completely over. And uh, at that point, I, I'm going to be questioning why no one would have it in their model immediately uh, for the for, say for the stock or whatever else what Tesla's going to do, because that 
that is that is the holy grail of of having an abundant future is having bots that can do anything and that would be the mechanism how they would learn i would think otherwise it becomes way too much way too yeah. difficult of a, of a problem i love that one that would be i mean you're absolutely right now we're the live stream seems to be kind of kicking off here a little nice. bit we're getting some pretty colors Red colors Ooh. Ooh, pretty colors nice you guys do your shrooms yet or no I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's later we gotta save that all right <laughs> so I mean, we're getting a lot of. Uh, well, wait, you you had your top idea. Dude, that's Farza. That yours is so good. I don't you, even want to do mine anymore. Really? Yeah. Come on. Well, well then up it. it. Let's up it. What? Go even higher than you were thinking. Let's let's come on, dude. I mean, I was thinking like, oh, it'd be like doing trapeze or parkour or something. Okay. But like, you know, we've okay. seen parkour and we've seen dancing and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know why I was thinking that that was like my level three when we were talking about like building houses and stuff. But yeah, if he could learn through, dude, that's yeah, that's serious because I mean, the the only other option um, that it if, if, if it couldn't learn from from like a human, like a normal human who does that job, then you need specialized teams of people who are going to be like what going through the labor market and just like trying to program a uh, Tesla bot to do stuff. So you'd have like big groups of engineering firms who not only have to like do the job really well, you know, you want to, you want to find like some of the best, you know, uh, fishermen or lumberjacks or something like that. They need to know how to do something where, you know, you, you're going to have to bring in uh, highly skilled craftsmen, but then also uh, program it all up. And so like, is Tesla just going to be expanding uh, like programmers into into the wild reaches of the world. Um, so, I mean, learning by itself is, it does seem like eventually it's going to need to do that. All right. I want to ask you, Farzad and Jesse, if tonight at the end of the presentation, do you think there's any chance that Elon will say, and now you can reserve one, that there'll be a button or <laughs> like you can go to your Tesla account and reserve one. What do you think the, the chances are that that would happen tonight? Even though I know it won't be available tonight, but like reserve one for, you know, a year from now or whatever. What, what do you think the chances are? I'm going to say 5%. Okay. Really low percentage. What do you think? I'm going to go higher. I'm going to go maybe 50-ish percent. 50 percent wow. chance that he says you can reserve one you can tonight reserve it i mean hey they they've reserved things for years right okay years and okay. years well let's just go with that for a second let's just okay. say that there's a button folks and and you know put this in the chat too you guys who are watching <laughs> if 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 he says tonight that you can reserve one uh, how much would you be willing to put down? Because he's probably not going to say a hundred bucks ref refundable deposit. Right. He's probably going to put like when it was the, I just want to remind you when it was the Roadster, it was $50,000. Yeah. So if he said $50,000 to reserve one, would you do it? It's a lot of money. I wouldn't personally do it mostly because I don't have $50,000 <laughs> lying around. Um, would companies do it? Is that, is that like a question? Yeah, like because big... I mean, Pepsi and Walmart, they did it for the, for the semi truck. For the semi truck. Right. I mean, but they know what a truck is. Sure. You know, they're like, oh, it's a semi truck. And he just gave us the numbers. They have employees mm -hmm. for sure, but they don't have robotic employees. Mm -hmm. Not too many companies uh, have 25,000. We're hearing some people would pay 25,000. Okay. Farzad, would you put, would you, would you, you know, take the college would... fund and, and, all that I would stuff think about 25. I would totally think about 25. About 25. I, I do. Yeah, because I think like. Now, that's the, not the cost of the bot. No, no, that's just the reservation. We don't know the price. 
I'll figure it out. That's that's one okay. of those things. I'll, that's like the Farzad med, med, like like method of like, ah, oh, that seems like it has really good potential. I'll, I'm sure I'll figure it out, which has worked out and hasn't worked out. So it's like a 50-50 sort of thing for me, but I li- live life on the edge, I guess. Um, now, now he- yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please, please, please. No, so I was wondering what tonight would you have to see that would make you go immediately to your stock account and buy more stock? If there's a certain like... If it comes out and it doesn't wow you, you're probably going to be like, yeah, whatever. I kind of thought they're going to do that anyway. But is there something it would do tonight where you go, oh, I am going to buy some more stock? And people think, in the chat, please put what you would, what you want to see for you to buy more stock. How about you, That's Jesse? a really good question. Yeah, what do you, what do you guys right. think? I mean, screw the $25,000 uh, for the reservation. <laughs> right. uh, just just go uh, heavy into the uh, into the stock. I mean, uh, it, regardless of, of what's going to happen, it's going to be a long-term play, right? Like, it's going to be a long-term play. Sure. If, if, if you're thinking of buying stock tomorrow, uh, can you buy stock tomorrow? No, it's Saturday. So no. Monday. So you're going to be sitting on this all weekend going like, man, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, if I see a, if I see one walk out on stage, that's all it would take. Yeah. It all, all has to do is walk out on stage. Pretty much. Okay. How about you, I'd... Farzad? What do you think? What does that have to do for you get excited about the stock price? I mean, I think that the way I think, so the way I think about it is like, okay, how am I positioned right now with, with the Tesla stock within my entire portfolio? And I'm like, okay, so I'm very happy with where I'm at. Uh, when, when I find ways to buy more stock, I do. But if it's like, the way I think about it is like, if it forces me to have to buy stock, like say I, I want to take out a loan against the house or do something crazy, not financial advice, please do not listen to anything I say from this respect. <laughs> but if I'm, if I'm going outside of my regular means of trying to purchase stock, if it does the mid-tier level of handling a power tool and it's capable of displaying some sort of dexterity where the hands are truly the, different, the differentiator and it can be shown that it can do things that human can that are, are very difficult or impossible for any other robot, I would strongly consider trying to figure out and convince my wife to to figure out how to like dump a ton of money into the shares because that's <laughs> that that's the profound and then if it goes into like it knows it can learn by just visualizing i'm selling everything i have and just living on Tesla stock. <laughs> i'll live under a bridge i don't care now conversely conversely we know what happened the last time at ai day a lot of people just thought because right. he had a dancing robot a lot of the news was just like what is this it's a joke what do you think the chances are that on saturday um the news is going to come out that this is just another waste of time joke event that crazy elon that guy. crazy elon this is not going anywhere he can't do yeah. it yeah it depends it depends how um yeah i don't know i think that the chances of that are, are likely high because the the mark i don't know the market just doesn't doesn't seem to understand how important some of these things are for tesla's long-term growth and their long-term ambitions and how the company has seemingly just over and over again set sets quote unquote impossible goals and reaches them over time they're always late but they they hit them you know they, they have mm-hmm. a track record a record of doing that and it doesn't seem like the market learns and and the fact that the that the news in the market is so heavily dominated by macro right now and you know you got everybody on russia russia ukraine as they should you know, there's a lot of noise around that. I think it just gets lost in the weeds oh, as just another. I'm, I'm sorry, Farzad, to interrupt <laughs> you, but oh, oh, uh, we oh have a Tesla bot here. <laughs> wow. uh, thank you, Tesla bot. Thank you very Great much. Great timing. Uh, you shake hands. Oh, look, I programmed it to shake hands. I'm hey, going to go buy some where, stock right now. Class? Look at that. Uh, Tesla bot, get Jesse a shot. Oh, <laughs> oh you, thank you. Very, wow. uh, so, Man. Farzad, this starts our uh, next part of the, the program, which is uh, you have to pick some kind of keyword for me. I'm going to pick one for you. And every time Elon says it, in the uh, presentation, we're going to take a, a, a sip. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be sipping Tesla Kila. Nice. Uh, are you going to be too? I'm going to be sipping uh, it. Oh, okay. Listen, so I'm a I'm, lightweight. All right. All right. So I'm. We got two shot glasses okay. here. Um, <laughs> a sip means like a tenth of this. Right. I don't think. Yeah. Well, Otherwise, the live the stream is going to quickly right. turn into nothing. You're going to want right. to watch. So, um, have you picked your your code word for us? I have, but I haven't. I don't know how how mean I want to be. Right. Oh, I don't know if be I mean. Wanna... Be mean. Be, be mean. mean. Okay. Yeah. Uh, does, well, it can't can be Tesla a... bot. <laughs> Okay. No, it has to be a, it has to be like a phrase. Yeah, it's oh, it has to be, be a phrase. Yeah. Well, or, I mean, more than one word because it's got to be not like the or Tesla. Right? Yeah, right. of yeah, course, yeah. of course, of course. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna say this is profound. Oh, nice. oh, we have an extra one. Thank you, thank you, Tesla Bot. Yeah. See, Tesla Bot is go very good. It knew that I wanted a, a shot glass, and it got me another yeah. one. This is wow. Yeah, it's That's learning. Great. It's learning. <laughs> Amazing. Be very uh, afraid. <laughs> uh this is profound is going to be mine does that count this is, this profound. is profound okay yeah. this, is profound. <laughs> this is going off the rails yeah. real fast okay yeah we're <laughs> going look we're just we're just trying to keep it fun and light here uh oh, i yeah. think we should choose order of magnitude yeah 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 okay i think you're okay. screwed because you're screwed, I, I feel Probably. like he's gonna say yeah. order of magnitude <laughs> yeah. a lot if my yeah, clothes Mike start Wiseman. coming off i apologize <laughs> I, I had an, an advance are we yeah. gonna uh prep the glasses here yeah we'll prep the glasses so I'm drinking. I just for y'all that are might be interested in the drink of choice today. Uh, I'm drinking uh, Dogfish Head Hazy O IPA. It's one of my favorite um, IPAs. I want you to Delicious. hear this actually. Oh, <laughs> it's a accidental gluggle. It's not probably not accidental. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. Huh? There you go. All right. That sounds. Bubbles go back. Should we do a uh, should we do a uh, pre-show? Watching, hit the like button. Um, if you're on our channel as well, YouTube algorithm. People live. You have their minds blown as. Cheers, y'all. Smooth. Hop into any. I think that. Link in. And all the sensors. Coming. Look. Messages from folks. That That's from all yeah. the like. I'm liking it so much. Yeah. <laughs> It better um, be. 
I think this is just the internet as people are starting to come on to the Tesla streams and stuff like that. Yeah. So I yeah, uh, I think, right. yeah, I think it's the Tesla part. Yeah. Um, so anyway, if if it's laggy for you, sorry, we're going to be uh, this is all getting recorded. So it, it, you'd be able to see it tomorrow. I thought of something that if Tesla bot can do this tonight, I think is going to blow the world's mind. OK. Walking around with a. Yep, I've, I've had give me a massage. All the fingers wow. and all that. Um, <laughs> For me, dude, like if if clothes, bro, just fold my clothes. Oh, yeah. Somebody, I tend to be. My wife would tell you I could get way better, which I agree. You know, just do laundry, um, stuff like that. And I, and I really, that's that's what I really be looking forward to on, on this sort of event is like, okay, we know it's going to be focused. I, I mean, at least I think it's going to be focused primarily from an industrial aspect. How can it help businesses lower costs? How can it help businesses uh, improve their oh. safety? You know, things Are like we... that. Let's see what we got. We see a yeah. hand. Uh, yeah, our <laughs> lagging. Uh... Yeah, so it, this is a picture of the hand. People doing, are filing in. Uh, yeah. Is that the I love you symbol? Oh, and then the heart. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, um, we're starting. Perfect. Wow. Wait, is this Early. on time? On time. Perfectly on time. What? All right. Showtime. Uh, I do want to set some expectations with respect to uh, our... Optimus robot. Um, as, as you know, last year it was just a person in a robot suit. Uh, but uh, we've now we've come a long way, and it's, uh, I think, we've, you know, compared to that, it's going to be very impressive. Uh, and um, we're going to talk about uh, the advancements in AI for full self driving, uh, as well as how they apply to, uh, more generally, to real world AI problems like a humanoid robot and, and uh, even going beyond that. Um, I think there's some potential that what we're doing here at, at Tesla could uh, make a meaningful contribution to uh, AGI. Um, and entity to do it from a governance standpoint, because we're a publicly traded company with, with one class. The public controls Tesla, and I think that's actually a good thing. You can fire me. This is important. <laughs> Maybe I've gone crazy. So we're going to talk a lot about um, our progress in AI, autopilot, as well as our progress uh, in uh, with with Dojo, and then uh, we're going to bring the team out and uh, do a long Q and A. So you can ask tough questions, um, whatever you'd like, uh, existential questions, technical questions. Uh, but we're, we want to have uh, as much time for. Q&A as possible. So uh, let's see, with that, you guys want to say anything? Hey guys, I'm Milan, I work on Autopilot and the Tesla bot. And I'm Lizzie, a mechanical engineer on the project as well. Okay, um, so should we, should we bring out the bot? Before we do that, right. we have one, one little bonus tip for the day. This is actually the first time we try this robot without any backup support cranes 
Mechanical mechanisms, no cables, nothing. Yeah. I want to do it with you guys tonight, but it's the first time. Once so let's see. You ready? Let's go. go. Okay, so they've, in one year, they've built this. What? How long did it take Boston Dynamics to do that? Right? Dancing, check. I know, right? <laughs> Tesla cars, by the way. This is the... So the robot can actually do a lot more than we just showed you. We just didn't want it to fall on its face. Uh, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll show you some videos now of the robot doing a bunch of other things. Um, Close the screen, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we wanted to show a little bit more what we've done over the yeah. past few months with the pod. And just walking around and dancing on stage. Uh, just humble. The autopilot neural networks running as is. Wow. That's yeah. my wow. watering can. That's yeah, when, crazy. You, when you see a rendered view, that's that's the robot. What's the that's the identifying objects. Like, this is the object it should pick up, picking it up. Um, yeah. We use the same process well. as we did. And it works that we didn't deploy on the robot. Batteries I really like try to nail down in a few months, over the next few months, I would say, uh, to perfection. This, this is really an actual station in the Fremont factory as well that it's working at. Yep. So. <laughs> oh boy. And that's not the only thing we have to show today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, that, 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 uh, what you saw was uh, what we call Bumble C. That's our uh, uh, sort of rough development robot uh, using semi-off-the-shelf actuators. Um, 
But we actually uh, have gone a step further than that uh, already. The team's done an incredible job. Um, and we actually have uh, an Optimus bot with uh, fully Tesla-designed and built actuators, um, battery pack, uh, control system, everything. Um, it, it, it wasn't quite ready to walk, uh, but it, I think it will walk in a few weeks. Um, but we wanted to show you the, the robot, uh, the, 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 something that's actually fairly close to what will go into production, and, um, and show you all, all the things it can do. So let's bring it out. Do it. So here you're seeing uh, Optimus with these uh, the, the with the degrees of freedom that we expect to have in Optimus production unit one, uh, which is the ability to move uh, all the fingers independently, uh, move the uh, to have the, the thumb have uh, two degrees of freedom, uh, so it has opposable thumbs, and uh, both left and right hand, so it's able to operate uh, tools and do useful things. Our goal is to make um, a a useful humanoid robot as quickly as possible. And uh, we've also designed it using the same discipline that we use in designing the car, which is to say to, to design it for manufacturing uh, such that it's possible to make the robot at, in, in high volume uh, at low cost uh, with high reliability. So that, that's incredibly important. I mean, you've all seen very impressive humanoid uh, robot demonstrations, um, and that, that's great, but what are they missing? Um, they're missing a brain. They, they, don't, they don't have the, the intelligence to navigate the world uh, by themselves. And they're, they're also right. very expensive um, and made in low volume. Um, whereas uh, this, this is, Optimus is designed to be an extremely capable robot, but made in, in very high volume, probably ultimately millions of units. Um, and it, it, it is expected to cost much less than a car. I'll just bring so, it directly to the right here. Uh, I would say probably less than $20,000 would be my guess. Wow. Okay. We're expecting to hear the stock price. The, the, the potential for Optimus is, I think, appreciated by very few people. <laughs> hey! As usual, Tesla demos are coming in hot. So, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. Uh, the, 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 I'm, the, the team's put, out, put in, and the team has put in an incredible amount of work, uh, t uh, working days, you know, seven days a week, uh, burning the 3 a.m. oil to, to to get to the demonstration today. Um, super proud of what they've done. It's, they've really done done a great job. I just like to give a hand to the whole Optimus team. So, you know, now there's still a lot of work to be done to uh, refine Optimus and improve it. Obviously, this is just Optimus uh, version one. 
Um, and that's really why we're holding this event, which is to convince some of the most talented people in the world, like you guys, um, to uh, join Tesla and help make it a reality and bring it to fruition at scale uh, such that it can help millions of people. Um, and, the, 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 and the potential, like I said, is, is really boggles the mind because you have to say, like, what, what, what is an economy? An economy is uh, sort of productive entities times their productivity, uh, capita times productivity per capita. At the point at which there is not a limitation on capita, the, it's not clear what an economy even means at that point. It, an economy becomes quasi-infinite. Um, so, what, what, you know, taken to fruition in the hopefully benign scenario, um, it, the, it, this means uh, a future of abundance, a future where um, there, there is no poverty, where people, you can have whatever you want in terms of products and services. Um, it really is a, a, a fundamental transformation of civilization as we know it. Um, obviously, we want to make sure that transformation is a positive one and um, safe. <laughs> and, but, but that's also why I, I think Tesla as an entity doing this, being a single class of stock publicly traded, owned by the public, um, is very important. Um, and, mm -hmm. and should not be overlooked. I think this is essential because then if the public doesn't like what Tesla's doing, the public can buy shares in Tesla and vote differently. This is a big deal. Um, like it's very important that, that I can't just do what I want. <laughs> you know, sometimes people think that, not, but it's not true. Um, so, um, you know, that, it's, it's very important that the, the Corporate entity that has that, that makes this happen is something that the public can properly influence, um, and so, so I think the Tesla structure is is, is ideal for that. Um, and like I said, the you know, self-driving cars will certainly have a, a, a tremendous impact on the world. Um, I think they will improve the productivity of transport by at least a half order of magnitude, perhaps an order of magnitude, perhaps more. Um, Optimus, I think, has Cheers. maybe a two order of magnitude uh, potential improvement in uh, economic output. Like, like, it's, it's, not clear, it's not clear what the limit actually even is. Um, so, but we, we need to do this in the right way. We need to do it carefully and safely and ensure that the, the outcome is one that is beneficial to uh, civilization and, and one that humanity wants. I can't, this is also it's extremely important, obviously. So, um, and, and I hope you will consider uh, joining Tesla to uh, achieve those goals. Um, at Tesla, we're, we're, we really care about doing the right thing here, or aspire to do the right thing, and, and really not pave the road to hell with, with good intentions. And I think the road, is, road to hell is mostly paved with bad intentions, but every now and again, there's a good intention in there. So we, we want to do, do the right thing. Um, so you know, consider joining us and helping make it happen. Um, 
with that, let's, let's uh, move on to the next phase. Right on. Thank you, Elon. There's already so much. All right, so you've seen a couple robots today. Let's do a quick timeline recap. So last year, we unveiled the Tesla bot concept, but a concept doesn't get us very far. We knew we needed a real development and integration platform to get real-life learnings as quickly as possible. So that robot that came out and did the little routine for you guys, we had that within six months, built, working on software integration, hardware upgrades over the months since then. But in parallel, we've also been designing the next generation, this one over here. So this guy is rooted in the, the foundation of sort of the vehicle design process. You know, we're leveraging all of those learnings that we already have. Obviously, there's a lot that's changed since <clears throat> last year, but there's a few things that are still the same, you'll notice. We still have this really detailed focus on the true human form. We think that matters for a few reasons. But it's fun. We spend a lot of time thinking about how amazing the human body is. Um, we have this incredible range of motion, typically really amazing strength. Um, a fun exercise is if you put your fingertip on the chair in front of you, you'll notice that there's a huge range of motion that you have in your shoulder and your elbow, for example. Without moving your fingertip, you can move those joints all over the place. Um, but the robot, you know, its main function is to do real useful work. And it maybe doesn't necessarily need all of those degrees of freedom right away. So we've stripped it down to a minimum sort of 28 fundamental degrees of freedom, and then of course our hands in addition to that. Humans are also pretty efficient at some things and not so efficient in other times. So for example, we can eat a small amount of food to sustain ourselves for several hours. That's great. Uh, but when we're just kind of sitting around, no offense, but we're kind of inefficient. We're just sort of burning energy. So on the robot platform, what we're going to do is we're going to minimize that idle power consumption, drop it as low as possible. And that way, we can just flip a switch, and immediately the robot turns into something that does useful work. So let's talk about this latest generation in some detail, shall we? So on the screen here, you'll see in orange our actuators, which we'll get to in a little bit, and in blue, our electrical system. So now that we have our sort of human-based research, and we have our first development platform, research and execution to draw from for this design. Again, we're using that vehicle design foundation, so we're taking it from concept through design and analysis, and then build and validation. Along the way, we're going to optimize for things like cost and efficiency, because those are critical metrics to take this product to scale eventually. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to reduce our part count and our power consumption of every element possible. We're going to do things like reduce the sensing and the wiring at our extremities. You can imagine a lot of mass in your hands and feet is going to be quite difficult and power consumptive to move around. And we're going to centralize both our power distribution and our compute to the physical center of the platform. So in the middle of our torso, actually it is the torso, we have our battery pack. This is sized at 2.3 kilowatt hours, which is perfect for about a full day's worth of work. What's really unique about this battery pack is it has all of the battery electronics integrated into a single PCB within the pack. So that means everything from sensing to fusing, charge management, and power distribution is all, on one, all in one place. We're also leveraging both our vehicle products and our energy products to roll all of those key features into this battery. So that's streamlined manufacturing really efficient and simple cooling methods, battery management, and also safety. 
And of course, we can leverage Tesla's existing infrastructure and supply chain to make it. So going on to sort of our brain, it's not in the head, but it's pretty close. Um, also in our torso, we have our central computer. So as you know, Tesla already ships full self-driving computers in every vehicle we produce. We want to leverage both the autopilot hardware and the software for the humanoid platform. But because it's different in requirements and in form factor, we're going to change a few things first. So we still are going to, it's going to do everything that a human brain does. Processing vision data, making split-second decisions based on multiple sensory inputs, and also communications. So to support communications, it's equipped with wireless connectivity as well as audio support. And then it also has hardware level security features, which are important to protect both the robot and the people around the robot. So now that we have our sort of core, we're going to need some limbs on this guy. Um, and we'd love to show you a little bit about our actuators and our fully functional hands as well. But the before we do that, I'd like to introduce Malcolm, who's going to speak a little bit about our structural foundation for the robot. Less than 20,000 per bot is the thing that's, that's really blowing nuts. my mind. Oh my god, I can't believe it. Tesla have the capabilities to analyze highly complex systems. They don't get much more complex than a crash. You can see here a simulated crash from Model 3 superimposed on top of the actual physical crash. It's actually incredible how, um, how accurate it is. Just to give you an idea of the complexity of this model, it includes every nut, bolt, and washer, every spot weld, and it has 35 million degrees of freedom. Quite amazing. And it's true to say that if we didn't have models like this, we wouldn't be able to make the safest cars in the world. So can we utilize our capabilities and our methods from the automotive side to influence a robot? Well, we can make a model. And since we had crash software, we're using the same software here, we can make it fall down. And the purpose of this is to make sure that if it falls down, ideally it doesn't, but it's superficial damage. We don't want it to, for example, break its gearbox and its arms. That's equivalent of a dislocated shoulder of a robot. Uh, difficult and expensive to fix. So we wanted to dust itself off, get on with the job it's been given. We can also take the same model, and we can drive the actuators using the inputs from a previously solved model, bringing it to life. So this is producing the motions for the tasks we want the robot to do. These tasks are picking up boxes, turning, squatting, walking upstairs. Whatever the, the set of tasks are, we can play to the model. This is showing just simple walking. We can create the stresses in all the components. That helps us to optimize the components. These are not dancing robots. These are actually the modal behavior, the first five modes of the robot. And typically, when people make robots, they make sure the first mode is up around the top single figures, up towards 10 hertz. The reason to do this is to make the controls of walking easier. It's very difficult to walk if you can't guarantee where your foot is wobbling around. That's OK if you make one robot. We want to make thousands, maybe millions. We haven't got the luxury of making them from carbon fiber and titanium. We want to make them from plastic. Things are not quite so stiff. So we can't have these high targets. I call them dumb targets. We've got to make them work at lower targets. So is that, is that going to work? Well, if you think about it, sorry about this, but we're just bags of soggy jelly and bones thrown in. We're not high frequency. If I stand on my leg, I don't vibrate at 10 hertz. We, people operate at low frequency, 
So we know the robot actually can. It just makes controls harder. So we take the information from this, the modal uh, data and the stiffness, and feed that into the control system. That allows it to walk. Just changing tack slightly, looking at the knee. We can take some inspiration from biology, and we can look to see what the mechanical advantages of the knee is. It turns out it actually represents quite similar to four-bar link, and that's quite non-linear. That's not surprising, really, because if you think when you bend your leg down, the torque on your knee is much more when it's bent than it is when it's straight. So you'd expect a non-linear function. And in fact, the, the biology is non-linear. This matches it quite accurately. So that's a representation. The four-bar link is obviously not physically four-bar link. As I said, the characteristics are similar. But me bending down, that's not very scientific. Let's be a bit more scientific. We've played all the uh, tasks through, the, through this graph. And this is showing picking things up, walking, squatting, the tasks I said we did on the stress. And that's the, uh, the torque seen at the knee against the knee bend on the horizontal axis. This is showing the requirement for the knee to do all these tasks. And then put a curve through it, surfing over the top of the peaks. And that's saying, this is what's required to make the robot do these tasks. So if we look at the four-bar link, that's actually the green curve. And it's saying that the non-linearity of the four-bar link has actually linearized the characteristic of the force. What that really says is that's lowered the force. That's what makes the actuator have the lowest possible force, which is the most efficient. We want to burn energy up slowly. What's the blue curve? Well, the blue curve is actually, if we didn't have a four-bar link, we just had an arm sticking out of my leg here with, a, with an actuator on it, a simple two-bar link. That's the best we could do with a simple two-bar link. And it shows that that would create much more force in the actuator, which would not be efficient. So what's that look like in practice? Well, as you'll see, but it's very tightly packaged in the knee. You'll see it go transparent in a second. You'll see the four-bar link there. It's operating on the actuator. This is determined the force and the displacements on the actuator. I'll now pass you over to Constantinos to tell you a lot more detail about how these actuators are made and designed and optimized. Thank you. Thank you, Malcolm. So um, I would like to talk to you about um, the design process and the actuator portfolio uh, in our robot. So there are many similarities between a car and the robot when it comes to powertrain design. The, the most important thing that matters here is energy, mass, and cost. We are carrying over most of our designing experience from the car to the robot. So in the particular case, you see a car with two drive units. And the drive units are used in order to accelerate the car 0 to 60 miles per hour time or drive a city uh, drive cycle. While the robot that has 28 actuators, um, it's not obvious what are the tasks at actuator level. So we have tasks that are higher level, like walking or climbing stairs or carrying a heavy object, which need to be translated into joint, uh, into joint specs. Therefore, we use our model that generates the torque speed trajectories for our joints, which subsequently is going to be fed in our optimization model uh, to run through the optimization process. 
This is one of the scenarios that the robot is capable of doing, which is turning and walking. So when we have this torque speed trajectory, we lay it over an efficiency map of an actuator, and we are able along the trajectory to generate the power consumption and the energy, cumulative energy, for the task versus time. So this allows us to define the system cost for the particular actuator and put a simple point into the cloud. Then we do this for hundreds of thousands of actuators by solving in our cluster. And the red line denotes the Pareto front, which is the preferred area where we will look for our optimal. So the X denotes the preferred actuator design we have picked for this particular joint. So now we need to do this for every joint. We have 28 joints to optimize. And we parse our cloud. We parse our cloud again for every joint spec. And the red axis this time denote the bespoke actuator designs for every joint. The problem here is that we have too many unique actuator designs. And even if we take advantage of the symmetry, still there are too many. In order to make something mass manufacturable, we need to be able to reduce the amount of unique actuator designs. Therefore, we run something called commonality study, which we parse our cloud again, looking this time for actuators that simultaneously meet the joint performance requirements for more than one joint at the same time. So the resulting portfolio is six actuators, and they show in a color map at the middle figure. Um, and the actuators can be also viewed in this slide. We have three rotary and three linear actuators, all of which have a great output force or torque per mass. The rotary actuator in particular has a mechanical clutch integrated on the high speed side, angular contact ball bearing, and on the high speed side, and on the low speed side, a cross roller bearing, and the gear train is a strain wave gear. Um, there are three integrated sensors here and a bespoke permanent magnet machine. The linear actuator. I'm sorry. The linear actuator has planetary rollers and an inverted planetary screw as a gear train, which allows efficiency and compaction and durability. So in order to demonstrate the force capability of our linear actuators, we have set up an experiment in order to test it under its limits. And I will let you enjoy the video. <laughs> so our actuator is able to lift a half-ton, nine-foot concert grand piano. That's insane. And... Uh -huh. Wow. Wow. Always pay people to move This pianos. is a requirement. Buy some guns, It's folks. not something nice <laughs> just to Because our muscles can do the same when they are direct-driven. When they are directly driven, our quadricep muscles can do the same thing. It's just that the knee is an up-gearing linkage system that converts the force into velocity at the end effector of our heels for purposes of giving to the human body agility. So this is one of the main things that are amazing about the human body. 
And I'm concluding my part at this point, and I would like to welcome my colleague, Mike, who is going to talk to you about hand design. Thank you very much. I Thanks, for talking about this stuff. So we just saw how powerful so a human and a humanoid actuator can be. However, humans are also incredibly dexterous. The human hand has the ability to move at 300 degrees per second. It has tens of thousands of tactile sensors, and it has the ability to grasp and manipulate almost every object in our daily lives. For our robotic hand design, we were inspired by biology. We have five fingers and an opposable thumb. Our fingers are driven by metallic tendons that are both flexible and strong. We have the ability to complete wide aperture power grasps while also being optimized for precision gripping of small, thin, and delicate objects. So why a human-like robotic hand? Well, the main reason is that our factories and the world around us is designed to be ergonomic. So what that means is that it ensures that objects in our factory are graspable, but it also ensures that new objects that we may have never seen before can be grasped by the human hand and by our robotic hand as well. The converse there is, is pretty interesting because it's saying that these objects are designed to our hand instead of having to make changes to our hand to accompany a new object. Some basic stats about our hand is that it has six actuators and 11 degrees of freedom. It has an in-hand controller which drives the fingers and receives sensor feedback. Sensor feedback is really important to learn a little bit more about the objects that we're grasping and also for proprioception. And that's the ability for us to recognize where our hand is in space. One of the important aspects of our hand is that it's adaptive. This adaptability is involved, essentially has complex mechanisms that allow the hand to adapt to the objects that's being grasped. Another important part is that we have a non-backdrivable finger drive. This clutching mechanism allows us to hold and transport objects without having to turn on the hand motors. You just heard how we went about going, uh, we went about designing uh, the TeslaBot hardware. Now I'll hand it off to Milan and our autonomy team to bring this robot to life. Thanks, Michael. All right. Um, so all those cool things we've shown earlier in the video um, were possi possible just in a matter of a few months, thanks to the amazing work that we've done on autopilot over the past few years. Most of those components ported quite easily over to the bot's environment. If you think about it, we're just moving from a robot on wheels to a robot on legs. So some of the components are pretty similar and some other require more heavy lifting. So for example, our computer vision neural networks um, were ported directly from autopilot to the bot's situation. It's exactly the same occupancy network that we'll talk into uh, a little bit more details later with the autopilot team that is now running on the bot here in this video. The only thing that changed really is the training data that we had to recollect. We're also trying to find ways to improve those occupancy networks um, using work made on your radiance fields to get really great volumetric uh, rendering of the bot's environments. For example, here, some machinery that the bot might have to interact with. Another interesting problem to think about is in indoor environments, mostly uh, with absence of GPS signal, how do you get the bot to navigate to its destination? Say, for instance, to find its nearest charging station. So we've been training um, more neural networks to identify high-frequency features, key points within the bot's camera streams, and track them across frame over time as the bot navigates through its, its environment. 
And we're using those points to get a, a better estimate of the bot's pose and trajectory within its environment as it's walking. We also did quite some work on the simulation side. And this is literally the autopilot simulator uh, to which we've integrated the robot's locomotion code. And this is a video of the motion control code running in the autopilot simulator, simulator showing the evolution of the robot's walk over time. And so as you can see, we started quite slowly in April and start accelerating as we unlock more joints and uh, deploy more advanced techniques like arms balancing over the past few months. And so locomotion is specifically one component that's very different uh, as we're moving from the car to the bot's environment. And so I think it warrants a little bit more depth and I'd like my colleagues to start talking about this now. They have a lot of talent Thank in that you, team, man. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Felix. I'm a robotics engineer on the project, and I'm going to talk about walking. Walking seems easy, right? People do it every day. We don't even have to think about it. But there are some aspects of walking which are challenging from an engineering perspective. For example, physical self-awareness. That means having a good representation of yourself. What is the length of your limbs? What is the mass of your limbs? What is the size of your feet? All that matters. Also, having an energy-efficient gait. You can imagine there's different styles of walking, and all of them are equally efficient. Most important, keep balanced. Don't fall. <laughs> and of course, also coordinate the motion of all of your limbs together. So now, humans do all of this naturally. But as engineers or roboticists, we have to think about these problems. And the following, I'm going to show you how we address them in our locomotion planning and control stack. So we start with locomotion planning and our representation of the bot. That means a model of the robot's kinematics, dynamics, and the contact properties. And using that model and the desired path for the bot, our locomotion planner generates reference trajectories for the entire system. This means feasible trajectories with respect to the assumptions of our model. The planner currently works in three stages. It starts planning footsteps and ends with the entire motion for the system. And let's dive a little bit deeper in how this works. So in this video, we see footsteps being planned over a planning horizon, following the desired path. And we start from this and add then foot trajectories that connect these footsteps using toe off and heel strike just as the humans, just as humans do. And this gives us a larger stride and less knee bend for high efficiency of the system. The last stage is then finding a sense of mass trajectory, which gives us a fe dynamically feasible motion of the entire system to keep balance. As we all know, plans are good, but we also have to realize them in reality. Let's say how, see how we can do this. Thank you, Felix. Hello, everyone. My name is Anand, and I'm going to talk to you about controls. So let's take the motion plan that Felix just talked about and put it in the real world on a real robot. Let's see what happens. It takes a couple steps and falls down. Well, that's a little disappointing. But we are missing a few key pieces here, which will make it walk. Now. As Felix mentioned, the motion planner is using an idealized version of itself and a version of reality around it. 
this is not exactly correct. It also expresses its intention through trajectories and wrenches, wrenches of forces and torques, that it wants to exert on the world to locomote. Reality is way more complex than any SIMR model. Also, the robot is not simplified. It's got vibrations and modes, compliance, sensor noise, and on and on and on. So what does that do to the real world when you put the bot in the real world? Well, the unexpected forces cause unmodeled dynamics, which essentially the planet doesn't know about, and that causes destabilization, especially for a system that is dynamically stable, like biped locomotion. So what can we do about it? Well, we measure reality. We use sensors and our understanding of the world to do state estimation. And state estimation, here you can see the attitude and pelvis pose, which is essentially the vestibular system in a human, along with the center of mass trajectory being tracked when the robot's walking in the office environment. Now we have all the pieces we need in order to close the loop. So we use our better bot model, we use the understanding of reality that we've gained through state estimation, and we compare what we want versus what we expect, the reality, expect that reality is doing to us in order to add corrections to the behavior of the robot. Here, the robot certainly doesn't appreciate being poked, but it does an admirable job of staying upright. The final point here is a robot that walks is not enough. We need it to use its hands and arms to be useful. Let's talk about manipulation. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, robotics engineer on Teslabot. And I want to talk about how we've made the robot manipulate things in the real world. We wanted to manipulate objects while looking as natural as possible um, and also get there quickly. So what we've done is we've broken this process down into two steps. First is generating a library of natural motion references, um, or we could call them demonstrations. And then we've adapted these motion references online to the current real-world situation. So let's say we have a human demonstration of picking up an object. We can get a motion capture of that demonstration, which is visualized right here as a bunch of keyframes representing the locations of the hands, the elbows, the torso. We can map that to the robot using inverse kinematics. And if we collect a lot of these, now we have a library that we can work with. But a single demonstration is not generalizable to the variation in the real world. For instance, this would only work for a box in a very particular lo uh, location. So what we've also done is run these re reference trajectories through a trajectory optimization program, which solves for where the hand should be, how the robot should balance during a, when it needs to adapt the motion to the real world. So for instance, if the box is in this location, then our optimizer will create this trajectory instead. Um, next, Milan's going to talk about uh, what's next for the Optimus, uh, Tesla Vi. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Right, so hopefully by now you guys got a good idea of what we've been up to over the past few months. Um, we started having something that's usable, but it's far from being useful. There's still a, a long and exciting road ahead of us. Um, 
I think the first thing within the next few weeks is to get Optimus at least at par with Bumble C, the other bot prototype you saw earlier, and probably beyond. Um, we're also going to start focusing on the real use case at one of our factories, and really gonna try to try to uh, uh, nail this down and iron out all the elements needed to deploy this product in the real world. I was mentioning earlier, um, you know, indoor navigation, um, graceful form management, or even servicing, all components needed to uh, scale this product up. But um, I don't know about you, but after seeing what we've shown tonight, I'm pretty sure we can get this done within the next few months or years um, and, uh, and make this product a reality and change the entire economy. Um, so I would like to thank the entire Optimus team for all their hard work over the past few months. I think it's pretty amazing. All of this was done in barely six or eight months. Thank you very much. Wow. The pace of innovation, man. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Hi, I'm Ashok. Uh, I lead the autopilot team alongside Milan. Rockstar. God, it's coming so hard to top that optimist section. <laughs> um, we'll try nonetheless. Anyway, um, every Tesla that has been built over the last several years, we think has the hardware to make the car drive itself. We have been working on the software to add higher and higher levels of autonomy. This time around last year, we had roughly 2,000 cars driving our FSD beta software. Since then, we have significantly improved the software's robustness and capability uh, that we have now shipped it to 160,000 customers as of today. Thank you. This did not come for free. It came from the sweat and blood of the engineering team over the last one year. <laughs> um, for example, we trained 75,000 neural network models just last one year. That's roughly a model every eight minutes uh, that's you know, coming out of the team. And then we evaluate them on our large clusters. And then uh, we ship 281 of those models that actually improve the performance of the car. And this pace of innovation is happening throughout the stack, the, the planning software, the infrastructure, the tools, even hiring, everything is progressing to the next level. The FSD beta software is quite capable of driving the car. It should be able to navigate from parking lot to parking lot, handling city street driving, stopping for traffic lights and stop signs, negotiating with objects at intersections, making turns, and so on. All of this comes from the uh, camera streams that go through our neural networks that run on the car itself. It's not coming back to the server or anything. It runs on the car and produces all the outputs uh, to form the world model around the car, and the planning software drives the car based on that. Today, we'll go into a lot of the components that make up the system. The occupancy network acts as the base geometry layer of the system. This is a multi-camera video neural network that from the images predicts the full physical occupancy of the world around the robot. So anything that's physically present, trees, walls, buildings, cars, balls, what have you, it predicts, if it's physically present, it predicts them, along with their future motion. On top of this base level of geometry, we have more semantic layers. In order to navigate the roadways, we need the lanes, of course. 
But then the roadways have lots of different lanes, and they connect in all kinds of ways. So it's actually a really difficult problem for typical computer vision techniques to predict the set of lanes and their connectivities. So we reached all the way into language technologies and then pulled the state of the art from other domains and not just computer vision to make this task possible. For vehicles, we need their full kinematic state to control for them. All of this directly comes from neural networks. Video streams, raw video streams, come into the networks, go through a lot of processing, and then outputs the full kinematic state, their positions, velocities, acceleration, jerk, all of that directly comes out of the networks with minimal post-processing. That's really fascinating to me because how, how, how is this even possible? What world do we live in that this magic is possible that these networks predicts fourth derivatives of these positions when people thought we couldn't even detect these objects? My opinion is that it did not come for free. Uh, it, it required tons of data, so we had to build sophisticated auto-labeling systems that churn through raw sensor data, run a ton of offline compute on the servers. It can take a few hours, run expensive neural networks, distill the information into labels that train our in-car neural networks. On top of this, we also use our simulation system to synthetically create images and since it's a simulation, we trivially have all the labels. All of this goes through a well-oiled data engine pipeline where we first train a baseline model with some data, ship it to the car, see what the failures are. And once we know the failures, we mine the fleet for the cases where it fails, provide the correct labels, and add the data to the training set. This process systematically fixes the issues. And we do this for every task that runs in the car. Yeah, and to train these new massive neural networks, this year we expanded our training infrastructure by roughly 40 to 50%. So that sits us at about 14,000 GPUs today across multiple training clusters in the United States. Um, we also worked on our AI compiler, which now supports new uh, operations needed by those neural networks and map them to the, uh, the best of our underlying hardware resources. And our inference engine today is capable of distributing the execution of a single neural network across two independent system on chips, essentially two independent computers interconnected within the same full self-driving computer. And to make this possible, we had to keep a tight control on the end-to-end -end latency of this new system. So we deployed more advanced scheduling code across the full FSD platform. All of these neural networks running in the car together produce the vector space, which is again the model of the world around the robot or the car. And then the planning system operates on top of this, coming up with trajectories that avoid collisions or smooth, make progress towards the destination using a combination of model-based optimization uh, plus neural network uh, that helps optimize it to be really fast. Today, we are really excited to present progress on all of these areas. We have the engineering leads standing by to come in and explain these various blocks. And these power not just the car, but the same components also run on the Optimus robot that Milan showed earlier. With that, I welcome Puddle to start talking about the planning section. Man, they really should have split this into multiple events. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. There's Hi, a I'm lot. Hi, I'm Puddle Jane. Yeah. Let's use this intersection making an autopilot. So we are approaching this intersection from a side street, and we have to yield to all the crossing vehicles. Right as we are about to enter the intersection, the pedestrian on the other side of the intersection 
decides to cross the road without a crosswalk. Now, we need to yield to this pedestrian, yield to the vehicles from the right, and also understand the relation between the pedestrian and the vehicle on the other side of the intersection. It's a lot of these intra-object dependencies that we need to resolve in a quick glance. And humans are really good at this. We look at a scene, understand all the possible interactions, evaluate the most promising ones, and generally end up choosing a reasonable one. So let's look at a few of these interactions that Autopilot system evaluated. We could have gone in front of this pedestrian with a very aggressive longitudinal and lateral profile. Now, obviously, we are being a jerk to the pedestrian, and we would spook the pedestrian and his cute pet. We could have moved forward slowly, shot for a gap between the pedestrian or, and the vehicle from the right. Again, we are being a jerk to the vehicle coming from the right, but you should not outright reject this interaction in case this is only safe interaction available. Wow. Lastly, the interaction we ended up choosing, stay slow initially, find the reasonable gap, and then finish the maneuver after all the agents pass. Wow. Now, evaluation of all of these interactions is not trivial, especially when you care about modeling the higher-order derivatives for other agents. For example, what is the longitudinal jerk required by the vehicle coming from the right when you assert in front of it? Relying purely on collision checks with marginal predictions will only get you so far, because you will miss out on a lot of valid interactions. This basically boils down to solving a multi-agent joint trajectory planning problem over the trajectories of ego and all the other agents. <laughs> now, how much ever you optimize, there's going to be a limit to how fast you can run this optimization problem. It will be close to, close to order of 10 milliseconds, even after a lot of incremental approximations. Now, for a typical crowded, unpredicted lift, say you have more than 20 objects, each object having multiple different future modes, the number of relevant interaction combinations will blow up. We, the planner needs to make a decision every 50 milliseconds. So how do we solve this in real time? We rely on a framework what we call as interaction search, which is basically a parallelized research over a bunch of maneuver trajectories. The state space here corresponds to the kinematic state of ego, the kinematic state of other agents, their nominal future multimodal predictions, and all the static entities in the scene. The action space is where things get interesting. We use a set of maneuver trajectory candidates to branch over a bunch of interaction decisions and also incremental goals for a longer horizon maneuver. Let's walk through this research very quickly to get a sense of how it works. We start with a set of vision measurements, namely lanes, occupancy, moving objects. These get represented as sparse abstractions as well as latent features. We use this to create a set of goal candidates, lanes again from the lanes network, or unstructured regions which correspond to a probability mask derived from human demonstrations. Once we have a bunch of these goal candidates, using a combination of optimization network planner, again trained data from the customer fleet. Now, once we get a bunch of these three trajectories, we use them to start branching on the interactions. We find the most critical interaction. In our case, this would be the interaction with respect to the pedestrian, whether we assert in front of it or yield to it. Obviously, the option on the left is a high penalty option. It likely won't get prioritized. So we branch further onto the option on the right, and that's where we bring in more and more complex interactions. 
building this optimization problem incrementally with more and more constraints. And the tree search keeps flowing, branching on more interactions, branching on more goals. Now, a lot of tricks here lie in evaluation of each, each of this node of the tree search. Inside each node, initially we started with creating trajectories using classical optimization approaches, where the constraints, like I described, would be added incrementally. And this would take close to one to five milliseconds per action. Now, even though this is fairly good number, when you want to evaluate more than 100 plus interactions, this does not scale. So we ended up building lightweight queryable networks that you can run in the loop of the planner. These networks are trained on human demonstrations from the fleet, as well as offline solvers with relaxed time limits. With this, we were able to bring the runtime down, run down to close to 100 microseconds per action. Wow, microseconds, wow. Crazy. Now, doing this alone is not enough because you still have this massive tree search that, that you need to go through, and you need to efficiently prune the search space. So you need to do, a, do scoring on each of these trajectories. Few of these are fairly standard. You do a bunch of collision checks. You do a bunch of comfort analysis. What is the jerk and axle required for a given maneuver? The customer fleet data plays an important role here again. We run two sets of, again, lightweight queryable networks, both really augmenting each other, one of them trained from interventions from the FST beta fleet, which gives a score on how likely is a given maneuver to result in interventions over the next few seconds. And second, which is purely on human demonstrations, human-driven data, giving a score on how close is your given selected action to a human-driven trajectory. Wow. The scoring helps us prune the search space, keep branching further on the interactions, and focus the compute on the most promising outcomes. Wow. The, the cool part about this architecture is that it allows us to create a cool blend between uh, data-driven approaches, where you don't have to rely on a lot of hand-engineered costs, but also ground it in reality with physics-based checks. Now, a lot of what, what I described was with respect to the agents we could observe in the scene, but the same framework extends to objects behind occlusions. We use the video feed from eight cameras to generate the 3D occupancy of the world. The blue mask here corresponds to the visibility region, we call it. It basically gets blocked at the first occlusion you see in the scene. We consume this visibility mask to generate what we call as ghost objects, which you can see on the top left. Now, if you model the spawn regions and the state transitions of these ghost objects correctly, if you tune your control response as a function of their existence likelihood, you can extract some really nice human-like behaviors. Now I'll pass it on, on to Phil to describe more on how we generate these occupancy networks. Thank you. My dog wants to say hi to everybody. Hey guys, uh, my name is Phil. Uh, I will share the details of the occupancy network we built over the past year. This network is our solution to model the physical world in 3D around our cars. And it is currently not shown in our customer-facing visualization. And what you will see here is the raw network output from our internal dev tool. The occupancy network takes video streams of all our eight cameras as input, produces a single unified volumetric occupancy in vector space directly. For every 3D location around our car, it predicts the probability of that location being occupied or not. 
since it has video context, it is capable of predicting obstacles that are occluded instantaneously. For each location, it also produces a set of semantics, such as curb, car, pedestrian, and road debris, as color-coded here. Occupancy flow is also predicted for motion. Since the model is a generalized network, it does not tell static and dynamic objects explicitly. It is able to produce and model the random motion, such as a swerving trainer here. This network is currently running in all Teslas with FSD computers, and it is incredibly efficient, runs about every 10 milliseconds with our neural net accelerator. So how does this work? Let's take a look at the architecture. First, we rectify each camera images with the camera calibration. And the images we're showing here, uh, we're giving to the network, is actually not the typical A-bit RGB image. As you can see from the first uh, image on top, we're giving the 12-bit raw photo count image to the network. Since it has four bits more information, it has 16 times better dynamic range, as well as reduced latency since we don't have to run ISP in the loop anymore. We use a set of reglets and FPNs as a backbone to extract image space features. Next, we construct a set of 3D position query along with the image space features as keys and values fit into an attention module. The output of the attention module is high-dimensional spatial features. These spatial features are aligned temporarily using vehicle odometry to derive motion. Last, these spatial temporal features go through a set of deconvolution to produce the final occupancy and occupancy flow output. They're formed as fixed size voxel grid, which might not be precise enough for pre planning and control. In order to get a higher resolution, we also produce per voxel feature maps, which we feed into MLP with 3D spatial point queries to get position and semantics at any arbitrary location. After knowing the model better, let's take a look at another example. Here we have an articulated bus parked on the right side of the road, highlighted as an L-shaped voxel here. As we approach, the bus starts to move. The, blue, uh, the front of the car turns blue first, indicating the model predicts the front of the bus has a non-zero occupancy flow. And as the bus keeps moving, the entire bus turns blue. And you can also see that the network predicts the precise curvature of the bus. Well, this is a very complicated uh, problem for a traditional object detection network, as you have to see whether I'm going to use one cuboid or perhaps two to fit the curvature. But for our occupancy network, since all we care about is the occupancy in the visible space, and uh, we'll be able to uh, model the curvature precisely. Besides the voxel grid, the occupancy network also produces a drivable surface. The drivable surface has both 3D geometry and semantics. They are very useful for control, especially on hilly and curvy roads. The surface and the voxel grid are not predicted independently. Instead, the voxel grid actually aligns with the surface implicitly. Here, we are at a hill crest where you can see uh, the 3D geometry of the surface being, being predicted nicely. Planner can use this information to decide perhaps we need to slow down more for the hill crest. And 
as you can also see, the voxel grid aligns with the surface consistently. Besides the voxels and the surface, we're also very excited about the recent breakthrough in neural radiance field, or LERF. We're looking into both incorporating some of the light LERF features into occupancy network training, as well as using our network output as the input state for NERF. As a matter of fact, Ashok is very excited about this. This has been his uh, personal weekend project for a while. About uh, these uh, NERFs, because I think you know, the academia is building a lot of these foundation models uh, for language using like tons of large uh, data sets for language. But I think for vision, uh, NERFs are going to provide the foundation models uh, for computer vision because uh, they are grounded in geometry, and geometry gives us a nice way to supervise these networks and frees us of the requirement to define an ontology. And the supervision is essentially free because you just have to differentially render these images. So I think in the future, uh, this occupancy network idea where you know, images come in and then the network produces a consistent um, volumetric representation of the scene that can then be differentially rendered into any image that was observed. I, I personally think is a future of computer vision, uh, and you know, we, we do some initial work on it uh, right now, but I think in the future, both at Tesla and in the academia, uh, we will see that this combination of one-shot uh, prediction of full volumetric occupancy uh, will be the future. That, that's my personal uh, bet. Thanks, Ashok. So here's an example early result of a 3D reconstruction from our fleet data. Instead of focusing on getting perfect RGB reprojection in image space, our primary goal here is to accurately represent the world in 3D space for driving. And we want to do this for all our fleet data all over the world in all weather and lighting conditions. And obviously, this is a very challenging problem, and we're looking for you guys to help. Finally. The occupancy network is trained with large auto-label data set without any human in the loop. And with that, I'll pass to Tim to talk about what it takes to train this network. Thanks, Phil. All right, hey, everyone. Let's talk about some training infrastructure. Uh, so we've seen a couple of videos, you know, four or five. Uh, I think and care more and worry more about a lot more clips than that. So we've been looking at the occupancy networks just from Phil. Just Phil's videos, it takes 1.4 billion frames to train that network, what you just saw. And if you have 100,000 GPUs, uh, it would take one hour. But if you have uh, one GPU, it would take 100,000 hours. So that is not a humane time period that you can wait for your training job to run, right? We want to ship faster than that. So that means you're going to need to go parallel. So you need a more compute for that. That means you're going to need a supercomputer. So this is why we've built in-house three supercomputers comprising of 14,000 GPUs, where we use 10,000 GPUs for training and around 4,000 GPUs for auto-labeling. All these videos are stored in 30 petabytes of a distributed managed video cache. Um, you shouldn't think of our data sets uh, as fixed, let's say, as you think of your image net or something, you know, with like a million frames. You should think of it as a very fluid thing. So we've got a, half a million of these videos flowing in and out of this cluster, these clusters every single day. And we track 400,000 of these kind of Python video instantiations every second. So that is, that's a lot of calls. 
we are going to need to capture that in order to govern the retention policies of this distributed video cache. So underlying all of this is a huge amount of infra, all of which we build and manage in-house. So you cannot just buy, you know, 14,000 GPUs and then 30 petabytes of flash NVMe and just put it together and let's go train. Uh, it actually takes a lot of work, and I'm going to go into a little bit of that. What you actually typically want to do is you want to take your accelerator, so that could be the GPU or Dojo, which we'll talk about later, um, and because that's the most expensive component, that's where you want to put your bottleneck. And so that means that every single part of your system is going to need to outperform this accelerator. And so that is really complicated. That means that your storage is going to need to have the size and the bandwidth to deliver all the data down into the nodes. These nodes need to have the right amount of CPU and memory capabilities to feed into your machine learning framework. This machine learning framework then needs to hand it off to your GPU and then you can start training. But then you need to do so across hundreds or thousands of GPU in a reliable way, in lockstep, and in a way that's also fast. So you're also going to need an interconnect. Extremely complicated. We'll talk more about Dojo in a second. So first, I want to take you through uh, some optimizations that we've done on our cluster. Uh, so we're getting in a lot of videos. And video is very much unlike, uh, let's say, training on images or text, which I think is very well established. Video is quite literally a dimension more complicated. Um, and so uh, that's why we needed to go end to end from the storage layer down to the accelerator and optimize every single piece of that. Uh, because we train on the photon count videos that come directly from our fleet, we train on those directly. We do not post-process those at all. The way it's just done is uh, we seek exactly to the frames we select for our batch. We load those in, including the frames that they depend on. So these are your iframes or your keyframes. We package those up, move them into shared memory, move them into a double buffer on the GPU, and then use the hardware decoder that's only accelerated um, to actually decode the video. So we do that on the GPU natively. And this is all in a very nice Python, uh, PyTorch extension. Uh, doing so unlocked more than 30% training speed increase for the occupancy networks and freed up basically the whole CPU to do any other thing. Um, you cannot just do training with just videos. Of course, you need some kind of a ground truth. Uh, and uh, that is actually an interesting problem as well. The objective for storing your ground truth is that you want to make sure you get to your ground truth that you need in the minimal amount of file system operations and load in the minimal size of what you need in order to optimize for aggregate cross-cluster throughput. Because you should see a compute cluster as one big device which has internally fixed constraints and thresholds. So for this, we rolled out a format uh, that is uh, native to us that's called small. We use this for our ground truth, our feature cache, and any inference outputs. So a lot of tensors that are in there. Uh, and so just a cartoon here, let's say these are your, uh, is your table that you want to store, then that's how that would look out if you rolled out on disk. So what you do is you take anything you'd want to index on, so for example, video timestamps, you put those all in the header, so that in your initial header read, you know exactly where to go on disk. Then if you have any tensors, uh, you're going to try to transpose the dimensions to put a different dimension last as the contiguous dimension, and then also try different types of compression then you check out which one was most optimal, and then store that one. This is actually a huge step if you do feature caching, unintelligible output from the machine learning network, uh, rotate around the dimensions a little bit, you can get up to 20% increase 
in efficiency of storage. Then when you store that, uh, we also um, order the columns by size so that all your small columns and small values are together so that when you seek for a single value, you're likely to overlap with the read on more values, which you'll uh, use later so that you don't need to do another file system operation. So I could go on and on. I just went on, uh, on touched on two projects that we have internally, but this is actually part of a huge continuous effort to optimize the compute that we have in-house. Uh, so accumulating and aggregating through all these optimizations, uh, we now train our occupancy networks twice as fast just because it's twice as efficient. And now if we add in a bunch more compute and go parallel, we can now train this in hours instead of days. And with that, I'd like to hand it off to the biggest user of compute, John. Hang in there, everybody. I know this is getting dense, but we're going we're gonna to be breaking it down for you <laughs> at the end. My name is John Emmons. I lead the Autopilot Vision team. I'm going to cover two topics with you today. The first is how we predict lanes, and the second is how we predict the future behavior of other agents on the road. In the early days of Autopilot, we modeled the lane detection problem as an image space instance segmentation task. Our network was super simple, though. In fact, it was only capable of predicting lanes from a, of a few different kinds of geometries. Specifically, it would segment the eagle lane, it could segment adjacent lanes, and then it had some special casing for forks and merges. This simplistic modeling of the problem worked for highly structured roads like highways. But today, we're trying to build a system that's capable of much more complex maneuvers. Specifically, we want to make left and right turns at intersections, where the road topology can be quite a bit more complex and diverse. When we try to apply this simplistic modeling of the problem here, it just totally breaks down. Taking a step back for a moment, what we're trying to do here is to predict the sparse set of lane instances and their connectivity. And what we want to do is to have a neural network that basically predicts this graph, where the nodes are the lane segments, and the edges encode the connectivities between these lanes. So what we have is our lane detection neural network. It's made up of three components. In the first component, we have a set of convolutional layers, attention layers, and other neural network layers that encode the video streams from our eight cameras on the vehicle and produce a rich visual representation. We then enhance this visual representation with a coarse uh, road-level road map data, which we encode with a set of additional neural network layers that we call the lane guidance module. This map is not an HD map, but it provides a lot of useful hints about the topology of lanes instead of intersections, the lane counts on various roads, and a set of other attributes that help us. The first two components here produce a dense tensor that sort of encodes the world. But what we really want to do is to convert this dense tensor into a smart set of lanes and their connectivities. We approach this problem like an image captioning task, where the input is this dense tensor, and the output text is predicted into a special language that we developed at Tesla for encoding lanes and their connectivities. In this language of lanes, the words and tokens are the lane positions in 3D space. In the ordering of the tokens, and predicted modifiers in the tokens encode the connective relationships between these lanes. By modeling the task as a language problem, we can capitalize on recent autoregressive architectures and techniques from the language community for handling the multimodality of the problem. We're not just solving the computer vision problem at Autopilot. We're also applying the state of the art in language modeling and machine learning more generally. I'm now going to dive into a little bit more detail of this language component. What I have depicted on the screen here is a satellite image which sort of represents the local area around the vehicle. The set of nodes and edges 
is what we refer to as the lane graph, and it's ultimately what we want to come out of this neural network. We start with a blank slate. We're going to want to make our first prediction here at this green dot. This green dot's position is encoded as an index into a coarse grid which discretizes the 3D world. Now, we don't predict this index directly, because it would be too computationally expensive to do so. There's just too many grid points, and predicting a categorical distribution over this has both implications at training time and test time. So instead, what we do is we discretize the world coarsely first. We predict a heat map over the possible locations, and then we latch in the most probable location. Condition on this, we then refine the prediction and get the precise point. Now, we know where the position of this token is, but we don't know its type. In this case, though, it's the beginning of a new lane. So we predict it as a start token. And because it's a start token, there's no additional attributes in our language. We then take the predictions from this first forward pass, and we encode them using a learned conditional embedding, which produces a set of tensors that we can bind together, which is actually the first word in our language of lanes. We add this to the you know, first position in our sentence here. We then continue this process by predicting the next lane point in a similar fashion. Now, this lane point is not the beginning of a new lane. It's actually a continuation of the previous lane. So it's a continuation token type. Now, it's not enough just to know that this lane is connected to the previously predicted lane. We want to encode its precise geometry, which we do by... Broadcaster. Go to the broadcaster. You can't tell a simple segmentation-based approach would just draw both of them. It's kind of a 2.5-lane situation, and the post-processing algorithm would hilariously fail uh, when the predictions are such. Yeah, and the problems yeah. don't so end I there. We, uh, I mean, you need to predict these connective, like these connective lanes inside of intersections, which it's just not possible with the approach that Ashok's mentioning, which is why we had to upgrade to this sort yeah, of. Yeah, when it like overlaps like this, segmentation would just go haywire. But even if you try very hard to, you know, put them on separate layers, it's just a really hard problem. But language just offers a really nice framework for more getting a uh, sample from a posterior as opposed to you know, uh, trying to do all of this in post-processing. But this doesn't actually stop for just autopilot, right, John? This can be used for optimists. Yeah, you know, I guess they wouldn't be called lanes, but you could imagine you know, sort of in this you know, stage here that you might have sort of paths that sort of you know, encode the possible places that people could walk. Yeah, basically, if you're in a factory or in a... Um, you know, home setting, you can just ask the robot, okay, let me, uh, please route to the kitchen or please route to some location in the factory and then 
we predict a set of pathways that would you know, go through the aisles, take the robot, and say, okay, this is how you get to the kitchen. It just really gives us a nice framework to model these different paths that simplify the navigation problem for the downstream planner. All right, so ultimately what we get from this lane detection network is a set of lanes in their connectivities, which comes directly from the network. There's no additional step here for sparsifying these you know, dense predictions into, into, into sparse ones. This is just a direct unfiltered output of the network. Okay, so I talked a little bit about lanes. I'm gonna to briefly touch on how we model and predict the future paths and other semantics on objects. So I'm just gonna go really quickly through two examples. The video on the right here, we've got a car that's actually running a red light and turning in front of us. Um, what we do to handle situations like this is we predict a set of short time horizon future trajectories on all objects. Um, we can use these to anticipate the dangerous situation here and apply whatever you know, braking and steering actions required to avoid a collision. In the video on the right, there's two vehicles in front of us. Um, the one in the left lane is parked. Uh, apparently it's being loaded, unloaded. I don't know why the driver decided to park there. Um, but the important thing is that our neural network predicted that it was stopped, um, which is the red color there. Um, the vehicle in the other lane, as you notice, also is stationary. But that one's obviously just waiting for that red light to turn green. So even though both objects are stationary and have zero velocity, it's the semantics that is really important here so that we don't get stuck behind that awkwardly parked car. Wow. Predicting all of these agent attributes presents some practical problems when trying to build a real-time system. We need to maximize the frame rate of our object detection stack so that Autopilot can quickly react to the changing environment. Every millisecond really matters here. To minimize the inference latency, our neural network is split into two phases. In the first phase, we identify the locations in 3D space where agents exist. In the second stage, we then pull out tensors at those 3D locations, append it with additional data that's on the vehicle, and then we you know, do the rest of the processing. This sparsification step allows the neural network to focus compute on the areas that matter most, which gives us superior performance for a fraction of the latency cost. So putting it all together, the autopilot vision stack predicts more than just the geometry and kinematics of the world. It also predicts a rich set of semantics, which enables safe and human-like driving. I'm now gonna hand things off to Shreve, who will tell us how we run all these cool neural networks on our FSD computer. Thank you. Thanks, John. Hi, everyone. I'm Shree. Today, I'm gonna to give a glimpse of what it takes to run these FSD networks in the car, and how do we optimize for the inference latency. Uh, Today I'm going to focus just on the FSD lanes network that John just talked about. So when we started this track, we wanted to know if we can run this FSD lanes network natively on the trip engine, which is our in-house neural network accelerator that we built in the FSD computer. When we built this hardware, we kept it simple, and we made sure it can do one thing ridiculously fast, dense dot products. But this architecture is autoregressive and iterative, where it crunches through multiple attention, attention blocks in the inner loop, producing sparse points directly at every step. So the, the challenge here was, how can we do this sparse point prediction and sparse computation on a dense dot product engine? Let's see how we did this on the trip. So the network predicts the uh, heat map of most probable spatial locations of the point. Now, we do a argmax and a one-hot operation, which gives the one-hot encoding of the index of the spatial location. Now, we need to select the embedding 
associated with this index from an embedding table that is learned during training. To do this on trip, we actually built a lookup table in SRAM, and we engineered the dimensions of this embedding such that we could achieve all of this thing with just matrix multiplication. Not just that, we also wanted to uh, store this embedding into a token cache so that we don't recompute this for every iteration, rather reuse it for future point prediction. Again, we pulled some tricks here where we did all these operations just on the dot product engine. It's actually cool that our team found creative ways to map all these operations on the trip engine in ways that were not even imagined when this hardware was designed. But that's not the only thing we had to do to make this work. We actually implemented a whole lot of operations and features to make this model compilable, to improve the intake accuracy, as well as to optimize performance. All of these things helped us run this 75 million parameter model just under 10 milliseconds of latency, consuming just eight watts of power. But this is not the only architecture running in the car. There are so many other architectures, modules, and networks we need to run in the car. To give a sense of scale, there are about a billion parameters of all the networks combined, producing around 1,000 neural network signals. So we need to make sure we optimize them jointly and such that we maximize the compute utilization, throughput, and minimize the latency. So we built a compiler just for neural networks that shares the structure to traditional compilers. As you can see, it takes the massive graph of neural nets with 150K nodes and 375K connection, takes this thing, partitions them into independent subgraphs, and com compiles each of those subgraphs natively for the inference devices. Then we have a neural network linker, which shares the structure to traditional linker, where we perform this link time optimization. There, we solve an offline optimization problem uh, for, with compute memory and memory bandwidth constraints so that it comes with an optimized schedule that gets executed in the car. On the runtime, we designed a hybrid scheduling system which basically does heterogeneous scheduling on one SOC and distributed scheduling across both the SOCs to run these networks in a model parallel fashion. To get 100 tops of compute utilization, we need to optimize across all the layers of software, right from tuning the network architecture, the compiler, all the way to implementing a low latency, high bandwidth RDMA link across both the SOCs, and in fact, going even deeper to understanding and optimizing the cache coherent and non-coherent data paths of the accelerator in the SOC. This is a lot of optimization at every level in order to make sure we get the highest frame rate and uh, as every millisecond counts here. And this is, this is just the, this is the visualization of the neural networks that are running in the car. This is our digital brain, essentially. As you can see, these operations are nothing but just the matrix multiplication, convolution, to name a few, real operations what? running in the car. To train, a, train this network with a billion parameters, you need a lot of labeled data. So Egan is going to talk about how do we achieve this with the auto-labeling pipeline. Harvard 4. Uh, thank you, Sri. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Yegan Zhang, and I'm leading a geometric vision at Autopilot. So 
yeah, let's talk about auto-labeling. So we have several kinds of auto-labeling frameworks uh, to support various types of networks. Uh, but today, I'd like to focus on the awesome LanesNet here. Um, so to successfully train and generalize this network to everywhere, uh, we think we went tens of millions of trips from probably one, mi one million intersection or even more. So then how to do that? So it is certainly achievable uh, to source sufficient amount of trips because we already have, as Tim explained earlier, we already have like 500,000 trips per day cache rate. Um, however, converting all those data into a training form is a very challenging technical problem. To solve this challenge, we've tried various ways of manual and auto-labeling. So from the first column to the second, from the second to the third, each advance provided us nearly 100x improvement in throughput. But still, uh, we run an even better auto-labeling machine that can provide, provide, us, uh, provide us good quality, diversity, and scalability. To meet all these requirements, uh, despite the huge amount of engineering effort required here, uh, we've developed a new auto-labeling machine powered by multi-trip reconstruction. So this can replace 5 million hours of manual labeling with just 12 hours on cluster for labeling 10,000 trips. So mm -hmm. how we solved? There are three big steps. The first step is high-precision trajectory and structural recovery by multi-camera, visual inertial odometry. So here, all the features, including ground surface, are inferred from videos by neural networks, then tracked and reconstructed in the vector space. So the typical drift rate of this trajectory uh, in car is like 1.3 centimeter per meter and 0.45 milliradian per meter, which is pretty decent uh, considering its compact compute requirement. Then the recovery surface and road details are also used as a strong guidance uh, for the later manual verification step. Uh, this is also enabled in every FSD vehicle, so we get pre-processed trajectories and structures along with the trip data. The second step is multi-trip reconstruction, which is the big and core piece of this machine. So the video shows how the previously shown trip is reconstructed and aligned with other trips, basically other trips from different vehicles, not the same vehicle. So this is done by multiple internal steps like course alignment, pairwise matching, joint optimization, then further surface refinement. In the end, the human analyst comes in and finalizes the label. So each heavy steps are already fully parallelized on the cluster. So the entire process usually takes just a couple of hours. The last step is actually auto-labeling the new trips. So here, we use the same multi-trip alignment engine, but only between pre-built reconstruction and each new trip. So it's much, much simpler than fully reconstructing all the clips altogether. Uh, that's why it only takes 30 minutes per trip uh, to auto-label instead of manual, uh, several hours of manual labeling. Uh, and this is also the key of scalability of this machine. This machine easily scales as long as we have available compute and trip data. So about 50 trips were newly auto-labeled from this scene, and some of them are shown here. So 
53 from different vehicles. So this is how we capture and uh, transform the space-time slices of the world into the network supervision. Yeah, one thing I'd like to note is that Yegen uh, just talked about how we auto-label our lanes, but we have auto-labelers for almost every task that we do, including our planner, and many of these are fully automatic. There's no humans involved. For example, for objects, all of the kinematic, the shapes, the futures, everything just comes from auto-labeling, and the same is true for uh, occupancy, too, and we have really just built a machine around this. Yeah, so if you can go back one slide. One more. It says, parallelized on cluster. <laughs> uh, so, so that sounds pretty straightforward, but it really wasn't. Um, maybe it's, it's, it's fun to share how something like this comes about. Um, so a while ago, we didn't have any auto-labeling at all, and then someone makes a script, it starts to work, it starts working better until we reach a volume that's pretty high and we clearly need a solution. And so uh, there were two other engineers in our team who were like, oh, you know, that's an interesting, you know, uh, thing, what we needed to do was build a whole graph of essentially Python functions that would need to run one after the other. First you pull the clip, then you do some cleaning, then you do some network inference, then another network inference, until you finally get this. Uh, but so you need to do this at a large scale. So I, so I tell them, we probably need to shoot for, you know, 100,000 clips per day, or like 100,000 items, that seems good. Um, and so the engineers said, well, we can do, you know, a bit of Postgres and a bit of elbow grease, we can do it. Uh, meanwhile, we are a bit later and we're doing 20 million of these functions every single day. Again, we pull in around half a million clips and on those we run a ton of functions, each of these, in a streaming fashion. And so that's kind of the back-end infra that's also needed to not just run training but also auto-labeling. Yeah, it really is like a factory that produces labels yeah. and it's like production lines, yield, quality, uh, inventory, like all of the same concepts applied to this label factory uh, that applies for, you know, the factory for our cars. That's right. Okay. Uh, thanks, Tim and Ashok. Uh, so, yeah, so concluding this section, uh, I'd like to share a few more challenging and interesting examples for network, for sure, and even for humans, probably. Uh, so from the top, there's, like, examples for, like, lack of lights, case, or foggy night, or roundabout and occlusions by heavy occlusions by parked cars, and even rainy night with the raindrops on camera lenses. Uh, these are challenging, but once their original scenes are fully reconstructed by other clips, they, all of them can be auto-labeled so that our cars can drive even better through these challenging uh, scenarios. So now let me pass the mic to David to learn more about how Sim is creating the new world on top of these labels. Thank you. I love how the guy said, you know, this might be very simple, but I'm like, there's nothing Thank simple you, about this. My name is Ian. <laughs> I'm going to talk about simulation. So simulation plays a critical role in providing data that is difficult to source and or hard to label. However, 3D scenes are notoriously slow to produce. Take, for example, the simulated scene playing behind me, a complex intersection from Market Street in San Francisco. It would take two weeks for artists to complete. And for us, that is painfully slow. However, I'm going to talk about using Yegan's automated ground truth labels along with some brand new tooling that allows us to procedurally generate this scene and many like it in just five minutes. That's an amazing 1,000 times faster than before. So let's dive in to how a scene like this is created. We start by piping the automated ground truth labels into our simulated world creator tooling inside the software Houdini. 
Starting with road boundary labels, we can generate a solid road mesh and retopologize it with the lane graph labels. This helps inform important road details like crossroad slope and de detailed material blending. Next, we can use the line data and sweep geometry across its surface and project it to the road, creating lane paint decals. Next, using median edges, we can spawn island geometry and populate it with randomized foliage. This drastically changes the visibility of the scene. Now, the outside world can be generated through a series of randomized heuristics. Uh, modular building generators create visual obstructions, while randomly placed objects like hydrants can change the color of the curbs, while trees can drop leaves below it, obscuring lines or edges. Next, we can bring in map data to inform positions of things like traffic, traffic lights or stop signs. We can trace along its normal to collect important information like number of lanes and even get accurate street names on the signs themselves. Next, using lane graph, we can determine lane connectivity and spawn directional road markings on the road and their accompanying road signs. And finally, with lane graph itself, we can determine lane adjacency and other useful metrics to spawn randomized traffic permutations inside our simulator. And again, this is all automatic, no artists in the loop, and happens within minutes. And now this sets us up to do some pretty cool things. Since everything is based on data and heuristics, we can start to fuzz parameters to create visual variations of the single ground truth. It can be as subtle as object placement and random material swapping wow. to more drastic changes like entirely new biomes or locations of environment, like urban, wow. suburban, or rural. This allows us to create infinite targeted permutations for specific ground truths that we need more ground truth for. And all this happens within a click of a button. And we can even take this one step further by altering our ground truth itself. Say John wants his network to pay more attention to directional road markings to better detect an upcoming captive left turn lane. We can start to procedurally alter our lane graph inside the simulator to help to create entirely new flows through this intersection to help focus the network's attention to the road markings to create more accurate predictions. And this is a great example of how this tooling allows us to create new data that could never be collected from the real world. And the true power of this tool is in its architecture and how we can run all tasks in parallel to infinitely scale. So you saw the tile creator tool in action converting the ground truth labels into their counterparts. Next, we can use our tile extractor tool to divide this data into geohash tiles about 150 meters square in size. We then save out that data into separate geometry and instance files. This gives us a clean source of data that's easy to load and allows us to be rendering engine agnostic for the future. Then, using a tile loader tool, we can summon any number of those cache tiles using a geohash ID. Uh, currently, we're doing about these five by five tiles or three by three usually centered around fleet hotspots or interesting lane graph locations. And the tile loader also converts these tile sets into U assets for cons consumption by the Unreal Engine and gives you a finished project product from what you saw on the first slide. And this really sets us up for size and scale. And as you can see on the map behind us, we can easily generate most of San Francisco city streets. And this didn't take years or even months of work but rather two weeks by one person. We can what? continue to manage and grow all this data using our PDG network 
inside of the tooling. This allows us to throw compute at it and regenerate all these tile sets overnight. <laughs> this oh ensures my. all environments are of consistent quality and features, which is super important for training since new ontologies and signals are constantly released. And now to come full circle, because we generated all these tile sets from ground truth data, they contain all the weird intricacies from the real world, and we can combine that with the procedural, visual, and traffic variety to create limitless targeted data for the network to learn from. And that concludes the sim section. Wow. I'll pass it to Kate to talk about how we can use all this data to improve autopilot. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Holy crap. I, somebody in the comments said it like Rockstar could have a new game out every eight weeks or something. <laughs> yeah, David. for real. Hi everyone, my name is Kate Park and I'm here to talk about the data engine, which is the process by which we improve our neural networks via data. We're gonna show you how we deterministically solve interventions via data and walk you through the life of this particular clip. In this scenario, autopilot is approaching a turn and incorrectly predicts that crossing vehicle as stopped for traffic, and thus a vehicle that we would slow down for. In reality, there's nobody in the car. It's just awkwardly parked. We've built this tooling to identify the mispredictions, correct the label, and categorize this clip into an evaluation set. This particular clip happens to be one of 126 that we've diagnosed as challenging parked cars at turns. Because of this infra, we can curate this evaluation set without any engineering resources custom to this particular challenge case. To actually solve that challenge case requires mining thousands of examples like it, and it's something Tesla can trivially do. We simply use our data sourcing infra, request data, and use the tooling shown previously to correct the labels. By surgically targeting the mispredictions of the current model, we're only adding the most valuable examples to our training set. We surgically fix 13,900 clips, and uh, because those were examples where the current model struggles, we don't even need to change the model architecture. A simple weight update with this new valuable data is enough to solve the challenge case. So you see, we no longer predict that crossing vehicle as stopped, as shown in orange, but parked, as shown in red. In academia, we often see that people keep data constant, but at Tesla, it's very much the opposite. We see time and time and again that data is one of the best, if not the most deterministic lever to solving these interventions. We just showed you the data engine loop for one challenge case, namely these parked cars at turns, but there are many challenge cases even for one signal of vehicle movement. We apply this data engine loop to every single challenge case we've diagnosed, whether it's buses, curvy roads, stopped vehicles, parking lots. And we don't just add data once, we do this again and again to perfect the semantic. In fact, this year, we updated our vehicle movement signal five times, and with every weight update trained on the new data, we push our vehicle movement accuracy up and up. This data engine framework applies to all our signals, whether they're 3D, multicam video, whether the data is human-labeled, auto-labeled, or simulated, whether it's an offline model or an online model, model. And Tesla's able to do this at scale because of the fleet advantage, the infra that our Eng team has built, and the labeling resources that feed our networks. To train on all this data, we need a massive amount of compute, 
So I'll hand it off to Pete and Ganesh to talk about the Dojo supercomputing platform. Thank you. Zach, you're on your How fifth, many like, uh, super expert engineers do they have, dude? Oh my God. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for hanging in there. We're almost there. My name is Pete Bannon. I, I run the uh, custom silicon and low voltage teams at Tesla. And my name is uh, Ganesh Venkat. I run the Dojo program. Thank you. I'm frequently asked, why is a car company building a supercomputer for training? And this question fundamentally misunderstands uh, the nature of Tesla. At its heart, Tesla is a hardcore technology company. All across the company, people are working hard in science and engineering to advance the fundamental understanding and, and methods that we have available to build cars, energy solutions, robots, and anything else that we can, we, we can do to improve the human condition around the world. It's a super exciting thing to be a part of, and it's a privilege to run a very small piece of it in the semiconductor group. Um, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Dojo and give you an update on what we've been able to do over the last year. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to give a little bit of background on the initial design uh, that we started a few years ago. When we got started, the goal was to provide a substantial improvement to the training latency for our autopilot team. Some of the largest neural networks they train today run for over a month, which inhibits their ability to rapidly explore alternatives and evaluate them. So you know, a 30x speed up would be really nice if we could provide it at a cost competitive and energy competitive way. Um, to do that, we wanted to uh, build a chip with a lot of arithmetic, arithmetic units that we could utilize at a very high efficiency. And we spent a lot of time studying whether we could do that using DRAM, various packaging ideas, um, all of which failed. And in the end, even though it felt like an unnatural act, we decided to reject DRAM as the primary storage medium for this system and instead focus on SRAM embedded in the chip. SRAM provides, unfortunately, a modest amount of capacity, but extremely high bandwidth and very low latency. And that enables us to achieve high utilization with the arithmetic units. Those choices, uh, that particular choice led to a whole bunch of other choices. For example, if you want to have virtual memory, you need page tables. They take up a lot of space. We didn't have space, so no virtual memory. Uh, we also don't have interrupts. The accelerator is a bare bones, raw piece of hardware that's presented to a compiler, and the compiler is responsible for scheduling everything that happens in a deterministic way. So there's no need or even desire for interrupts in the system. We also chose to pursue uh, model parallelism as a training methodology, which is not the typical situation. Most, uh, most machines today use data parallelism, which consumes additional uh, memory capacity, which we obviously don't have. So all of those choices led us to build a machine that is pretty radically different uh, from what's available today. Um, we also had a whole bunch of other goals. One, one of the most important ones was no limits. So we wanted to build a compute fabric that would scale un, in an unbounded way for the most part. I mean, obviously, there's physical limits now and yeah. then. Um, but you know, pretty much if your model was too big for the computer, you're, you just had to go buy a bigger computer. Uh, that's what we were looking for. Today, the way package, machines are packaged, there's 
a pretty fixed ratio of, for example, GPUs, CPUs, and, and DRAM capacity and network capacity. And we really wanted to disaggregate all that so that as models evolved, we could vary the ratios of, of those various elements and, and make the system more flexible to meet the needs of the autopilot team. Yeah, and, and it's so true, Pete, like no limits philosophy was our guiding star all the way. All of our choices were centered around that. And, and to the point that we didn't want traditional data center infrastructure to limit our capacity to execute these uh, programs at speed. So that's why we, that's why we, sorry about that. That's why we integrated vertically our data center, the entire data center by doing a vertical integration of the data center we could extract new levels of efficiency. We could optimize power delivery, cooling, and as well as system management across the whole data center stack rather than doing box by box and integrating that, those boxes into data centers. And to do this, we also wanted to integrate early to figure out limits of scale uh, for our software workloads. So we integrated Dojo environment into our autopilot software very early, and we learned a lot of lessons. And today, uh, Bill Chang uh, will go over our hardware update as well as some of the challenges uh, that we faced along the way. And uh, Rajiv Kurian will uh, give you a glimpse of our compiler technology as well as uh, go over some of our cool results. Great. Back. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Ganesh. Um, I'll start tonight with uh, a, a high-level vision of our system that will that will help set the stage for the, the challenges and the problems we're solving, and then also how software will then leverage this for performance. Now, our vision for Dojo is to build a single unified accelerator, a very large one. Software would see a seamless compute plane with globally addressable, very fast memory, and all connected together with uniform high bandwidth and low latency. Now, to realize this, we, we need to use density to achieve performance. Now, we leverage technology to get this density in order to break levels of hierarchy all the way from the chip to the scale-out systems. Now, silicon technology has, has used this, has done this for decades. Uh, chips have followed Moore's law to, for density and integration to get perf uh, performance scaling. Now, a key step in realizing that vision was our training tile. Not only can we integrate 25 dies at extremely high bandwidth, but we can scale that to any number of additional tiles by just connecting them together. Now, last year, we showcased our first functional training tile. And at that time, we already had workloads running on it. And since then, the team here has been working hard and diligently to deploy this at scale. Now, we've made amazing progress and had a lot of milestones along the way. And of course, we've had a lot of unexpected challenges. But this is where our fail-fast philosophy has allowed us to push our boundaries. Now, pushing density for performance presents all new challenges. 
One area is power delivery. Here, we need to deliver the power to our compute die, and this directly impacts our top-line compute performance. But we need to do this at unprecedented density. We need to be able to match our die pitch with a power density of almost one amp per millimeter squared. And because of the extreme integration, this needs to be a multi-tiered vertical power solution. And because there's a complex heterogeneous material stack up, we have to carefully manage the material transition, especially CTE. Now, why does the coefficient of thermal expansion matter in this case? CTE is a fundamental material property. And if it's not carefully managed, that stack up would literally rip itself apart. So we started this effort by working with vendors to, deliver, to, to develop this power solution. But we realized that we actually had to develop this in-house. Now, to balance schedule and risk, we built quick iterations to support both our system bring-up and software development, and also to find the optimal design and stack-up that would meet our final production goals. And in the end, we were able to reduce CTE over 50% and meet our performance by 3x over, over our initial version. Now, needless to say, finding this optimal material stack up while maximizing performance at density is extremely difficult. Now, we did have unexpected challenges along the way. Here's an example where we pushed the boundaries of integration that led to component failures. This started when we scaled up to larger and longer workloads, and then intermittently, a single site on a tile would fail. Now, they started out as recoverable failures, but as we pushed to much higher and higher power, these would become permanent failures. Now, to understand this failure, you have to understand why and how we build our power modules. Solving density at every level is the, is, is the cornerstone of actually achieving our system performance. <clears throat> now, because our XY plane is used for high bandwidth communication, everything else must be stacked vertically. This means all other components other than our die must be integrated into our power modules. Now, that includes our clock and our power supplies and also our system controllers. Now, in this case, the failures were due to losing clock output from our oscillators. And after an extensive debug, we found that the root cause was due to vibrations on the module from piezoelectric effects on nearby capacitors. Now, what? singing caps are not a new phenomenon, and in fact, very common in power design. But normally, clock chips are placed in a very quiet area of the board and often not affected by power circuits. But because we needed to achieve this level of integration, these oscillators need to be placed in very close proximity. Now, due to our switching frequency and then the vibration resonance created, it caused out-of-plane vibration on our MEMS oscillator that caused it to crack. Now, the solution to this problem is a multi-prong approach. We can reduce the vibration by using soft terminal caps. We can update um, uh, our MEMS part with a lower Q factor for the out-of-plane direction. 
And we can also update our switching frequency to push the resonance further away from these sensitive bands. Now, in addition to the, to the density uh, at the system level, we've been making a lot of progress at the infra infrastructure level. We knew that we had to re-examine every aspect of the data center infrastructure in order to support our unprecedented power and cooling density. We brought in a fully custom-designed CDU to support Dojo's dense cooling requirements. And the amazing part is we're able to do this at a fraction of the cost versus buying off the shelf and modifying it. And since our Dojo cabinet integrates enough power and cooling to match an entire row of standard IT racks, we need to carefully design our cabinet and infrastructure together. And we've already gone through several iterations of this cabinet to optimize this. And earlier this year, we started load testing our power and cooling infrastructure. And we were able to push it over two megawatts before we tripped our substation and got a call from the city. Now, last year, we introduced only a couple of components of our system, the custom D1 die and the training tile. But we teased the Exapod as our end goal. We'll walk through the remaining parts of our system that are required to build out this Exapod. Now, the system tray is a key part of realizing our vision of a single accelerator. It enables us to seamlessly connect tiles together, not only within the cabinet, but between cabinets. We can connect these tiles at very tight spacing across the entire accelerator, and this is how we achieve our uniform communication. This is a laminated bus bar that allows us to integrate very high power, mechanical and thermal support, and an extremely dense integration. It's 75 millimeters in height and, and supports six tiles at 135 kilograms. This is the equivalent of three to four fully loaded high-performance racks. Next, we need to feed data to the training tiles. This is where we've developed the Dojo interface processor. It provides our system with high bandwidth DRAM to stage our training data. And it provides full memory bandwidth to our training tiles using TTP, our custom protocol that we use to communicate across our entire accelerator. It also has high-speed Ethernet that helps us extend this custom protocol over standard Ethernet. And we provide native hardware support for this with little to no software overhead. And lastly, we can connect, connect to it through a standard Gen 4 PCIe interface. Now, we pair 20 of these cards per tray and that gives us 640 gigabytes of high bandwidth DRAM. And this provides our disaggregated memory layer for our training tiles. These cards are our high bandwidth ingest path, both through PCIe and Ethernet. They also provide a high radex Z connectivity path that allows shortcuts across our large Dojo accelerator. Now we actually integrate the host directly underneath our system tray. These hosts provide our ingest processing and connect to our interface processors through PCIe. These hosts can provide hardware video decoder support for video-based training. And our user applications land on these hosts that, 
we, so we, we can provide them with a standard x86 Linux environment. Now we can put two of these assemblies into one cabinet and pair it with redundant power supplies that do direct conversion of three-phase 480-volt AC power to 52-volt DC power. Now by focusing on density at every level, we can realize the vision of a single accelerator. Now starting with the uniform nodes on our custom D1 die, we can connect them together in our fully integrated training tile, and then finally, seamlessly connecting them across cabinet boundaries to form our Dojo accelerator. And altogether, we can house two full accelerators in our Exapod for a combined one exaflop of ML compute. Now, altogether, this amount of technology and integration has only ever been done a couple of times in the history of compute. Next, we'll see how software can leverage this to accelerate their performance. Thanks, Bill. My name is Rajiv, and I'm going to talk some numbers. So our software stack begins with the PyTorch extension that speaks to our commitment to run standard PyTorch models out of the box. We're going to talk more about our JIT compiler and the ingest pipeline that feeds the hardware with data. Abstractly, performance is tops times utilization times accelerator occupancy. We've seen how the hardware provides peak performance. It's the job of the compiler to extract utilization from the hardware while code is running on it. And it's the job of the ingest pipeline to make sure that data can be fed at a throughput high enough for the hardware to not ever starve. Let's talk about why communication-bound models are difficult to scale. But before that, let's look at why ResNet-50-like models are easier to scale. You start off with a single accelerator, run the forward and backward passes, followed by the optimizer. Then to scale this up, you run multiple copies of this on multiple accelerators. And while the gradients produced by the backward pass do need to be reduced, and this introduces some communication, this can be done pipeline with the backward pass. This setup scales fairly well, almost linearly. For models with much larger activations, we run into a problem as soon as we want to run the forward pass. The batch size that fits in a single accelerator is often smaller than the batch norm surface. So to get around this, researchers typically run this setup on multiple accelerators in sync batch norm mode. This introduces latency-bound communication to the critical path of the forward pass, and we already have a communication bottleneck. And while there are ways to get around this, they usually involve tedious manual work best suited for a compiler. And ultimately, there's no skirting around the fact that if your state does not fit in a single accelerator, you can be communication-bound. And even with significant efforts from our ML engineers, we see such models don't scale linearly. The Dojo system was built to make such models work at high utilization. The high-density integration is, was built to not only accelerate the compute-bound portions of a model, but also the latency-bound portions, like a batch norm, or the bandwidth-bound portions, like a gradient all-reduce or a parameter all-gather. A slice of the Dojo mesh can be carved out to run any mo model. The only thing users need to do is to make the slice large enough to fit a batch norm surface for their particular model. 
After that, the partition presents itself as one large accelerator, freeing the users from having to worry about the internal details of execution. And it's the job of the compiler to maintain this abstraction. Fine-grained synchronization primitives and uniform low latency makes it easy to accelerate all forms of parallelism across integration boundaries. Tensors are usually stored sharded in SRAM and replicated just in time for layers execution. We depend on the high dojo bandwidth to hide this replication time. Tensor replication and other data transfers are overlapped with compute, and the compiler can also recompute layers when it's profitable to do so. We expect most models to work out of the box. As an example, we took the recently released stable diffusion model and got it running on Dojo in minutes. Out of the box, the compiler was able to map it in a model parallel manner on 25 Dojo dies. Here are some pictures of a Cybertruck on Mars generated by stable diffusion running on Dojo. Looks. <laughs> It looks it like it still has some ways to go before matching the Tesla Design Studio team. So we've talked about how communication bottlenecks can hamper scalability. Perhaps an acid test of a compiler and the underlying hardware is executing a cross-die batch form layer. Like mentioned before, this can be a serial bottleneck. So the communication phase of a batch form begins with nodes computing their local mean and standard deviations, then coordinating to reduce these values, then broadcasting these values back and then they resume their work in parallel. So what would an ideal batch form look like on 25 dojo dice? Let's say the previous layer's activations are already split across dice. We would expect the 350 nodes on each die to coordinate and produce die local mean and standard deviation values. Ideally, these would get further reduced with the final value ending somewhere in towards the middle of the tile. We would then hope to see a broadcast of this value radiating from the center. Let's see how the compiler actually executes a real batch ROM operation across 25 dice. The communication trees were extracted from the compiler, and the timing is from a real hardware run. We're about to see 8,750 nodes on 25 dice coordinating to reduce and then broadcast the batch ROM mean and standard deviation values. Die local reduction followed by global reduction towards the middle of the tie, then the reduced value broadcast radiating from the middle, accelerated by the hardware's broadcast facility. This operation takes only five microseconds on 25 dojo dice. The same operation mm -hmm. takes 150 microseconds on 24 GPUs. This is an orders of magnitude improvement over GPUs. And while we talked about an organization in the context of a batch norm, it's important to reiterate that the same advantages apply to all other communication primitives. And these primitives are essential for large-scale training. Thank you. So how about full model performance? <laughs> so while we think that ResNet 50 is not a good representation of real-world Tesla workloads, it is a standard benchmark, so let's start there. We are already able to match the A100 die for die. However, perhaps a hint of Dojo's capabilities is that we're able to hit this number with just a batch of eight per die. But Dojo was really built to tackle larger, complex models. So when we set out to tackle real-world workloads, we looked at the usage patterns of our current GPU cluster. And two models stood out. The auto-labeling networks, a class of offline models that are used to generate ground truth, and the occupancy networks that you heard about. 
The auto-labeling networks are large models that have high arithmetic intensity, while the occupancy networks can be ingest bound. We chose these models because together they account for a large chunk of our current GPU cluster usage, and they would challenge the system in different ways. So how do we do on these two networks? The results we're about to see were measured on multi-die systems for both the GPU and Dojo, but normalized to per-die numbers. On our auto-labeling network, we're already able to surpass the performance of an A100 with our current hardware running on our older generation VRMs. On our production hardware with our newer VRMs, that translates to doubling the throughput of an A100. And our model showed that with some key compiler optimizations, we could get to more than 3x the performance of an A100. We see even bigger leaps on the occupancy network. Almost 3x with our production hardware, with room for more. So what does that mean for Tesla? With the current level of compiler performance, we could replace the ML compute of one, two, three, four, five, and six GPU boxes with just a single dojo tile. Wow. And this dojo tile costs less than one of these GPU boxes. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> What it really means is that networks that took more than a month to train now take less than a week. Alas, when we measured things, it did not turn out so well. At the PyTorch level, we did not see our expected performance out of the gate. And this timeline chart shows our problem. The teeny tiny little green bars, that's the compile code running on the accelerator. The row is mostly white space where the hardware is just waiting for data. With our dense ML compute, Dojo hosts effectively have 10x more ML compute than the GPU hosts. The data loaders running on this one host simply couldn't keep up with all that ML hardware. So to solve our data loader scalability issues, we knew we had to get over the limit of this single host. The Tesla transport protocol moves data seamlessly across host, tiles, and ingest processors. So we extended the Tesla transport protocol to work over Ethernet. We then built the Dojo network interface card, the DNIC, to leverage TTP over Ethernet. This allows any host with a DNIC card to be able to DMA to and from other TTP endpoints. So we started with the Dojo mesh, then we added a tier of data loading hosts equipped with the DNIC card. We connected these hosts to the mesh via an Ethernet switch. Now every host in this data loading tier is capable of reaching all TTP endpoints in the Dojo mesh via hardware accelerated DMA. After these optimizations went in, our occupancy went from 4% to 97%. So the data loading sections have reduced. Data, the data loading sections have reduced drastically and the ML hardware is kept busy. We actually expect this number to go to 100% pretty soon. After these changes went in, we saw the full expected speed up from the PyTorch layer, and we were back in business. So we started with hardware design that breaks through traditional integration boundaries in service of our vision of a single giant accelerator. We've seen how the compiler and ingest layers build on top of that hardware. 
So after proving our performance on these complex real-world networks, we knew what our first large-scale deployment would target, our high arithmetic intensity auto-labeling networks. Today, that occupies 4,000 GPUs over 72 GPU racks. With our dense compute and our high performance, we expect to provide the same throughput with just four Dojo cabinets. Whoa. And these four Dojo cabinets will be part of our first exapod that we plan to build by quarter one of 2023. This will more than double Tesla's auto-labeling capacity. The first exapod is part of a total of seven exapods that we plan to build in Palo Alto right here across the wall. Wow. And we have a display cabinet from one of these exapods for everyone to look at. Six tiles densely packed on a tray, 54 petaflops of compute, 640 gigabytes of high bandwidth memory with power and host defeated. A lot of compute. And we're building out new versions of all our cluster components and constantly improving our software to hit new limits of scale. We believe that we can get another 10x improvement with our next generation hardware. <laughs> and to realize our ambitious the, order of magnitude? the best software and hardware engineers. Close enough. So please come talk to us or visit tesla.com slash AI. Thank you. All right, we're halfway. <laughs> is it the q a you think i think so yeah okay we're i have a philosophy degree would they hire me <laughs> i think they would all right so we, um hopefully that was oh my god detail. elon's still there uh and uh, now we can move to oh questions um it's gonna be some and, it's gonna be the guys, very uh, interesting part of the like i think the whole presentation the for come, sure. out, come, come out on stage and <laughs> but, we really wanted to show the, the depth and breadth of Tesla in um, artificial intelligence, uh, compute hardware, uh, robotics actuators, and, um, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people think we're like just a car company or we make cool Fun. cars or whatever, but uh, <laughs> they don't have, uh, most people have no idea that Tesla is arguably the, the leader in real-world uh, AI hardware and software, um, and that we're building uh, what is arguably the first, uh, the, the most radical computer architecture since the, the Crayon supercomputer. And I think if you're interested in developing uh, some, some of the most advanced technology in the world that's going to really affect the world in, in a positive way, uh, Tesla's the, the place to be. So yeah, let's fire away with some questions. I think there's, there's a mic juicy. at the front and a mic at the back. Yeah. Uh, Come on, James Dalma, give okay. us a question. On this side. Just, just throw mics at people. <laughs> <laughs> Jump all for the mic. <laughs> yeah, hi, thank you very much. I, I was impressed here. Yeah, I was impressed very much by Optimus, but I wonder why tendon-driven the hunt? Why did you choose a tendon-driven approach for the hunt? Because tendons are not very durable. 
and why spring loaded? Yeah, I don't know if they were well, spring loaded. Cool, awesome. Yes, that's a great question. Um, you know, when it comes to any type of actuation scheme, there's trade-offs between you know whether or not it's a tendon-driven system or some type of linkage-based system. Just keep the mic close to your mouth. A little bit closer. Yeah. Hear me? Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the main reason why we went for a tendon-based system is that you know first we actually investigated some synthetic tendons, but we found that metallic boating cables are you know a lot stronger. Um, one of the advantages of these cables um, is that it's very good for part reduction. Uh, we do want to make a lot of these hands, so having a bunch of parts, a bunch of small linkages, ends up being um, you know a problem when you're making a lot of something. Um, one of the big reasons that you know. Tendons are, are better than linkages in a sense is that you can be anti-backlash. Um, so anti-backlash essentially, you know, allows you to not have any gaps or, you know, stuttery motion in your fingers. Um, spring-loaded, uh, mainly what spring-loaded allows us to do is, is it allows us to have active opening. Um, so instead of having to have two actuators to drive the fingers closed and then open, we have the ability to you know, have the tendon drive them closed, and then the springs passively extend. And this is something that's seen in our hands as well, right? We have the ability to actively flex, and then we also have the ability to extend. Um, yeah. I mean, our goal with Optimus is to have a, a robot that is maximally useful as quickly as possible. So there's, there's a lot of ways to solve the various problems of, of a humanoid robot. Um, and uh, we're probably not barking up the right tree on, on all the technical solutions. And I should say that we're, we're open to evolving the technical solutions that you see here over time. We're not, they're not locked in stone. Um, but we, do, we have to pick something, um, in, and we want to pick, pick something that's going to allow us to produce the robot as quickly as possible and have it, like I said, be useful as quickly as possible. We're, we're trying to follow the, the goal of fastest path to a useful robot that can be made at volume and we're going to test the robot internally at Tesla uh, in, in our factory and, uh, and just see, like, how useful is it? Because you have to have a... You've got to close the loop on reality to confirm that the robot is, in fact, useful. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're just going to use it to build things. And um, we're confident we can do that with the hand that we have currently designed, but this... I'm, for sure, there'll be hand version two, version three, and we may change the architecture quite significantly over time. Notice how there's no ego here. This is what's great about Tesla, mm. there's zero um, ego. Your, the Optimus robot is really impressive. You did a great job. Um, bipedal robots are really difficult. Um, but what I noticed might be missing from your plan is uh, to acknowledge the utility of the human spirit, and I'm wondering if um, Optimus will ever get a personality and be able to laugh at our jokes while they while it folds our clothes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we want to have um, f really fun versions of Optimus, um, and uh, so that Opt Optimus can both do be utilitarian and do tasks, but can also be kind of like a friend um, and a buddy and and um, hang out with you, and uh, I'm sure people will think of all sorts of creative uses for this robot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, 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 the thing, uh, once, once you have the core uh, intelligence and actuators figured out, then you can actually, you know, put all sorts of 
costumes, I guess, <laughs> on, on the robot. I mean, you can make the robot look... Uh, if, uh, you can skin the robot in many different ways. Um, and um, I'm sure people will find uh, very interesting ways to, to uh, yeah, versions of Optimus. So. <laughs> uh, thanks for the great presentation. I wanted to know if there was an equivalent to interventions in Optimus. It seems like labeling through moments where humans disagree with what's going on is important. And in a humanoid robot, that might be also a desirable uh, source of information. Yes, want to say anything? Um, yeah, I, I think we uh, will have ways to remote operate the uh, robot and intervene when it does something bad, um, especially when we are training the robot and bringing it up. Um, and hopefully we you know, uh, design it in a way that we can stop the robot from if it's going to hit something, we can just like hold it and then it'll stop. It won't like you know crush your hand or something. And those are all intervention data. Um, yeah, and we can learn a lot from our simulation systems too, where we can check for collisions and supervise that those are bad actions. Uh, yeah, I mean, so Optimus, uh, we want over time to, for it to be, um, you know, an Android, the kind of Android that you've seen in in sci-fi movies like Star Trek: The Next Generation, like Data. But obviously, we could program the, the robot to be less robot-like and more friendly and, and uh, you know, it can obviously learn to emulate humans and, and feel very natural. So as, as AI in general improves, uh, we can uh, add that to the robot and, um, you know, it, sh it should be obviously able to do simple instructions uh, or even intuit what it is that you want. Um, so you could give it a high-level uh, instruction and then it can break that down into a series of actions and, and take those actions. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's exciting to think that with the Optimus, you will uh, think that you can achieve orders of magnitude of improvement in economic output. Um, that's really exciting. Um, and when Tesla started, the mission was to accelerate the advent of renewable energy or sustainable transport. Um, so with the Optimus, do you still see that mission being the mission statement of Tesla, or is it going to be updated with, you know, mission to Great accelerate question. the advent of, I don't know, infinite abundance or limitless, limitless economy? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is not strictly speaking, um, Optimus is not strictly speaking uh, directly in line with uh, accelerating sustainable energy. It, it you know... <clears throat> To the degree that it is more efficient at getting things done than, than a person, it, it does, I guess, help with uh, if, you know, sustainable energy. But it, I think the mission effectively does, does somewhat broaden with the advent of Optimus uh, to, uh, you know, I don't know, making the future awesome. So, you know, I think you look at Optimus, and um, I don't know about you, but I, I'm excited to see what Optimus will become. And, you know, this is like, you know, if, if you could, I mean, you can tell, like, any given technology, if, are you, do you want to see what it's like in a year, two years, three years, four years, five years, ten? I'd say for sure. You definitely want to see what, what's happening with Optimus. Um, whereas, you know, a, a bunch of other technologies are, you know, sort of plateaued. Um, won't name names here, but... Uh, <laughs> um, 
you know, so... The troll. I think Optimus is going to be incredible in like five years. Ten years, like, mind-blowing. <clears throat> and I'm really interested to see that happen, and I hope you are too. Oh, thank, um, I have a quick question here. I'm um, Justin. And I was wondering, like, are you planning to extend, like, conversational capabilities for the robot? And my second follow-up question to that is, what's, like, the end goal? What's the end goal with Optimus? Uh, yeah, Optimus would definitely have conversational capabilities. Uh, so um, I, I, it, you'd be able to talk to it and have a conversation, and it would feel quite natural. So... From an end goal standpoint, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I think it's going to keep, keep evolving, and I'm not sure where, where, where it ends up, but some, someplace interesting for sure. Um, you know, we always have to be careful about the, you know, don't go the, down the Terminator path. Uh, that's a, you know, I, I, th I thought we might, maybe we should start off with a video of like the Terminator starting off with this, you know, skull crushing, but. Oh, that might be, you know, people might take that too seriously. So, uh, you know, we, we, we do want uh, Optimus to be safe. So we are uh, designing in um, safeguards where you can uh, locally stop the robot. Um, and, uh, w you know, with, with like basically a, a localized control ROM that you can't update over the internet, which I think that's quite important. <laughs> um, essential, frankly. Um, so, uh, like a localized stop button, um, remote, or remote control, something like that, that, that cannot be changed. Um, but, I mean, it's get, definitely going to be interesting. It won't be boring. So. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, I see you today, you have a very attractive product with Dojo and its applications. So I'm wondering what's the future for the Dojo platform? Will you like, uh, provide like, uh, uh, infrastructure as service like AWS or you will like, uh, sell the chip like the NVIDIA? So basically, what, what's the future? Because the, I, I say you use 7 nanometers, so the development cost is like, uh, easily over $10 million. US dollars. How, how do you make the business like, uh, business-wise? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Dojo is, is, a, is a very big computer um, and actually will use a lot of power and need a lot of cooling. So I think it's probably going to make more sense to have Dojo operate in like a Amazon Web Services manner than to try to sell it to someone else. Um, so the, mm. that, that, the most, that would be the most efficient way to operate uh, Dojo is just have it be uh, a, a, a service that you can use uh, that's available online and that uh, where you can train your models uh, way faster and for less money. And uh, as the um, world transitions to software 2.0. <laughs> and that's on the bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> As someone I know has to not drink five tequilas. Um, so, uh, let's see. Um, Cheers. Software 2.0 will <laughs> <laughs> yeah. use a lot of uh, neural net training. So, uh, the, you know, it kind of makes sense that uh, over time, as there's more more neural net stuff, uh, it, people will want to use an, an, uh, the, the fastest, lowest cost neural net tr uh, training system. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that direction. Hi, 
My name is Ali Jahanian. Thank you for this event. It's very inspirational. My question is, uh, I'm wondering, what is your vision for uh, humanity robots that uh, understand our emotions and art and can contribute to our creativity? Well, I think there's, there's um, you're already seeing robots that at least uh, are able to generate very interesting art with like, like Dali um, and Dali 2. Um, and I think we'll, we'll start seeing uh, AI that can actually generate uh, even movies that have, a, that have coherence, like interesting movies and tell jokes. So it's, it's quite remarkable how fast AI is uh, advancing. Um, at, at many companies besides Tesla. We're headed for a very interesting future. And um, yeah, so you guys want to comment on that? Yeah, I guess uh, the Optimus robot can come up with physical art, not just digital art. You can, you, know, you can ask for some dance moves in text or voice, and then you can like, produce those in the future. So it's a lot, lot of like, physical art, not just digital art. Oh, yeah, yeah, computers can absolutely make uh, physical art, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, like dance, sure. play soccer, or whatever yeah. you, um, I mean, it needs to get more agile, but over time, mm -hmm. for sure. Thanks so much for the presentation. For the Tesla autopilot slides, I noticed that the models that you were using were heavily motivated by language models, and I was wondering what the history of that was and how much of an improvement it gave. I thought that that was a really interesting, curious choice to use language models for the lane transitioning? So there are sort of two aspects for why we transition to language modeling. So the um, first. Talk, talk loud and close. It, okay. It, it's not coming through right Okay, got it. Yeah, so the language models help us in two ways. The first way is that it lets us predict lanes that we couldn't have otherwise. As Ashok mentioned earlier, basically when we predicted lanes in sort of a dense 3D fashion, um, you can only model certain kinds of lanes, but we want to get those crisscrossing connections inside of intersections. It's just not possible to do that without making it a graph prediction. If you try to do this with dense segmentation, it just doesn't work. Um, also, the lane prediction is a multimodal problem. Sometimes you just don't have sufficient visual information to know precisely how things look on the other side of the intersection. So you need a method that can generalize and produce um, you know, coherent predictions. Um, you don't want to be predicting two lanes and three lanes at the same time. You want to commit to one, and a generative model like these language models provides that. Hi. Oh. Hi. Uh, my name is Giovanni. Um, yeah, thanks for the presentation. It's really nice. Uh, I have a question for FSD team. So uh, for the uh, neural networks, uh, how do you test, like, uh, how do you do unit tests, software unit tests on that? Like, do you have like a, a bunch or I don't know, maybe thousands or uh, yes, uh, cases where so the neural network that after you train it, you have to pass it before you release it to as a product, right? Uh, yeah, what's your uh, software unit testing strategies for this, basically? Yeah, glad you asked. There's like a series of tests that we have defined, uh, starting from you know unit tests for the software itself, but then for the neural network models, we have VAP sets defined where you know you can define. Uh, if you just have a large test set, that's not enough. What we find, uh, we need like sophisticated uh, VAP sets for different failure modes, and then we curate them and grow them over the time of the product. So over the years, we have like 
like hundreds of thousands of examples where we have been failing in the past that we have curated. And so we, for any new model, we test against the entire history of these failures uh, and then keep adding to this test set. On top of this, we have shadow modes where sh we ship these models in silent to the car and we get data back on where they are failing or succeeding. Uh, and there's an extensive QA program. It, it's very hard to ship a regression. There's like nine levels of filters before it hits customers. But then we have really good infra to make this all efficient. And I'm one of the QA testers. So I, I QA the car. Yeah, like uh, QA tester. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I'm constantly in the car just being QAing like whatever the latest uh, alpha build is that doesn't totally crash. Finds a lot of bugs. <laughs> yeah. uh, hi, um, great event. I have a question about uh, foundational models for autonomous driving. We have all seen that uh, big models that really can, when you scale up with data and model parameter, right, from GPT-3 to Palm, it can actually now do reasoning. Do you see that is essential uh, scaling up foundational models with data and size, and then? At least you can get a teacher model, right? That potentially can solve all the problems, and then you distill to a student model. Is is that how you see foundational models relevant for autonomous driving? That's quite similar to our auto labeling models. So we we don't just have models that run in the car. We train models that are entirely offline, that are like extremely large, that can't run in real time on the car. Uh, so we just run those offline on the servers, producing really good labels that can then train the online networks. Uh, so that's one form of distillation of these teacher student models. Uh, in terms of foundation models, we are building some really, really large data sets that you know, are multiple mul petabytes. And we are seeing that some of these tasks work really well uh, when we have these large data sets. Like the kinematics, like I mentioned, video in, all the kinematics out of all the objects, and up to the fourth derivative. And people thought we couldn't do detection with cameras. I mean, detection, depth, velocity, acceleration. And imagine how precise these have to be for these higher order derivatives to be accurate. And this all comes from these kind of large data sets and large models. So we're seeing the equivalent of foundation models in our own uh, way for geometry and kinematics and things like those. You want to add anything, John? Yeah, I'll keep it brief. Basically, whenever we train on a larger data set, we see big Okay. Basically, whenever we train on a larger data set, we see big improvements in our model <laughs> performance. And basically, whenever we initialize our networks with you know, some pre-training step from some other auxiliary task, we basically see improvements. Um, the self-supervised or supervised with large data sets both help a lot. Is Elon hazing this kid? Hi. Poor guy. So He's getting picked on so hard. Elon said that Tesla was potentially interested in building artificial general intelligence systems. Given the potentially transformative impact of a technology like that, it seems prudent to invest in technical AGI safety uh, expertise specifically. I know Tesla does a lot of technical narrow AI safety research. Uh, I was curious if Tesla was. Uh, intending to uh, try to build expertise in technical artificial general intelligence safety specifically? Well, if, I mean, if, if we saw it's looking like we're going to be uh, making a significant contribution to uh, artificial general intelligence, then, then we'll for sure invest in, in uh, safety. I'm a big believer in AI safety. I think there should be an AI uh, uh, sort of regulatory authority at, at the government level, uh, just as there is uh, a regulatory authority for 
uh, anything that uh, affects public safety. So we have regulatory authority for aircraft and cars and uh, sort of food and drugs and, uh, because they affect public safety. And AI also affects public safety. So I think, um, and this is not really something that government, I think, understands yet, but I think, I think there should be a referee that is uh, ensuring um, or doing, trying to ensure uh, public safety for uh, AGI. Um, and if you think of like, well, like what are the elements that are necessary to, to create AGI? Like uh, the accessible data set is extremely uh, important. And if you've got a large number of, of cars and humanoid robots uh, processing you know, petabytes of, of video data and audio data from the real world, uh, just like humans, that, that's, that might be the biggest data set. It probably is the biggest data set. Um, because in addition to that, you can obviously incrementally scan the, the internet. Um, but what the internet can't quite do is, is have millions or hundreds of millions of cameras in the real world. And, and with, with, uh, like I said, with audio and, 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 uh, and other sensors as well. So, so I think we, we, we probably will have the most amount of data um, and probably the most amount of, tr of training power. Therefore, probably uh, we will make a contribution to AGI. Hey, um, I noticed the uh, semi was back there, but we haven't talked about it too much. I was just wondering for the semi truck, what are the uh, changes you're thinking about from a sensing perspective? I imagine there's very different requirements, obviously, than just a car. If, and if you don't think that's true, why is that true? Uh, no, I think uh, it basically uh, you, you can drive a car. I mean, think about like, what, what drives any vehicle. It's um, a biological neural net uh, with, uh, with eyes, uh, with cameras, essentially. So if, um, and, and really, uh, what, what is your, your, your primary sensors are uh, two uh, cameras on a slow gimbal, a very slow gimbal. Um, that's, uh, that's your head. Uh, so if, if, um, you know, if a biological neural net with, with uh, two cameras on a slow gimbal can drive a semi-truck, then um, if you've got like eight cameras with continuous 360-degree vision uh, operating at a higher frame rate and much higher reaction rate, um, then I think it is obvious that you should be able to drive a semi or any, any vehicle much better than a human. Hi, my name is Akshay. Thank you for the event. Uh, assuming you know, Optimus would be used for different use cases and would evolve at different pace for these use cases, uh, would it be possible to sort of develop and deploy different software and hardware components independently and deploy them you know, uh, in, the, uh, in Optimus so that the overall you know, feature development is faster for Optimus? We did not comprehend. Uh, unfortunately, um, our neural net did not comprehend the question. Uh, yeah, so, well, yeah, next question. Hi, I want to switch the gear to the autopilot. So, um, when you guys plan to roll out the FSD beta to countries other than US and Canada, 
And also my next question is, uh, what's the biggest bottleneck or the technological barrier you think in the current autopilot stack? And uh, how you envision to solve that to make the autopilot is considerably better than human in terms of like, performance metrics like safety assurance and the human confidence? And I think you also mentioned for v, uh, FSD V11, you are guys going to combine the highway and the city as a single stack and some architectural uh, big improvement. Can you maybe expand a bit on that? Thank you. Uh, well, that's a whole bunch of questions. Well, we, we, um, <laughs> I, I, we're hopeful to be able to, I, I think from a technical standpoint, um, FSD beta should be, should be possible to roll, roll out FSD beta uh, uh, worldwide by the end of this year. Um, um, Whoa. But we, you know, for, for a lot of countries, we need regulatory approval. Um, and so we are wow. somewhat gated <laughs> by the regulatory approval in other countries. Um, but, I, you know, I, but I think from a technical standpoint, it will be ready to go uh, to, to a worldwide beta by the end of this year. Uh, and there's quite a big improvement that we're expecting to release next month uh, that will be especially oh, good at uh, uh, assessing the velocity of, of fast-moving cross-traffic and, and a bunch of other things. So. Anyone elaborate? Yeah, I guess so. There used to be a lot of differences between production autopilot and the full self-driving beta, but those differences have been getting smaller and smaller over time. Mike up there. Um, I think just a few months ago, we now use the same vision-only object detection stack in both FSD and in the production autopilot on all vehicles. Um, there's still a few differences, the primary one being the way that we predict lanes right now. Um, so we upgraded the modeling of lanes so that it could handle these more complex geometries like I mentioned in the talk. Um, in production autopilot, we still use a simpler lane model, but we're extending our current FSD beta models to work in all sort of highway scenarios as well. Uh, yeah, and, and the, the, the version of uh, FSD beta that I drive actually does have the integrated stack. So just, uh, it, it uses the FSD stack uh, both in city streets and highway, and uh, it works quite well for me. Uh, we, but we need to validate it in all kinds of weather, like heavy rain, snow, dust, um, and, uh, and just make sure it's working uh, as, uh, better than the production stack uh, in, in across a wide range of uh, in, environments. Uh, but we're pretty close to that. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't know, maybe it'll definitely be before the end of the year, and, and may, maybe November. Yeah, in our personal drives, uh, the FSD stack on highway drives already way better than the production stack we have. And we do expect to also include the parking lot stack as a part of the FSD stack before the end of this year. So that Whoa. will basically bring Two us weeks. to you sit in the car in yeah. the parking lot and drive till the end of the parking lot at a parking spot before the end of this year. Yeah, and, and in terms of the, the, like the, 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 fundamental, the fundamental metric to optimize against is um, how many miles per in, uh, between inter, a necessary intervention. So um, just uh, massively improving the, how many miles the car can drive on, in full autonomy before an intervention is required that is uh, safety critical. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the fundamental metric that we're measuring uh, every week and um, we're making radical improvements on that. Oh, hi. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for the presentation. Very inspiring. Uh, my name is Daisy. I actually have a non-technical question for you. I'm curious uh, if you are back <laughs> to your 20s 
Uh, what are some of the things you wish you knew back then? What are some advice you would give to your younger self? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we're... Oh, he's thinking about it. Oh, my goodness. Look at him. Ooh, well, I'm trying to figure out something useful. A question. Uh, to say... Work for Tesla. Yeah, yeah join Tesla. <laughs> it's a recruiting event. Don't drink so much. Um, yeah, there you go. Did he just, he just say said it? it. He yeah, just he said, said it. it. Um, uh, yeah, I think just generally try drink. to um, expose yourself to as many smart people as possible. I don't know, read a lot of books. Um, you know, I do. That did do that, though. Uh, so. Um, <laughs> I think there's, there's some merit to just also uh, like not being like necessarily too intense uh, uh, and, and like enjoying the moment a bit more, I would say, to 20 or 20 something me. Uh, just to, you know, uh, stop and smell the roses occasionally would probably be a good idea. Um, good present. You know, it's like when we were developing the, the, the Falcon 1 rocket and uh, on. on the Kwajalein Atoll, and we had this beautiful little island that we were developing the rocket on. And not once during that entire time did I even have a drink on the beach. I'm like, well, I should have had a drink on the beach. That would have uh, been fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I think you have wow. excited that all of the honest people with, with Optimus. Uh, this feels very much like 10 years ago in driving, but as uh, driving has proved to be harder than it actually looked 10 years ago. What do we know now that we didn't 10 years ago that would make, for example, AGI on a humanoid come faster? Well, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that AGI is advancing very quickly. Um, hardly a week goes by without some significant announcement. And uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, like AI seems to be able to win at almost any rule-based game. Uh, it's, it's able to create extremely impressive art, um, engage in conversations that are, are very sophisticated, you know, uh, write essays, and these, these just keep improving. Um, and there's, there's so much more, so, so many more talented people working on AI and the hardware is getting better. I think it's just, it's a, AI is on a super, like a, a strong exponential curve of, of improvement, independent of what we do at, at Tesla. Um, and obviously we'll benefit somewhat from, from that exponential curve of, of improvement with AI. Um, like Tesla just also happens to be very good at actuators, at motors, at, you know, motors, gearboxes, controllers, power electronics, batteries, um, sensors. And, um, you know, really, like, I'd say that, you know, the, the biggest difference between the robot on four wheels and the robot with arms and legs is, is getting the actuators right. Actuator, it's an actuators and sensors problem. Um, and obviously, the, the, you know, how you control those actuators and sensors, but it, it's, uh, yeah, actuators and sensors and how you control the actuators, it's... Uh, I don't know, we have to have like the ingredients necessary to create a compelling robot, and we're doing it, so. Hi, Elon. Uh, you are actually bringing the humanity to the next level, literally Tesla and you 
or bringing the humanity to the next level. So you said Optimus Prime, uh, Optimus will be used in next Tesla factory. My question is, will a new Tesla factory will be fully run by Optimus program? And, and when can general public order a humanoid? Yeah, I, th I think it'll, it'll, you know, we're going to start Optimus with very simple tasks in the factory. Um, you know, like maybe just like loading a part, like you saw in the video, loading a part, uh, you know, carrying a part from one place to another or loading a part into um, a, a, one of our more conventional robot cells uh, to, you know, uh, that, that welds body together. So we'll start, you know, just trying to, how do we make it useful at all? Um, and, then, and then gradually expand the number of situations where it's useful. Um, and I think that, that the number of situations where Optimus is useful will, will grow exponentially, um, like really, really fast. Um, in terms of when people can order one, I don't know, I, I think it's not that far away. Um, well, yeah, I think you mean when can people receive one? <laughs> um, so. I don't know, I'm like, I'd say probably within three years, not more than five years. No Within three to five way. years, you could probably receive an Optimus. Uh, I feel the best way to make the progress for AGI is to involve as many smart people across the world as possible. And given the size and resource of Tesla compared to robot companies, and given the state of humanoid research at the moment, would it make sense for the kind of Tesla to sort of open source some of the simulation hardware parts? I think Tesla can still be the dominant platformer where it can be something like Android OS or like iOS stuff for the entire human research. Would that be something that rather than keeping the Optimus to just Tesla researchers or the factory itself, can you open it and let the whole world explore the human research? Um, I think we have to be careful about Optimus being potentially uh, used uh, in ways that are bad, because uh, that is one of the possible things to do. So I think we'd, 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 you know, we'd provide Optimus where you can provide instructions to Optimus, but where those instructions are uh, you know, governed by some laws of robotics um, that uh, you cannot uh, overcome. Uh, so, you know, not doing harm to others, and uh, it would have, I think, probably quite a few safety-related things with, with Optimus. Yeah. So, all right, we'll, we'll just take uh, maybe a few more questions, and then, and then, and then, thank you all for coming. Questions, um, one deep and one broad. On the deep for Optimus, what's the current and what's the ideal controller bandwidth? And then in the broader question, uh, there's this big advertisement for the depth and breadth of the company. What is it uniquely about Tesla that enables that? Good question. Uh, Anyone want to tackle the bandwidth question? Yeah. So the technical bandwidth yep. of the... Close to your mouth and loud. Okay. For the bandwidth question, <laughs> you have to understand or, or figure out what is the task that you want it to do. And what is the free, if you took a frequency transform of that task, what is it that you want your limbs to do? And that's where you get your bandwidth from. It's not a number that you can specifically just say. You need to understand your use case. And that's, from, that's where the bandwidth comes from. 
can, what are the broad questions? I don't quite remember. The, the breadth and depth thing. I can answer the breadth and depth question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm the CEO. That's a speciality. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, on the bandwidth question, I think we'll probably will just uh, end up uh, increasing the bandwidth, or you know, which translates to the effective uh, dexterity um, and reaction time of the of the robot. Um, like you could, it's safe to say it's not one hertz, um, and it's maybe you don't need to go all the way to 100 hertz, uh, but I don't know, maybe 10, 25, I don't know. It, but I, it, over time, I think the, the bandwidth will, will increase quite a bit, uh, or, or, or translated to uh, dexterity and latency. Um, uh, you'd you'd want to minimize that over time. Uh, yeah. Uh, minimize latency, maximize dexterity. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, breadth and depth, um, I, I guess we, you know, we, we, we've got, we're a pretty big company at this point, so we've got a lot of different areas of expertise that we necessarily had to develop in order to make autonomous, or in order to make electric cars, and then in order to make uh, autonomous electric cars. Um, we've, we've just, I mean, Tesla is like a whole series of startups, basically. And um, so far, they've um, like almost all been quite successful. Um, so we must, we must be doing something right. Um, and uh, I, you know, I consider one of my uh, core responsibilities uh, in running the company is to have an environment where uh, great engineers can flourish. And, and I think in, in a lot of companies, I don't know, maybe most companies, uh, if, if somebody's a really talented, driven engineer, they, they're unable to actually, uh, their, their talents are, are, are suppressed at, at a lot of companies. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and some of the companies that the engineering talent is suppressed in a way that is uh, maybe not obviously bad, but, but where it's just so comfortable and you're paid so much money, and you're, but you're, 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 the output you actually have to produce is so low that it's like a honey trap, you know? So, like, there's a few honey trap uh, places in Silicon Valley uh, where they're not necessarily don't seem like bad places for engineers, but you have to say, like, a good engineer went in, and what did they get out? <laughs> and the output uh, uh, of, of that engineering talent seems very low, um, even though they seem to be enjoying themselves. Uh, that's why I call it, there's a few honey trap companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, Tesla is not a honey trap. We're demanding, and it's like, you're going to get a lot of shit done, um, and it's going to be really cool. Um, and it's you know, not going to be easy. But uh, if you are a super talented uh, engineer, uh, your talents will be uh, used, I think, to a greater degree than anywhere else. You know? I love SpaceX that answer that so way. much. Yeah. So. Incredible Tesla. answer. You're going to get a lot I of shit done. Uh, uh, I love I it. Have two oh, that would have been so a good one to end on. Go to the autopilot team. So the thing is, like, uh, I have been following your progress for the past few years. So today you have made changes on, like, the lane detection. Like, you said that, like, previously you were doing instant semantic segmentation. Now you guys have built transform models for, like, building the lanes. So what are another, some, some other common challenges which you guys are facing right now, like, which you are solving in future as a curious engineer so that, like, we as a researcher can work on those, start working on those. And the second question is, like, I'm really curious about the data engine, like, you guys have like told a case like where the car is stopped. So how are you finding cases which is very much similar to that from the data which you have? Like so, 
little bit more on the data engine would be great. So that's it. Okay. Um, I'll start answer the first question uh, using occupancy network as an example. So uh, what you saw in the presentation did not exist a year ago. So we only spent one year of time. We actually shipped more than 12 occupancy network. And uh, to have a one foundation model actually uh, to represent the entire physical world uh, around everywhere and in all weather conditions is actually really, really challenging. So. Uh, only over a year ago, we're kind of like driving a 2D world. If there's a wall and if there's a curve, we kind of represent with the same static edge, which is obviously you know, not, not, not ideal, right? There's a big difference between a curve and a wall. When you drive, you make different choices, right? So after we re realized that we have to go to 3D, we have to basically rethink the entire problem and think about how we address that. So this will be like one example of uh, challenges we have, uh, uh, we have conquered in the past year. Yeah, to answer the question about how we actually source examples of the tricky stopped cars, there's a few ways to go about this, but two examples are one, we can trigger for disagreements within our signals. So let's say that parked bit flickers between parked and driving, we'll trigger that back. And the second is we can leverage more of the shadow mode logic. So if the customer ignores the car, but we think we should stop for it, we'll get that data back too. So these are just different, like various trigger logic that allows us to get those data campaigns back. Hi. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, thank you for the amazing presentation. Thanks so much. Uh, so there are a lot of companies that are focusing on the AGI problem. And one of the reasons why it's such a hard problem is because the problem itself is so hard to define. Several companies have several different definitions. They focus on different things. So what is Tesla, how is Tesla defining the AGI problem? And what are you focusing on specifically? Well, well we're, we're not actually specifically focused on AGI. I'm simply saying that AGI is so, is, seems likely to be an emergent property of, of what we're doing. Um, because we're creating all these autonomous cars and autonomous uh, humanoids um, that are actually uh, with an, a truly gigantic data stream that's coming in and, and being processed. Um, it's by far the most amount of real world data. And, and data you can't get by just searching the internet, because you have to be out there in the world and interacting with people and interacting with the, the roads and, and just, you know, it's, Earth is a big place. Uh, and reality is messy and complicated. Um, so, so I think it's sort of like uh, likely to just, it just seems likely to be an emergent property of if, if you've got you know, tens or hundreds of millions of autonomous vehicles and, and maybe even a comparable number of humanoids, uh, maybe more than that on the humanoid front. Um, well, that's just the most amount of data. Um, and if that, uh, that, that video is being processed, it just seems likely that you know, the, the cars will will definitely get way better than human drivers, and the, the humanoid robots will become increasingly indistinguishable from humans, perhaps. Um, and, and so then, like I said, you have this uh, emergent property of, of, of AGI. Um, and, and arguably, the, you know, humans collectively are sort of a, a superintelligence as well, especially as we improve the, the data rate between humans. I mean, the thing like, that seemed to me way back in the early days of the internet was like the internet was like um, humanity acquiring a nervous system where 
now all of a sudden any one element of humanity could know uh, all of the knowledge of, of humans by connecting to the internet, almost all the knowledge, or certainly a huge part of it, whereas previously uh, we would exchange information by osmosis, by, by, you know, by, we'd have to, like, in order to transfer data, so you would have to write a letter, someone would have to carry the letter by person to another person, and then a whole bunch of things in between, and then it, it was like, yeah, I mean, insanely slow when you think about it. Um, and even if you were in the Library of Congress, you still didn't have access to all the world's information, and you certainly couldn't search it. Uh, and, and obviously, very few people are in the Library of Congress. So, um, I mean, one of the great um, sort of equality elements, like the, the internet is, has, has been the most, the biggest equalizer in history in terms of access to information and knowledge. Um, and, and any student of history, I think, would agree with this. Because, you know, you go back a thousand years, there were very few books. Like, like, and books would be incredibly expensive, but only a few people knew how to read, and only if, an even smaller number of people even had a book. <laughs> now, now look at it, like you, you, you can access any book instantly, you can learn anything for basically for free. It's pretty incredible. So, you know, I, I was asked uh, recently what period of history would I prefer to be at the most? And my answer was right now. This is the most interesting time in history, and I read a lot of history. So let's, oh, yeah, let's do our best to keep that going. <laughs> yeah. And, and to go back to one of the earlier questions I would answer, like, you, you can, you, the, the thing that's happened over time with respect to uh, Tesla Autopilot is that we've just, the, the neural nets have gotten, have, have gradually absorbed more and more software. And in, in the limit, of course, you could say, simply take the videos as seen by the car uh, and compare those to the, the steering inputs from the steering wheel and pedals, which are very simple inputs. Uh, and it, in principle, you could train with, with nothing in between, because uh, that's what humans are doing with a biological neural net. You could train based on video, and, uh, and, and, the, and the, what trains the video is the, the, the moving of the, uh, the steering wheel and the pedals, with no other software in, bete in between. We're not there yet, but it's gradually going in that direction. Uh, All right, well, maybe the last question. Uh, I think we've got a question at the front here. Uh, hello, there, right there. <laughs> oh, we'll do two questions, fine. Hi, <laughs> um, uh, thanks for such a great presentation. We'll do your question last. Okay, cool. Um, with FSD being used by so many people, uh, do you think, what's the comp how do you evaluate the company's risk tolerance in terms of performance statistics, and do you think there needs to be more transparency or regulation from third parties as to how, what's good enough and um, defining like, thresholds for performance uh, across so many miles? Uh, sure, well, the, you know, I, I, the, the number one design uh, requirement at Tesla is safety. So, um, like, and, and that goes across the board. So in terms of uh, the mechanical safety of the car, um, we have the lowest probability of injury of any cars ever tested by the government uh, for just um, a, a passive mechanical safety, essentially crash structure, uh, and, and airbags and whatnot. Um, 
uh, we have the best, uh, uh, highest rating for active safety as well. Um, and um, I think it's going to get to the point where you, you, the active safety is so ridiculously good, it's, 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 it's a, like just absurdly better than, than, than a human. Um, and then with respect to uh, autopilot, um, we do publish this, uh, broadly speaking, the statistics on um, miles driven or th with cars that have no autonomy, or t Tesla cars with no autonomy, with kind of uh, hardware one, hardware two, hardware three, um, and then uh, the ones that are in FSD beta. Um, and we see steady improvements all along the way. Um, and you know, sometimes there's, th there's this dichotomy of, you know, should you uh, wait until the car is like, I don't know, th uh, three times safer than a person before deploying any technology. But I think that's, uh, that is actually morally wrong. Um, at the point at which you believe that, the, that adding autonomy uh, reduces uh, injury and death, um, I think you have a moral obligation to deploy it, uh, even though you're going to get sued and blamed by a lot of people because the people whose lives you saved don't know that their lives are saved, and the people, the people who's, who, who do occasionally die or get injured, they definitely know, or their estate does, uh, that it was, you know, uh, whatever, there was a problem with, with, with autopilot. Um, that's why you have to look at the, at, at the numbers in sort of total miles driven, how many accidents occurred, how many accidents were serious, how many fatalities, and, you know, we've got well over three million cars on the road, so this, it's, that's a lot of miles driven every day. Um, and it's not going to be perfect, but what, what matters it is, that, is that it is very clearly safer uh, than not deploying it. Um, yeah. So, I think, uh, last question. I think, yeah, so, uh, thanks. Well, the last question here. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got it. Okay. Uh, hi. So um, I do not work on hardware, so maybe the hardware team and you guys can enlighten me. Uh, why is it required that there be symmetry um, in the design of Optimus? Because humans, uh, we have handedness, right? We are we use some set of muscles more than others. Over time, there is wear and tear. Uh, right, so maybe you'll start to see some joint failures or some actuator failures more over time. I understand that this is extremely pre-stage. Um, also, um, we as humans have based so much fantasy and fiction over superhuman capabilities. Like all of us don't want to walk right over there. We want to extend our arms, and like we have all these, sure. you know, a lot of fantasy, fantastical designs. So. Considering everything else that is going on in terms of um, batteries and intensity of compute, maybe you can leverage all those aspects into coming up with something, well, I don't know, uh, more interesting in terms of your, the robot that you're building. And I'm hoping uh, you're able to explore those directions. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be cool to have, like, you know, make Inspector Gadget real. That would be pretty sweet. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, right now we, we, we just want to make a basic humanoid work well, and, and our goal is fastest path to a useful uh, humanoid robot. I think this, is, this will ground us in reality, literally, um, and ensure that we are uh, doing something useful. Like, one of the hardest things to do is to be useful. 
uh, to to actually and then and then to have high utility under the curve of like how many people did you help, you know, and uh, how, how much help did you, you know, uh, provide to each person on average, and then how many people did you help? The total utility, uh, like trying to actually ship useful product that people like to a large number of people is so insanely hard. It boggles the mind. Um, you know, that's why, like I said, like, man, there's a hell of a difference between a company that has shipped product and one that has not shipped product. Uh, it's a game, this is night and day. Um, and then even once you ship product, can you make the cost, the value of the output worth more than the, the cost of the input? Which is, again, insanely difficult, especially with hardware. So, um, but I think over time, I think it would be cool to do creative things and have like eight arms and whatever, um, and have different versions, uh, and maybe, you know, there'll be some hardware, like companies that add, are able to add things to an Optimus, like maybe we, we, we you know, add a, add a power port or something like that, or attach them, you can add, you know, add attachments to your Optimus, like you can add them to your phone. Um, there could be a lot of cool things that could be done over time, and there could be maybe an ecosystem of small companies that, or big companies that uh, make uh, add-ons for Optimus. So uh, with that, uh, 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 I'd like to th thank the team for their hard work. Uh, you guys are awesome. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, thank, and uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, for everyone on online, thanks for tuning in. Um, and I think uh, this, this will be one of those great videos where you can, like, if you, you can fast forward to the bits that you find most interesting. Uh, but we try to give you a in? tremendous amount of detail, uh, literally, so that you can look at the video at your leisure and you can focus on the parts that you find interesting and skip the other parts. Uh, so uh, thank you all, uh, it's, it's, and we'll do this, uh, try to do this every year, and uh, we might do a, pod, a monthly podcast even. Um, uh, so, uh, Please. but I think it'd be you know, uh, great to sort of uh, bring you along for the ride and, and, and like show you uh, what, what cool things are, are happening, and um, yeah, thank you. All right, thanks. Wow, we made it, y'all. We did finish the last of my tequila here. Three um, hours and how many minutes? Uh, minutes? Four hours. We've been streaming for over four hours. Holy um, shit. Let's go. For everyone who's continued to watch this, I was, I've been watching the graph, and uh, we have some uh, pretty uh, some pretty tenacious viewers here. Yeah. Good yeah. for you guys. There's yeah. so much here. I want to talk about some of the stuff here. Uh, first of all, a great comment, by the way about Tesla bots being important for agriculture. Mm. And that didn't come up in the presentation at all, right. but that's from you guys, and I think that's a really good point. After we saw Tesla bot there, I think that um, that's a big use for Tesla bot in the future. Just want to yep. shout out to that. Um, I thought that, you know, so many people in the chat didn't get it. I'm sorry to say. So many people <laughs> in the chat were saying like, Tesla stock's gonna drop on Monday. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is awful. I don't think you got it. This wasn't about presentation. Like these are not great presenters. These are great engineers. Right. That's right. And so when Elon said um, how Tesla treats engineers compared to other companies, that was the message he was getting out to. If you're a great engineer watching right now, right. that resonated with you. And this entire presentation resonated with you because instead of you being shoved to the back and we're going to bring up our greasy salesman who's going to say like, you know, hey, and this is what this is the, the short deal of it. Um, they were bringing up amazing engineers who were working on stuff that is 
absolutely positively tip of the spear cutting edge um amazing i mean farzad please tell me all right yes. when we saw tesla bot come out i yes. know a lot of comments were like need to wheel them out so this is so <laughs> dumb um Hello, people. This is not something they've worked on for 40 years. This is something they've worked on for six to I, eight months. That's I love right. The, I love the Boston Dynamics. You see, well, they got a robot. It's like, do you know how long Boston Dynamics exactly. has been working on this? And exactly. I mean, it's crazy. They, and and but, everyone seems to have missed, and maybe it was because the stream was going down, Um, the robot walking around. Yeah. It was walking on its own two yes. legs with no nothing. Yes. Fully yep. self-powered. Yep. Which meant that it had a battery inside of it. Yep. It was not tethered. Um, so let's start off with the robot. Yeah. Farzad, what are your thoughts on I mean that happened four hours ago, so it made me <laughs> yeah. a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you've had to drink more than we have, by the way. I did. I'm four, I'm four beers in. I'm definitely not sober. I'm just gonna be super <laughs> honest right now, but I can definitely form uh formulate thoughts here. By the way, okay. uh thank you all for sticking with us, by the way. This this yeah. has been a super informational dance uh um event, and I try my best to take notes, honestly. A lot of it. A lot of it in the middle section was over my head, to be completely honest. But I tried my best to sort of what? infer. What do you want me to describe really? the dojo mesh to you? Let's Is go that back. Oh uh, yeah, please, yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, yeah Should please. we just watch that whole section <laughs> yeah. one more time? In let's detail, watch it again. Um, please, was, please. I think that it's yeah. okay if it was over anyone's head. Um, yeah. That, yeah. But do you know what that was? And I think it, a lot of our viewers, at least, got it. It was it's transformational, yeah. right? Exactly. Oh, exactly. It's it's and yeah. it's transformational from the standpoint of of a company that's willing to invest its time and money into what it knows needs to happen to achieve the next generation of manufacturing, the next generation of AI, and the next generation of what they're trying to build. So my my honestly, my biggest takeaway from this entire event, and this is what I experienced at Tesla when I was working there, is that Tesla's never afraid to show its its uh, its hand, right? And this is a it comes from a from a level of confidence that the company has in its employees and it's what it's working on. So what you notice, what I noticed at least, and I'm sure everybody else has noticed, was that there, there was a stage full of what 20, 30 people who are not salespeople, like like you guys mentioned very, very, very uh, astutely here. They're not salespeople, they're not marketers, they are engineers, they're builders. So when you think about something that gets put together and released to the masses, be it a, a phone, a car, a service, whatever it is. It's not the people that are selling that shit to you. It's the people that are building it behind the scenes. Tesla is not afraid to put those people in the forefront and talk about what they're doing that makes that product so special. So like if you're a company that's watching this presentation like i'm trying to put myself in in the in the minds and in the in the heads of somebody that's like at a gm or a honda or a boston dynamics or meta or or twitter wherever this presentation touched so many points i look at this presentation and i'm like i wish my company did that i wish my company had all the talent that's working on these crazy things and then just show it to the world in detail what they're working on and say, yep, this is what we're working on. This is how we're going to achieve this thing. We're going to be super technical about it. And I dare you guys to come after us, right? It shows a level of, of very understated confidence that I think doesn't get recognized enough. This is a company that's very confident in its trajectory towards what they're building. 
And the fact that they're so willing to come and spend three hours, over three hours, presenting this to the world super openly. And then at the end, take a wide open Q&A where none of the questions were, were, were screened. Nothing was looked after. Everybody just asked whatever questions they wanted. And if you notice, the, the, the audience was super smart. They were asking very technical questions. Hey, why aren't you doing this? Hey, how come you're approaching it this way? It wasn't like, hey, pat in the back. This was amazing. It's like, good presentation, but how come you're not doing this? How come mm -hmm. you're not doing that? That shows that Tesla attracts a level of, of, of customer and a level of interest from people that are willing to question how the company approaches it and 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 the company has has zero ego when it comes to this right they're like okay yeah just ask us whatever question you want we just want to get better this is the formula that allowed tesla to achieve what they have so far and they're very plainly using that same formula to go into the next generation of the company so for me it, it doesn't matter that was my biggest takeaway is that the the heart and the culture of the company is alive and well and strong and they're not afraid to put themselves in a vulnerable position to be questioned about what they're doing and they're not afraid to show their entire hand what what other company is going to come forward and, and show in detail what sort of technology they're working on this is this does not exist these this is 17 layers of lawyers going through their technology and saying hey do not show this this is proprietary information how dare you tesla's like fuck it we're going to show this to everybody and this right. is how we're going to yeah. win the race right that was really good takeaway right it was like, incredible even if it was like okay yeah come steal everything that we just presented here what we what we're showing you is that we're going to be 10 steps ahead by the time you've successfully copied everything yeah. that we've just said but it's you know ultimate um, separation it's insane it was right. completely it's, nuts it's like um, it's like you know Usain Bolt saying like okay anyone um, I'm you know uh, ninety percent through with this race does anyone want to come in with me right here and and we'll run the last hundred meters and he's like fine that's fine I'll still win because I'm Usain Bolt I will exactly always right. be faster but you know the one missing set of engineers on that stage oh were the audio engineers and <laughs> I think that our friends at corporate streams who are running this would agree mm. I just don't like Tesla events for this one reason they're so awesome they're so amazing but the audio is always lacking mm. and uh I it just I had trouble hearing them by the way I just wanted to plug for corporate streams yeah. for putting on this amazing stream tonight with Farzad and us um, and also a plug yes. for our sponsor, Sparrow Worldwide. If you want to win a Tesla Model S Plaid right now, go to sparrowworldwide.org. The link is down below. It's 150 bucks for your chance to win a Model S Plaid. There's only 5,000 tickets available, and they've only sold 25%, so you have a great chance to win. So thank you for sponsoring this. Um, no power tools were used. <laughs> yeah, all right. So let's go back to the to the robot demo. Yeah. You guys called Everything it, though. You guys called it. The moving of the boxes was your your thing and they and we saw uh, you know it was film but still the sure. the robot moved boxes you i mean so they were very it was very obvious to me that both of the on stage uh robots <laughs> were like they did not want them to be walking around on stage by themselves very you could tell stage. that the engineers were like uh no thank you did you see how elon pushed the envelope though he yeah. was like up until now, we've never tried this on stage, right. and he was willing yeah. to push to it like he did stage, with the right. um, Cybertruck. And exactly like the Cybertruck, I was live streaming both of those events, and I was standing there at the Cybertruck event with a phone in my hand, and, and as soon as the Cybertruck came out, I was so 
worried because everyone was like, that's the ugliest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. That's so <laughs> ugly. That's ridiculous. No one's going to buy it. And uh, I don't know. I haven't checked the latest numbers on the pre-orders for the Cybertruck. Um, yeah, so it's like I – and if you let yourself be swayed by these people who don't um, know anything, <laughs> I, I love how they're just like uh, – people – in general, are just so, and I'm not talking to most of our audiences here, but they're just so willing to just be like, I don't understand it, so it must be dumb. Yeah. And it's like, when you hear a three-hour-long presentation with, with the smartest people you've ever seen in your life, yeah. and they all work for the same fucking company, yeah. and they're all like talking about the most high-tech stuff that's happening, um, I just, I mean, yeah, it's really tough to hear. And it's really tough for me because I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what they're saying. And then I'm like, oh, I got, I understood that point. That's good. Yeah. But I mean, if if you're not there, and let's be let's be real, tomorrow morning, uh, the the mainstream press is gonna have a field day with this event. Yeah, it's it's gonna be viewed as a very like haphazard sort of like what are they doing? It's very unpolished. We didn't really see anything in person. And listen, like I, I, I will say that for part of what was shown, like, like I'll give them if there's one point of criticism I'll give Tesla is um spe specifically around full self-driving. Like I think for full self-driving, we're getting to the point now where where we need to see it actually become a reality in in people's hands because it's something that's been talked about for four, five, six years time. And they spent a lot of time in this presentation talking about the the technical work that's going to get it to that point, which is fine, which is completely fine. But I think if there is if there is uh, continued improvement, let, let me rephrase it. There needs to be continued dramatic improvement in full self-driving to really reach that goal of uh, level four or whatever level five level four by the end of the year in at least some jurisdictions um we, we need to see that happen and this presentation to me from that standpoint was like cool so you're working on the things to get there let's actually see it happen right but when it comes to the bot itself i think the fact that the bot was able to come out and walk period when this is a, th a thing that they were working on just last year and it was able to come out and walk and make some movement and they showed different videos of it you know again there were videos i get it, and they're probably pre-programmed and so on and so forth so it kind of like reached that sort of like bottom tier level that i that, that i outlined um that's fine that's great so we've hit a target but they did that in six to eight months that that's that's the right. point that can't be that can't be dismissed this was done in a, on exactly. a very 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 fast timeline so if you if, if you extrapolate this out there was a comment that Elon made um, later in the presentation in the Q&A section, I believe, where he said that he expects people to start receiving Optimus. You can receive an Optimus in three to five years from now. Right. Yeah. So this is Elon time. Right. So this is probably going to be five to eight years. But it, it, that at least gives us gives us a timeline that says that, hey, outside of how outside of what Tesla was thinking about um, as far as implementing Optimus within a factory setting or internally, they're expecting this solution to be ready for the regular consumer in five to say five to eight years time, or if we take them to the world three to five years time, this is way, way faster, really infinitely faster than any other company has ever been able to do this because that's, this never, this never has been done before. And then you take something like a Boston right dynamics who created the robot, I don't know, 10 years ago now, 
and it still is nowhere to be found for anybody to actually use. And this goes back to Elon's comment around it's extremely difficult to make something useful, right? It's extremely difficult to make something useful. So um, I don't know, man. I, I, I think I think in the end for, for, for the bot specifically, uh, no one's going to get it. I really don't think no one's going to get it. And I, and I get why they wouldn't get it. But unless you're really um, uh, invested in the company and really understand what the future could hold for this technology, it's going to be hard to grasp just how transformational the way Tesla approaches engineering and manufacturing really is. And the fact, again, that they had all those freaking insanely talented people in front of an audience just asking them questions. And yeah, Elon answered like 70, 80 percent of them. But at least they were transparent in their methodology speaks volumes to how confident they are in the path that they're going towards. And right. yeah, man, it's it's very I'm very optimistic about the future of this technology. Um, right. Yeah, I so agree with you. I want to just talk about timescale for a second, because I do think that that is the biggest problem people have with this company. They saw yeah. that robot and a lot of the comments were Honda had this robot years ago. Um, yeah, you're not getting it that what these with this amazingly talented team of people did was from scratch came up with the robot because Elon said we're doing this and he pulled people off other teams and he said work on this and in this amount of time they have this. It's, right. it's so hard to analyze because the problem is. Uh, Boston Dynamics has come out with the dancing robots and the backflips and the the fun. You know, you you're happy because you've seen those videos where the robots are dancing to the to that song that you really like. Um, those are pre-recorded, pre-programmed videos. If the robot falls down, they they just they wipe off all mm -hmm. the scuffs and they do it again, and you do not see that take. Um, what the, what Tesla did today, there was zero room for error if the robot fell down we would see the robot I, fall down there there is a there's a huge difference be between seeing a marketing video and seeing a live tech demo presentation on a stage and and i just want to push back about something i know that we all you know think that elon has elon time and that you even said it like if he said three to five years it means five to eight mm. i'm going to push back on that a little bit i do think in three to five years they will have a tesla bot working in their factories do i think it will be the gen four yeah. or five no but i do think that from what i just saw tonight if they can do that in six to eight months i do think in three to five years they can definitely have a tesla bot available that can work in a factory um or that will have been working in their factory so to all these people in the comments are like it's 10 years out it's 20 years out i didn't i don't feel that i feel that that team is incredible and i think that they're going to achieve quite a high level of robot and and what do they just do i mean let's say let's say right now um, you are, and I know that a lot of people aren't this, right? It's a very small upper echelon engineering type of person mm -hmm. who's going to be thinking, I, uh, you know, I don't really like working at this company. I feel like I'm a better engineer than this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to, uh, do something really impactful. They're going to see this. Okay. Mm -hmm. If, if all of them. All of them are going to see this. There's not one of them is going is going to have missed this. If any of them knows anything about coding or or um, mechanics or anything, mm -hmm. they're going to be people are going to be shoving this video down their throats, and they're going to go, man, I really if I really want to make a difference, yeah. Where else? Where else would a company have been able to do this in six to eight months? I mean, yes, it was a year from the previous AI day, but they were saying that basically they weren't working on this uh, for 
until six to eight months. You brought up a really good point. I think friends are going to share little pieces at, at different points with their friends who are like, watch this part because I know you're into that um, kind of programming or this kind of engineering. And right. then those people are going to be like, what? That's what they're doing and at this Tesla? Is, this is huge for four years from now. Yep. There, there are kids graduating from high school who are going to watch this presentation. Yep. Not in its entirety. They're going to see that they're making a robot. And is, is it a dancing robot? No. Um, but they're going to see, wow, if I work at this company, A, I'm going to be, you know, doing this amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Also, Teslas are cool because I'm a high school student and mm -hmm. I think that, you know, Teslas are cool. And then lastly, they're going to say, and I could be on stage with Elon fucking Musk and he might, you know, he might criticize the way I'm holding my microphone, but I'm going to be on stage with him. <laughs> and, Elon, and Elon said, if you work for us, you're going to get a lot of shit done. Right. And, and that's, that's what like, I want to hear. That is so cool. And, and it's it's the cool part here is that they're not this is not an ice cream bar. This is not um, a, a, you know, juice bar or something that's going to try and attract people. They're selecting. They can be this selective to that's say, right. do you want to work hard and get a lot of stuff done? Come work for this company. Most companies can't do that. They have to say, we have really good benefits. Oh, we have a really good uh, work-life balance. Tesla's not saying that. So they're selecting for the people who are going to work hard and everyone else is going to go work for, you know, GE or GM or, you know, they're just going to, oh, well, that sounds like a lot of work. I'm not going to go work there. And they won't. I love that it was a multinational group of highly intelligent engineers on yeah. that stage. I just loved yeah. it. And the other thing is, look at the age. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what was the average age on that stage? There was there was some comments where they're just like, I think I'm too old to work for Tesla. I'm yeah. 30, you know, and it's like, <laughs> I mean, I think that there were some 30 year olds on sure. that stage. But I mean, yeah, honestly, these are people. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought the a really cool thing that I, I don't think, you know, I, I, engineering and this uh, space is really heavily male dominated, you know, and, and it's and it's at least from the standpoint of of um, visually, like when I'm looking at the stage, it's like what, 90, 95 percent male. But I really I really enjoyed the fact that a female sort of led the discussion. Right. She, like there was a, there was a woman that started the discussion. I think that that's that that sends a message i think to to the ones that are out there to people out there that are looking to join the companies like hey listen like like there's no worry about uh what sex you are what gender you are like we want you to work with us if you if you listen to you know again i'm, I'm somebody who's not natively a, an english speaker my my first language was english or spanish both of my parents are iranian i'm, I'm an immigrant hearing all the different accents made me again reminded me of how diverse and and merit driven the company is yes it's it's the stage was very he heavily male dominated but that's not a tesla thing that's just a that's just an engineering thing it is what it is right but but the fact that it was female led i thought sent a message that was really really cool mm -hmm. and the variety of talent and the depth of that talent was very very evident i, I made a note on my on my notes that said uh Karpathy who Right. And I kind of said that like in a very like joking manner to myself, because we all know Karpathy, Andre Karpathy is a, is a brilliant person, incredible asset for Tesla. The fact that he moved on, you know, it's it sucks for Tesla, but I'm very happy for for him because he's able to sort of pursue his passions and what he's looking after. And I know Tesla's happy for him as well. But again, it shows that Tesla is not just a company that's out there to make uh they're not just trying to show their cool products. They know that it requires a certain level of expertise and talent to get there. And again, on full display, what kind of message does that send to people out there that are looking to uh, embark on this journey? It's it's so 
it's so weirdly different and unique from every single other company I've I've seen give any sort of presentation. They're so unapolog unapologetically unpolished, and they don't care about really the, the polished image. They're just coming forward and saying, yep, this is what we're doing. This is what we're, it almost works to their advantage, I feel like. I feel, it's almost like a calculated thing. I, I feel like maybe Elon behind the scenes is like, don't waste your time with this polish and the sales shit. Mm -hmm. Let's just get out there and just deliver the message. And the ones that really care about it will join us, you know? And 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 being in that company, I think I think truly that's a strategy the company has chosen to take. And it, and it becomes really evident in their presentation format. It's it's so it's so odd to watch and it's and it's hard to understand unless again you've you've been invested in this story and how unorthodox the company can be from time to time you know yeah i had a point i wanted to make but i i, I completely <laughs> blanked on it I'll, well no it's I'll a really good point their tesla's super authentic here everything that they were saying from wheeling the robot out to um uh when uh that woman came out and was like hey yeah just so you know <laughs> uh she's like she really kind of thought that that robot was going to fall down yeah. when he was walking around. She's like, just so you know, this is the first time we've done this. Um, but the end, and you're absolutely right about everything else. The authenticity, though, is like, um, you can't really attack that. You can't be like, whoa, what? Oh, you had an accent. It's like, yeah, that's the, this person moved from another part of the world but, to come work on this. You're going to attack that? Think of the cross-contamination of ideas you get yeah. when you have people from all over the world working exactly. on this. It, you know, it's so amazing because you're going to get ideas you never thought of before. And that, I mean, Farzad, I've heard you talking about this before. That's the strength of Tesla, right? You right. put these amazing people together in a room and you come up with ideas that you couldn't have possibly thought of. Well, and I That's mean, right. every week, Zach and I have to sit there and look at the marketing drivel that all the other car brands come out with and it's not even just car brands but it's always just like we're two actors who have been hired wow the gm screen is so big and responsive and it's like yeah. nobody buys it nobody buys it anymore it's this is not the 1950s you can't just go like it's great really no one's no one is is uh you know un i mean yes you're fooling some people obviously ads work um, but I think that for the uh, for the discerning group of people, you cannot have I mean, because, you know, all these other cars, uh, car brands have, you know, days where they show what they're working on and they are nowhere near the level of detail. It's always just a nice, smooth, just like we're working superficial. On it it's going it's going well. They're not talking about uh, exaflops of data. They don't talk about that. Anything. Yeah, it's I, it's I, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, just uh, the the time frame on the robot. By the way, if if let's say it's five to eight years, that's perfect timing for Starship and Mars. Yeah. Like, and I was surprised that no questions came from the audience on this, but I think it does go to the fact that they're really smart engineering kind of questions and less of like um, the stuff you know the more futurist stuff. But Elon definitely is working on Tesla Bot as a solution to Mars. We get to Mars, we need a lot of labor that can work out there in contaminated spaces with, um, you know, gamma rays and no oxygen. And Tesla bots are perfect for that. So, I mean, imagine if he's right on his time frame with Mars and he's right on his time frame with Tesla bot, then they work perfectly together. I know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Let me let me ask you both a question on that front. So obviously that requires a lot of bots. Elon was very openly said for the first time that Tesla bot, the target is to get under 20,000 per unit. What do you guys think about that? 
I couldn't believe. <laughs> I like, I mean, why go so low? It makes sense. Well, although he didn't say it might be that yeah. you buy the bot and then you have to have a subscription to keep it running. Right. <laughs> right. I think. Right. I, I mean, think. Yeah, the re the reference was like it would cost them twenty thousand or less to make, yeah. right? I, I Which think... was your point earlier on. I, I yeah. totally agree. It's it's less. It's going to be less than a Model Three. I mean, it has to be right. right. Like a Model Three weighs has, weighs a lot more. Has uh, you know, tens of kilowatt hours. Yeah, on. and we got to know the battery size. I know. It was so cool. They gave away all <laughs> the yeah. secret sauce. I, I mean, it was amazing. We 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 know how many actuators. Twenty eight. We yeah. know the size of the battery. Was it two point one kilowatt hour? Uh, two point three kilowatt hours? Like. 52 yeah. volts we know the battery pack i know like it's, what it's nuts yeah um, millions of bots being manufactured was another metric they threw out there right so they're they yeah. started throwing these little nuggets of of gold i thought well, that was very interesting well, so and they're and, doing their typical tesla thing where they're designing for manufacturing yes and that's the exactly. crazy part tesla has had years and years and years to be building up institutional knowledge mm -hmm. of how to build for manufacturing. So they were not doing the typical robot thing where you say, well, what's the best component? Well, right. When they said there's, we need 28 actuators and instead of making 28 different actuators, they're like, we need to boil this down to six. Mm -hmm. That was brilliant. Right. Or when they said that they're using, um, you know, tendons mm -hmm. and everyone's going to start attacking them. You're using tendons. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, hang on. Mm -hmm. Um, how are you going to make millions of robots if they're all these, uh, you know, and they were talking about, yeah, we could have done, uh, you know, linkage based uh, finger systems, but it's like at the end of the day, how do your hands work? <laughs> you, you have their tendons. The muscles aren't in your fingers. Did, did you notice that Elon started off the whole presentation, though, with this thing about we're a public company? Because I think he knew that the biggest pushback might be from this. Uh oh, Elon, the billionaire is going to own this uh, robot workforce or army or whatever. And so you wanted to start off with, hey, this isn't RoboCop. We're a publicly traded company. You can vote me out. Like, I just thought that was very interesting that it came when it did at the very top of it. What can you I tell you that? why? I, I'll tell you exactly why I think he sent that message out there from the beginning. That, so he, I think he said that because he knew he was going to share the fact that the cost of the bot was going to be under 20,000, again, to Tesla is going to cost less than 20,000 to make in the long term. But that, uh, that to me insinuates that Tesla will likely have a margin that's not going to be, uh, let's just say, incredibly unfair to the consumer, right? So say they make 100% margin or say they, they make double the amount of profit on, on, the, on the cost, right? So that's a $40,000 bot. Uh, they make, they, make, they basically make 50% margin or whatever that number is. So they already have set set an expectation out there that in my opinion and that's why he came out and said that is that the bot's cost is going to be significantly less than labor. And the and the reason why he came out up front and said, "Hey, if we're going down the wrong direction, it's very important that we're a publicly traded company" is because he expects he expects there to be friction from the public once this thing actually becomes a, a product that people can use to replace or displace labor, in my opinion. I don't think that language would have come out from Elon unless he's trying to say, hey, we're going down a direction where we think it's going to be good for humans, but we're going to allow you, the public, to uh, uh, potentially change our course or direction through the purchase of shares and voting rights into the direction that we're taking. Uh, that's where my head went to. because. If we think about again, I 
I get the point of trying to balance the the bot within the context of supply and demand and not trying to get it and, and get it to a point where, hey, listen, like if we can make 800,000 or a million dollars on the bot, we should. But Elon, I don't think the company works in that way. And just look at the Model 3 or the Model Y. Like they've openly said that the prices that they're charging right now for the cars are embarrassingly high, which says that, hey, like we're trying everything in our power to get the cost down as much as humanly possible for these cars. I think the bot falls under that under that context. And if they've already said it were, it's only going to cost us 20000 to make this damn thing and they end up charging $500,000 per bot, that is a disaster of messaging for what Tesla can be as a company in the eyes of politicians, in the eye of, of folks that get displaced, who then become voters that could potentially vote for politicians that are anti-Tesla, right? There, there's so many different dynamics that arise from this thing. So um, I think I think there's a there's a there's a five to ten year implication to the language that Tesla, that Elon put out there because of how it could affect labor. I don't know if you guys, uh, what do you guys think about that? But that's well, where my just one thing. To. A bunch of people are putting this in our chat and I had it in my notes too. I think yeah. that Elon said the cost to the consumer was going to be less than $20,000 because when I heard him was say it? that I made, I, I, because I thought I heard it wrong as well because i was like how could it possibly be right. um but a bunch of people in our chat are saying the same thing that he said the sale price would be t less than twenty thousand. that's even crazier i don't know i mean i don't know if you know he's going to be able to pull that off but if that's true i can't see that they would not turn on some kind of fsd like someone put in the comments like yeah you can have it for twenty thousand dollars but you'll have to pay for full self well, i mean full self walking you know i mean they're, <laughs> they're raising the price of of car full self-driving all the time and you have you still have to buy a you know a, what most people would consider to be a pretty expensive car mm -hmm. and then spend another well we, you know how about this i mean just like you have to pay for fsd what if you bought the bot for twenty thousand dollars but then you had to turn on whatever it is you wanted it to do so for instance i want it to be an auto manufacturing robot oh, okay well that's you know x per month or i wanted to change diapers okay that's y per month yeah let's get into that because i mean um there was that question towards the end where it's like are you going to build different bots and program them differently um i I'm blanking on what the answer was to that question. Um, but I think they were basically like, no, I think this is where they also went into like, can you make it asymmetrical or I don't remember mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I think I what mean, it was is like, why are you, why are you taking a humanoid shape when you can kind of customize for each like use case kind of thing? Was that, was right. that what you're. And I mean, scale, scale is the answer to that question. It's like, right. Like, I mean, there are plenty of jobs where you do need to hire a big burly guy. Um, but I mean, if the robot can lift a piano with its arm, um, then what do you need to, and it's, and also to be clear on that little point, they were saying that the actuator was strong enough to lift a piano by itself. Um, but then they were going to put it into a mechanical linkage. That's probably going to make it weaker, but more agile. Oh, is that what I'm glad you heard that point because I, that I thought, was really confusing, and I think that a lot of people didn't get it. And it so I, I they thought were you about gained. The knee. I thought you gained a mechanical advantage in in that case. I believe the way that your arm is set up, um, if you think about it as a lever, right? You have this big, strong, super strong muscle, um, and it's very strong. But then you put it very weakly, attaching it to this long lever. It's That's not attached wrong. to the end of the fulcrum, which would make it like really strong mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have much range of motion mm. and it wouldn't be able to move that fast their actuator is not going to be able to move um 
as fast as an arm, but once you put it onto a long catapult looking thing, um, you're going to get less strength, um, but it's going to be able to move faster and it's going to be um, have a wider range of motion. So, I mean, right. basically the point that they were saying is, hey, if you like detached your muscle with surgery, mm -hmm. you'd be able to do the same thing with that piano. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a minor point. I don't think it actually matters, but I think that a lot of people I was you know watching the chat and they were like, oh, my God, these robots are going to be able to crush people. Um, and I just don't think that that's going to be the case. Right. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I mean, think it was speaking more towards like how how durable and how um, just strong the individual parts are going to be. But you, that's the kind of strength that's required to ensure that you're able to you know, lift 50 pounds in a, in a human configuration, right? You need that kind of strength from the individual actuator. Uh, where do you think they're going to put the off button? Cause Elon said there's going to be a stop, some kind of stop button of some kind. I don't know if it's going to be in the app. Can you imagine like, stop, stop. Yeah. They're going to need one on the app. They're going to need one on the chest, on the back. Right. I feel like it's probably going to have multiple stop buttons. So it's easy for the human to like reach in and stop it. If they don't have access to the app, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, that's that's one of those uh, questions that we talked about before the stream, like when it comes to human interaction and ensuring that there is a safe environment between the robot and the human. What does that mean? You know, um, I, I would imagine it would probably have multiple stop buttons. So easy, easy to access, you know, easy or it could be just like touch sensing, right? Like you you touch the robot and it stops, you know, or you, you hold its wrist and it stops. I have no idea, but it's probably going to have more than one just to make sure that you can reach it from multiple angles and directions. For something so profound tonight, I am so surprised that the word profound did not happen I at agree. all. <laughs> I know. You've I got, got drunk over here, word. bro. I know, for real. <laughs> My God. I should have used exaflop or something. I, <laughs> oh, man. Screwed up, you know? Dang. Um, I love that question at the end about what period of history would you rather have been born? And Elon's like, right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. I love right now. Because yeah. you know what, people? This is a really cool part of history mm -hmm. to be alive in i think there i mean who knows what's going to happen down the road but like we got starships we got tesla bots we got fsd this is amazing yeah yeah they clearly came across as a company that knew what they were doing i think i think that was another big takeaway i had is like again this is a, a reaffirmation that that tesla knows what it's doing they 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 are amassing the right talent to tackle extremely difficult problems head on like I said before, they're not afraid to be vulnerable about how they're approaching that. They want to open themselves up to the public. But the thing that, and I'm not technical in that respect. Like I had literally the middle section of that entire presentation went completely over my head. But my the biggest thing that I took away from that is like Ford, GM, Meta, Facebook, any tech company or manufacturing company in the world would never, ever, 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 ever come out and do this presentation because a they would be bound by ndas and some sort of like oh my god we can't share that we're, we're going to be afraid that uh other companies are going to steal that from us you know and tesla's like i don't give a fuck this is what we're working mm -hmm. on if you mm -hmm. want to steal it go for it check out the town we got here we're going to go way faster than you are that is yep. that is profound from a company perspective it that has i've never seen that before it's so weird it's so completely weird. And um, I don't know. I, I feel extremely proud that I'm connected to this company in some way because yeah. that's that's the swagger 
that I that I remember from being in that company for for the time that I was there. There was just a swagger of like of like we we do hard work. We never get thanked for it because like this is extremely hard work, but we're proud of it and no one's going to be better than us. We want to keep doing it and we don't care. And that was on full display today. And it um I don't know, man. I I, I felt very proud. And it's uh I really hope it gets studied because this is this is how every company should operate. And unfortunately, because of egos and politics and uh, marketing and sales and human psychology, it's rare. But Tesla somehow miraculously has bucked that trend. And we were able to witness this in real time. And uh, it's very inspiring and it's different and it feels it feels right. It feels correct. And I think that's 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 again another affirmation for me that hey, this is a special thing. It's crazy. That's so cool. I have a couple of questions for you guys. One is I felt like Elon looked really good, healthy yes. wise and happy. What did you guys think? Yeah, a lot of people were commenting on that on our stream. Um he looked toned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I mean it's 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 interesting that he took really nasty, really nasty like internet. <laughs> just abuse mm -hmm. um took it really positive mm -hmm. and yeah. is now like looking great mm -hmm. i'm like wow um that takes something else i i'll tell you from the littlest little comments that i get on my video mm -hmm. i'm just like no shut up don't <laughs> say that about me <laughs> um you know it's like i i mean Farzad, i don't know if you're like that too but i'm just like you know it's hard it's hard mm -hmm. to like be in the public eye and to have people be it like is. you know like well i don't like your hair it's like well but but it's an extension of that vulnerability right again yeah. like this is this is in the dna of the leader right so that the leader is taking uh comments from his um let's just say less than stellar physique that was in Greece. Um, mm -hmm. And he used that as a positive to make himself in, in, into a healthier person. Now, I don't know if, if it was directly connected to the Greece thing, but again, it's, it's the DNA of take feedback as it is on face value, remove the ego and just move forward and try to be better is embedded in the leader's DNA, which propagates through the entire company. And it's, it's a, he's somebody that leads by example. You know, and 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 Elon gets idolized like crazy in this in this community, and you know it's I can see why that's the case, and I try my best to view him as a regular person, but it's hard not to be inspired and sort of like be like, oh, holy crap! Like this guy doesn't just talk the talk; he walks it right, and the health thing like plays into that. You know, like it's small, but I can tell you as as a former employee, like when you watch the leader of the company, not just work 16 hours a day but also commit to his health that delivers a message that says hey even i have the time to take care of myself and to and to improve myself that goes a, a long way to and again improve this culture of like hey let's just be better let's get better let's get better i think for people that follow the company and are investors i think it's a great sign to see elon happy laughing healthy looking good you know like um, poor guy kept getting picked on on his freaking mic, you know, but I feel like Elon just wanted to do that because he really wanted that person to be heard or those people to be mm. heard. I really That's think it came point. from a from a good place. I don't think it came from a bad place. It came like, yo, get it up to your mouth because you got something really good to say, right? It's mm. a very encouraging sort of thing. And that's 
I think, I think sometimes that gets that sort of tone. And that's one thing I learned while I was the company, like that tone gets misjudged very often. It's like, wow, what a dick. Like, why would you do that? It's like, no, mm -hmm. like he's coming from a place of like, Hey, he wants his team to be heard because they have something good to say. They just don't know to put it up to his mouth. And he's going to use plain language and say, put it up to your mouth, removes the ego. There's no emotion. It's just like, Hey, this is why I want you to do this. Right. So, um, but yeah, going back to the health thing, I thought I thought it was great. I thought it was great, and I uh, it it gives an indication that Elon's in a good place and that he's here for the long term. And ultimately, I'm just very happy to see him happy and healthy because as a human being, I want him to be happy and healthy. You know, I want him to be around for as long as he wants to be around. So uh, it was very encouraging. I was very happy to see him healthy. When it comes to the cars, we think they're years and years ahead of their competition. What do you guys think in terms of the robots? How far ahead or if at all, <laughs> do you think they are with the competition? I mean, look, I'll be honest. Do I think that like they're ahead of Boston Dynamics? Maybe not. Probably not. Um, you know, they have a lot of software to do. They haven't like completely finished their design. Obviously, this is a prototype that we're looking at, um, but it's all about speed. I mean, yeah, maybe, you know, like this is the equivalent of, you know, a bunch of uh, cars from the 1920s doing, you know, 10 laps of a race. And then, you know, you have a modern F1 uh, uh, race car getting out onto the track. And it's like, yeah, they're in the lead. But like, which car is going to win in the long run? Uh, it's going to be the car that can go 200 miles an hour, uh, unlike all these other cars. And their wheels are going to fall off at some point. Like. That's going to be the difference uh, between Tesla and and the competition. It, it doesn't. It just doesn't ever seem to matter. You can steal their engineers away. You can steal their literal intellectual property away. Tesla will always continue to beat you to the punch. Hmm. My my hot take there is that I think Tesla is already miles ahead of Boston Dynamics because Tesla is actually building something useful. Boston Dynamics is is putting together a show pony. That's just like, oh, look at look at how balanced it is. Okay, cool. But what can it do to actually improve people's lives? Nothing. Just YouTube videos, right? Uh, Tesla is actually building something that's legitimately going to be used to improve people's lives, to improve workplaces, to make something useful. And knowing the DNA of the company, that's one hundred percent what it's going to execute on later than than they should. But that's already miles ahead of any other robotics company, which means they are miles ahead of everybody else. Yeah, I like that answer. I like both your answers, but I do kind of agree with Farzad. I think that um, they are. Um, we we see Boston Dynamics, and we see all these you know dance moves and stuff. And you know, Spot can do some stuff autonomously, but yeah, nothing like what's going to happen um, with with Tesla Bot. Right. Um, a question about the stock, because look. We can't get away from that. Everyone's talking about that, right? Uh, what's going to happen on Monday? What's going to happen on Monday? What do you guys think is going to happen on Monday? Oh, the, the analysts, the mainstream media, they're going to completely whiff this. I mean, like this was a this was a just an easy lob over the plate and they're just going to completely miss it. What's the story going to be? Oh, it's going to be uh, a rough oh it looked really rough and um it was boring like they're going to use all the stuff that everyone was chanting about in, in the in the comment section of like you know like well i guess people are stupid like like i guess this is all i'm too stupid to understand this but that must mean that they're dumb they're gonna try and turn it into some story where it's just like oh nobody understood what they were I, talking about i don't think they had enough footage that was impressive enough for the media 
to right. rebroadcast on Monday. Um, That's right. So I agree with you on that. Would, it's going to be just, yeah, like you're saying, it's just going to be looped of like the robot looked so, funny when it walked. Okay, before we go to Farzad, though, what do you think is going to happen to the stock? Um, It's not going to go well to, on Monday. Like, I don't care about Monday. No, I know if you I don't. Was, I know you okay. don't, but I care because... I mean, I always keep a little powder dry and I'm not a financial uh, analyst or advisor. You do what you do. I do what I want to do. It's going to take until Wednesday for the story to fully get through everyone's, you know, the shoe shiner at Wall Street. These people, I don't know. They, they, it takes them a while. And by the time everyone's going to hear about it, the story is going to be so sour. Um, everyone's going to just think that the company's going out of business uh, like they always do, like every single Every single day that Tesla is put on, the next day, the next trading day, they're down. I know. I've, I've been watching a bunch of people in the chat that I, I do um, know a lot about because of their trading. And a lot of them are saying it's going to be a buying opportunity on Monday. What do you think, Farzad? Yeah, I don't think it's going to influence the stock at all. I think the headlines we're going to see is like, uh, uh, you know, Tesla continues to push its pipe dream. Uh, Tesla whiffs on on uh presentation they don't really show anything you know new new product is not even useful they're just out there speaking a bunch of nonsense but again the, the i agree with jesse the whole the overarching theme of uh an incredibly confident company who is putting all its cards on the table and really showing what it takes to build incredible things um, they're putting it out there and saying, this is what we're working on and come join us. And if, and if you do be ready to take over the future, uh, that whole theme is going to get completely lost. And honestly, I don't blame them because those folks are, are focused on quarter to quarter movements. And this is not a quarter to quarter outside of full self-driving, which again was, was it's in the state of being seen rather than being talked about. Like we really need to see results. I, I really I really think from that perspective, it's not going to do much. So to me, it's going to be a nothing burger. It's going to be dominated by macro. Um, Russia, Ukraine is probably going to dictate a lot more than anything else. The delivery and production numbers over the weekend are really going to influence what's going to happen in the market. So I would not expect this to do anything to the stock whatsoever on Monday. That's really good. Uh, really good thoughts there. I think you're right. I think that the, d the delivery numbers, because it is end of quarter right now, are going to affect a lot of people, which, again, you're right, is short sighted because who cares? But um, <laughs> that's what everyone it's, it's a it's an auto company and how many they deliver is so important. How um, big not, of a separation has Tesla created after today, dude? Like that, that's that's what my head goes to. Like the separation the, is insane. Right. Elon even said it. We're, you know, an AI robotics company. We're all these startups, but yet we just keep thinking of them as an automotive right. company. I, I love this comment. You know, uh, Hyundai owns Boston Dynamics, right? They, they I think it's like an 80% stake in Boston and SoftBank. Yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, so they, but like, that's completely like, that's taking two separate things and going now kiss. Mm -hmm. That is completely different than something emerging out of another thing. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Um, and so, like, you know, Hyundai can have Boston Dynamics. That doesn't mean that their tech that is in their cars is going into those robots. Mm -hmm. And most likely, the tech that's in the robots is not going into the cars either. Which is probably why Hyundai bought them. They right. they think that maybe, you know, and they're smart in buying intelligent engineers who have been able to design what they've, what they've done. Sure. But it's just not the same thing as Tesla branching out with just bountiful... 
amounts of intelligent engineers who are working their butts off only to be replaced by the next generation in just a few years. But it's Look, a honeypot dilemma, right? In that situation yeah, right. that Elon was talking about, right? Like it's, he, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he put it so well. Mm -hmm. Don't, and, and that spoke to a lot of engineers. Don't go working for a honeypot uh, mm -hmm. company. I'm not that company. And I think I'm going to have this problem on Monday. I'm going to forget how excited I was when I saw what I saw tonight. Oh, it's going to be dreadful. Because it's, it's going to be dreadful tomorrow morning. It's probably already dreadful. I haven't opened my news feed yet, but I'm sure <laughs> that there's going to be this looping gif on right. a Business Insider article of, of pushing of, a robot. Of them. Right. Oh, they had to wheel it onto the stage. Yep. <laughs> okay. That's the headline. But, That's the headline yeah. for they sure. They wheeled it. it because we were all talking before the show, and I'm guilty of this too. I wanted to sure. see the robot doing something fantastical, and you know, and it did in many ways because for the time frame that they've been building it. But I know that yes, I'm going to forget this feeling. So please, both of you, remind me continually mm -hmm. how freaking exciting this is because we'll this is an amazing company. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. Yeah, it's unbelievable, and the, and the fact that they're going to be solving FSD in parallel with the bot. I think sends it yet another level, right? Because it's like yeah. by the time, by the time they do the next year AI, and and they were talking about the monthly podcasts, dude. Like that is such a oh, brilliant idea. Like stick mm -hmm. a bunch of hardcore nerds and talk super in depth about what you're working on. That's brilliant. Like 100% Tesla should do that because again, it goes it goes back to the whole theme around confidence about what you're working on and not being afraid to to show your hand and just being like super transparent about your methodology. That continue right. doing that to to build that that hype and then by the time the next AI day rolls around next year, full self driving should be finalized and perhaps operating in small numbers in some cities and then that becomes a test case for hey, wow, Tesla figured out an AI thing wow, this bot is actually walking and doing other stuff that's super useful. What's how much how much longer until this becomes a reality? You know, then you get some momentum going. So um, it's a long burn, man. Like it, it, it definitely is a long burn. But Tesla has been a long burn for since its inception, since I yep. really started investing since 2012. Right. Like it's it's always the future. It's always the future. And the fact that Elon and the team continue to be focused on the future for me as an investor is by far the most important thing. I don't want the focus to be, oh my God, we're going to talk about for two hours about how we're building the most cars in the world and we're going to hit records in Q4 of 2023. I don't give a shit about that. Talk to me about where you're going to build in five to 10 years from now. And they went hardcore for three hours, four hours on that, dude. Like that's unbelievable. It's incredible. Well, speaking of four or five hours, we're on almost to our fifth hour. I want to <laughs> say super thank you to you, Farzad, for being with us this whole time. Likewise. To our team over at Corporate Streams. Thank you to our viewers who stuck with us. This was so much fun, but it is getting late, and I do have some tequila in me, so I probably <laughs> should say goodnight to everybody before I say something stupid. Noah, thank you to you and Josh and the whole team over there at Corporate Streams. You guys were just amazing rock stars tonight, making this all work flawlessly. So thank you so much. Whew. Yeah, man. I am. I've, I've got a little bit left. I'm gonna say good night to everybody. This was so much fun. I want to do this again real soon. Yes. Here, let me let me get all my. Uh, let me see if I. Oh, I got a little bit left in this one. Here we go. Cheers, y'all. <laughs> Honestly, like from the bottom of my heart, Zach and Jesse, dude. Like, I'm so thankful to have gotten to know you guys, and I'm really honored to have shared this uh, 
the, this time with you guys. Like, I, I really feel like the Tesla community is super special. You guys have been doing an incredible thing for the community. I know sometimes you get criticism around like some of the stuff you do, like the Tesla service thing. But I, I really want to give you kudos for for having the balls of coming out and really speaking your truth and and being just uh, just being honest about what you're seeing and constantly doing what you guys believe is the right thing. So I think that takes a certain level of courage, courage and balls. And I commend you guys for that. Thank you guys very much for um, sharing the stage with me. Thank you to everybody who has watched the stream. Thank you, Noah and everybody. And honestly, guys, like I had a blast. Thank you guys so much. Seriously. I'm honored to Thank share you so this much. with you. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I think we'll be doing it next year, right? Because yes. he said there'll be an AI day I'll next be there. year. So that, all right. I'll be Sounds there. perfect. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you soon. Take it easy, y'all. Good night. Bye. All right. Let's Ooh, do five more. Are we still on? Yeah. <laughs>